モーニングプロジェクトプレゼンツ And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Generic Video Game Podcast. Get ready for episode 3, session 4. Tonight, Anthony, myself, alongside Shidoshi, will discuss a generic video game podcast about Sega. Now, wait, what does session 4 mean? Now, because I'm already confused. This is, my, this is my podcast, and I'm already confused about what we're doing. <laughs> Because, like, session four is like either we're in a recording studio and we're making an album, and this is the fourth time we're recording this podcast, or we're like in a doctor's office of some sort, and this is the fourth session we're having with them to find out why we're screwed up. Well, that was the OCD in me. I was so proud of my,、uh, my layout and notes, and upon visiting radio.morningproject.com, I noticed we started with episode 000. Yes, this, this is,、uh, I was going to bring it up sometime, but then I felt like I, maybe I shouldn't bring it up. But、um, I think last episode, like the episode number kept changing back and forth between what episode we said it was.、Uh, it was the perfect formula to create the,、uh, an ongoing,、uh, a little niggling nag throughout the history of the show. I don't want to listen to you. You can't hear that, but I don't listen to you. Yes, because the first one we did was SNK, and that was technically episode zero because we decided it was going to be a test run. And then we did、uh, the events and then wrestling. So this is technically episode three, but it's also the fourth podcast that we've done under the generic name. You know, there's only one other thing I can think of as convoluted as the discussion <laughs> we're having right now. And, it's, and it really is perfect, a, a teaser for later in the show. The last time I was this confused was trying to figure out which add on I should get for my Sega Genesis, whether it be、oh. the, the Sega CD, the 32X,、uh, to wait for the rumored Neptune. Should I wait for the Saturn? It, it's, it was one of the most, uh, uh, it was such a, a confusing time. Now, see, I was going to say.、Um... Uh, Borderlands is a pre sequel. So, Borderlands is a pre sequel. Where in the game series does that go? I have to give you credit on that one. I, you know, I saw the commercials for that. And seriously, I'm not a Borderlands aficionado, but it is way confusing. Because it's like. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those.、Um, I mean, because, okay, obviously, pre sequel, it's, it's pre the sequel. But it's coming out after the sequel came out.、Uh, it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird thing. Like, like, we used to call those, like, what, like 1.5? Like, there was always the,、uh, the infamous Resident Evil 1.5 <laughs>、right. that Mr. Nick Rocks at one point swore to me he owned, and then later on he told me he didn't have. And I was very upset. And I think later on he told me again that he did have it somewhere. Because、um, supposedly a game fan, we did have Resident Evil 1.5. I've always wanted to play it. Like, Like, I, I don't like, I mean, I, I'm assuming that our kind of listenership knows what Resident Evil 1.5 is.、Uh, but I guess since I brought it up. So b- before Resident Evil 2 became what it is, there was a different version of Resident Evil 2 they were working on. Like, for example, instead of having Claire as the main female character, there was a, a character named Eliza, who she was like a motorcycle enthusiast.、Um, and so it was going to be a very different kind of atmosphere and stuff. And they went back and they kind of re. Redid the game,、uh, which would later on happen, especially to Resident Evil 4 as well. Didn't,、uh, back on the one and a half topic, weren't some of the enemies also like humanoid with dog faces? 
Um, that's a good question. I don't, I don't remember. I remember seeing that. images from that a lo- quite a while ago. I yeah, and I think like on one of the tables, one of it showed like a like a model of Raccoon City, like on the table, and like the lockers aspect and changing of outfits. But some of that stuff, I think, stayed in the final. You know, those ideas stayed, but obviously everything was scrapped from one and a half. Yeah, and I'm always I'm always like really really curious when stuff like that happens, you know, because I I'm always like I want to know like what was the game originally, you know, and like I want I want to go back and be able to play that somehow, and um, like I was saying, I know Resident Evil Four went through at least three iterations, I think, before it became what it is now, and and I was also I'm just totally jumping back and forth, but I can't remember who it was, but um, I'm on a message forum called TNL, and speaking of your quandary about which uh, Sega hardware to get, um, this this fine gentleman, whose name I am totally forgetting, he took and he took the Sega Genesis Model 2 and he built a 32X into it. So, really? So, so now the main cartridge slot for that system is just the straight-up 32X. And, of course, on the 32X, you could plug in Genesis cartridges and they work just fine. Um, so he has like a, a, what looks like a Gen- regular Genesis model two, but you can plug 32 X cartridges in it as well, which is really cool. Well, that's kind of interesting. I, I didn't so know that, we were... that would leave a little bit of your confusion as to which to get, but of course that was a, um, I wonder if that was like the most confusing time you've ever had in terms of trying to buy a console. I, w- I would say, I, I think that's fair to say. I think, um. Yeah, it was because outside of outside of Sega, which is which is this evening's main topic, you know that time period as a whole in terms of the the consoles and gaming, you had everything from the 3DO to the Jaguar to Sega's entries all in that that transitional time period as everyone was kind of trying to get the jump on the true 32-bit hardware and architecture and. You know, the Saturn and PlayStation were lurking in the background. I think we might have even discussed this a little bit previously, but uh, it, it really was. Don't forget the poor CDI. Oh. And there's an, there's an, uh, uh, and every system has an amazing story. And I'm going to get a quick side plug here for a, an overseas publication I've plugged before, and I'm going to get it out of the way because later this evening, some of my notes and memory banks were recharged by reading classic retro gamer uh, mooks and magazines uh, out of the UK. So um, they, they were a great aid in this evening's podcast. And, um, but yeah, they, they've, done st- they've done stories on just about every classic piece of hardware and game you can think of over the last decade. And even CDI had an interesting article. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, you know how you know that you're a weeaboo is the fact that you use the word mook, by the way. <laughs> because there's only a certain segment of the world that knows what a mook is. And I don't even know, like, at this point. Like, I, I feel like mook was, like, a really big, like, 90s thing. <laughs> and, I mean, they're, they're still around, but how do you know if, like, Japan calls them that anymore? They do. I believe they do. Do they? Okay. Yeah, because it's a hybrid magazine. Book I remember for... I I did, and it is actually still up on Game Facts. Um, I heard somewhere that because like there was like all the different 
you know, the, like Japan loves its names, right? And one yeah. of the, I remember the thing like with systems, right? Every every RPG has a system, you know, or or stupid Shenmue with like what full reactive oh, eye yes, entertainment uh, yeah, or, or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah like, like Japan like loves these like loves to like come up with their own like names for things to make it feel special and <laughs> and among some of the ones I had seen somewhere I saw. Uh, perfect memory and perfect memory was like a, a, a like these kind of books. So Japan has these like books that you can buy. Um, and I I just bought a couple of persona ones when I was over there. Uh, they're like books that like okay, you, it has like artwork and and character details and maybe it has like maps for the game, you know, and has full rundown like like what we would call a strategy guide kind of. But they're they're they go beyond being a, just a strategy guide. And they're also for like the fans, you know. So you don't just buy it. To, find out how to get to the game you have all that information and you also have like you know all this artwork and and, and history and, and story details and all this kind of stuff so i i had found this term perfect memory from somewhere so i actually made a perfect memory for fantasy star 4 um and it is it is still it is still up on game facts as of this day but like that was my kind of obsession with oh i i have to call it something like cool in japanese you know if i'm gonna do this you can't you can't just be a strategy guide it has to be more than that so that was the term you came up with was perfect memory i i had read it somewhere i swear oh, okay. i read it like like that that it was used because i i know like with the persona books i just bought i think they're like like club something something club persona club or whatever mm. and that's the term they're using for their books so like you know said so in america we just say it's a strategy guide you know that's a strategy guide, you know, but, but like they have like all these specific names for what these things are. And my thing wasn't supposed to just be about how to get through the game. It was supposed to be a complete overview of, of what the game was and how it connected historically to the previous games and, and who the enemies were and like all this kind of stuff. And I, I was in that area where everything had to be Japanese or Japanese termed, you know, <laughs> so I'm like, I can't just be a regular strategy guide. Has to be a perfect memory. <laughs> but yes, Mook. So, because because for most people, Mook is what like some some dumb Italian guy or something like that. Isn't that what a Mook is? <laughs> well, in all fairness, they use they will sometimes use the term Mook or another term that they like to use is uh, not on the Japanese front but on the UK, uh, Bookazine. Ah, well, see, yeah, yeah. That, that 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 doesn't sound like like Mook sounds really. Like maybe you are offending someone somewhere, you know, but book was it bookazine? Yeah, yeah, bookazine sounds dumb. I'm actually more comfortable saying the word bookazine than mook. I actually feel I actually don't like the sound of uh, mook. It does, right? It, it sounds like you're like saying something like you're not supposed to be saying. Like, yeah, I don't like it. You know, it's like like there's like those words sometimes, especially if you're a white person. There's sometimes those <laughs> words that you're like. Man, I know this isn't racist, but it sounds racist enough that I don't feel comfortable saying it. You know, okay, so I we are completely off topic here, but um and and I I I am going to admit to it, it I'm trying to think of how to explain this because I I can come off something really really bad. So, when when you are young and when you are around a lot of younger or mid twenties or maybe even early thirties guys, there's, there's a certain kind of atmosphere that one person, a person can be in, you know, you know, like the kind of, um, 
frat house kind of thing or just when a lot of guys are around each other and you're kind of near them and uh you know their testosterone is running high and everything and and they have like all these kind of jokes and a lot that are inappropriate and stuff like that so it's it's very it's very easy to to like get influenced by them uh so this is a very long story i know i'm drawing it out but i i so i don't want to say it's necessarily a homophobic slur and I don't think ever the intention was homophobic at all. It was just, it sounded like an insult. So we use it as an insult. But there was this video game that came out called Belt Logger 9. And <laughs> I've, we, I've never heard of that one. And we were like, Belt Logger totally sounds like something you would call somebody else when you're trying to insult them. <laughs> so for, for around the game fan offices for like a month and a half. We just like the, in, our, in the little group I was in. We just kept calling each other the belt logger, as like the insult for some. And because it, it was like one of those words, that, like I said, like it, it, it was it was some weird Japanese like first person kind of game or something like that. Um, and like I said, I, 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 it just it sounded like a word that you know was an insult to somebody else. And and so it's it's funny sometimes how. Like these words can just sound a certain way, and even though you know it's like not an insult whatsoever, like that's kind of how it comes across. Well, you can be a belt logger, and I'll be a crime cracker. Crime cracker. I, I like Japanese. Japanese names are awesome, but like they're awesome. Like how weird. And I don't. I don't think that there. I don't think we get like the super weird names anymore. I mean, you do kind of in the subtitles, definitely. But I feel like the main names of games like aren't as bizarre as they used to be. I would say one just barely got away from us. Uh, the evil within overseas is known as Psycho Break. Yeah, that that is that is okay. That's that's fair. That is kind of bizarre. I'm trying to think. I mean, it's because I I feel like a lot of games anymore they they think a little more international. Right. Um. And I know, I guess, like, uh, with Deadly Premonition, that was Red Seed's profile in Japan, which is which is a little weird. That's a real ja- – what I don is a real Japanese name. Yeah, and I, I, I talked to Swear, and he actually, like, he's a, actually a fan of Deadly Premonition. And oh. oh. So so he wasn't – he like, I, I kind of, like, pressured him, like, okay, so if you make a sequel, like, which – like, would you ever just want to call it Deadly Premonition, you know, as the main name? And kind of his argument was, well, I like, I really like the name, but it just, as weird as you might think Red Seed's profile is, like, Deadly Premonition is actually harder to kind of convey in Japanese, according to him. Like, like I mean, his, that, that was his feeling, you know. It's like he, he thought it would be harder to convey the meaning of the name um, if you just translated it over. So that's why he had to have something that kind of would, would make a little more sense to the Japanese market. Mm. So... Well, I feel this uh I don't know if I can kind of relate this to what we were just talking about, but it kind of sparked my memory of something I was thinking of recently in that um I saw um I was in the game shop the other day and I didn't realize what was it, Senron Kagura came here on Vita. Yes. And my feeling on that is that I was I have thinking a copy. Oh, you do? I do. Now, somewhere, I don't want to speak out of line, but 
you know, years ago, growing up through the eight bit and sixteen bit era, and is and and there was a hardcore segment of gaming through more fanzines and niche publications, as, we, as we've talked about numerous times in the past. Maybe I'm playing favorites for our generation or just what I like versus present day. But, you know, when, hardcore games used to be stuff like, you know, arguably like the Thunder Force series or like Gaiares or, you know, the, the Japanese RPGs of the day. You know, you know, some of them hit mainstream success, but there was a reason that some of those hardcore titles had a, a special feeling or certain appeal because there was... Uh, a certain quality attached to them for maybe a market, uh, you know, that took the hobby a bit more seriously and, and, and just kind of knew that whether it be from a gameplay standpoint or whether it be a sci-fi, there was a certain element that they may have latched onto, but at the same time, those games had qualities that would either be picked up on by more mainstream games or just timeless aspects if I'm making any sort of sense. But when I look today at the hardcore wave of titles out of Japan, and there are exceptions, like, like I don't know what's... Are, 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 you, are you getting to the point where you say it's, it's all Moe garbage? Is that what you're going to say? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's not 100% true across all aspects of import gaming, but, like, I don't see the the appeal in that I'll say this, the, the limited edition, the box set and stuff looked really cool. And I picked, I, when I say I picked up a copy, I did not buy it, but I picked it up in the store and I took a look at it and like, you know what, let me see, get an, an idea of what this is about versus a couple shots I saw online. And like, I couldn't, I couldn't justify it. Um, I was thinking, and I think this is, this is, this is one of many good examples. Um, so Fantasy Star Online versus Fantasy Star Online 2. Like, when Fantasy Star Online, the original, came out, I mean, there's a, there's a Japanese aesthetic, right? There's a Japanese look to things. But it was still... It, it wasn't like the... And, and I just had an argument recently that, like, anime is not an all-encompassing term. But if, you, if, you, if we want to just say... There's an anime look. Fantasy Star, the original Fantasy Star Online, didn't have an anime look. It had, you know, and I'm spacing on the person's name, but it, the the artwork for for the game was somebody who'd done other Sega artwork, you know, and you 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 knew the art style and everything. But it it and it looks Japanese, but it didn't look like oh these you know could be in any random anime show on TV today. It had a distinct so, style, right? And it, it just it just looked like a video game, you know, artwork. But somewhere along that path, like I think it started in Fantasy Star Universe, and then um, I noticed it more in Fantasy Star Portable. There, like the character portraits started changing, and the the character design started changing, and kind of the character styles kind of started changing. And I I. As much as I love Japanese gaming still, I think this has become a huge problem. And is that because I'm looking at a picture of Fantasy Star Online 2 right now, and I look at these characters, and they could be in any random game in any random anime series. There, There's like a generic kind of look. And you always, I feel like you always know now 
who the characters are going to be, right? You're going to have, oh, look, it's the, it's the kind of more mature, older girl with the glasses, you know? <laughs> and, oh, it's the sexy girl with the gigantic breasts. And, oh, it's the, it's the mysterious guy who doesn't talk in a lot. And, oh, it's the crazy guy who eats a bunch of food, you know? Like, like I, I feel like at this point, just Japanese companies are going on this road where they're, like, catering to this smaller and smaller niche because they think like that's the only people that are going to save them anymore and i i feel like, like like shining force you know what i mean i'm not a huge shining force fan but like look at the artwork for shining force now versus what it used to be you know like go look at these series and and these franchises and look at like what their character designs are now and what their character types are now versus what they used to be you know 10 15 whatever years ago um I, I, I know what you're saying because I, I was, you know, I was thinking about that too recently. Is the fact that like when you, I thought about like what kind of hardcore games I used to import and and things like that versus today. And maybe, maybe to be fair now, to be fair, maybe it's the fact that I'm kind of spoiled too because we get a lot more things brought over here than we used to get. That's simultaneously that's true as well, uh, but it's like. And, and I'm not trying to step on any toes here because I know some, like, not all of this is, quote, bad, but, like, you know, there's, what is it? I see stuff like, what is it, like, Girls Un Panzer, Criminal Girls. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm just, like, and going back, you know, to the retro aspect, like, you know, there was stuff like Ranger X, yeah. uh, you know, Seiken Densetsu, like, certain, you know, uh, or Front Mission, you know, people wanting to fan translate or, or – uh, as we can even get into later, saw off the ends of cartridges to make them play in your console yeah. in the U.S. I mean, it was that hardcore because, um, you know, either the medium wasn't quite as big as it was in Japan at the time, and they were really pushing out a lot of quality, which gave reason to, uh, for people to spend this kind of money or look for modifications on their, their cartridges or hardware. And now, once again, to reiterate, like, here's an example. I'll give you an example of a game, and we did get it. <clears throat> that for analogy purposes would have been accepted as like a hardcore quality title that would have been imported if it didn't come here dragon's crown mm -hmm. like that would have been something you'd look at like a beautiful art style beat em up it's kind of accessible to a wider range of people but at the same time maybe more of a hardcore thing and nowadays and you know what it's shocking like get, going back to that senran kagura I mean, is it amazing in 2014 that we even got that? Yeah, that we got it. And, like, the fact, I mean, and I go back and forth on this, too, is, like, should it be called Senran Kagura, you know, over here, you know? But that's, that's the name that's, like, it's completely meaningless to so many people. But the small group of people who, who would buy that game probably understand the name or they at least recognize it or something, you know? So it 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 feels kind of like in certain ways that a lot of these games like they're they're narrowing the focus on who these games are being um uh skewed skewed for you know and you like, know what I'll, like, I'll keep going i'm sorry no say just like i mean like you know there's a certain kind of group who wants to play as a bunch of big-breasted ninja girls having their clothes ripped off you know so let's just push this game to them instead of Let's make them kind of more regular ninjas and have a regular kind of ninja story and try to make it a, a broader um, appeal to people. 
I would say, you know, it always comes down to the dollar signs and, uh, you know, to, for these decisions, for this stuff to come here. So with that being said, the that fan base for for those type of games and, and nothing against them, like, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, totally I mean, fine. I mean, yeah, let me, let me be clear before you go on. I, I want to say that um, there's there's a lot of games that I'm really not a fan of. Uh, and I actually I have Zenron Kagura because I was sent a copy to to cover for work, not because I went out and bought it. <laughs> um, and I there are there are very few games where I would really ridicule somebody for liking them. I I will sit here and tell you why I don't like them, you know, and why I wouldn't play them. But I'm not going to say, oh, you're dumb for for liking that. Like I don't I don't feel like that's 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 not, not helpful, it's not constructive, and it's also like not fair, you know, because. I like games that people don't like, so it doesn't matter what we like. But you know, kind of this conversation is about like how is this actually hurting the Japanese game industry? And I, I do think there is some of that. But anyway, continue. No, you're right, and I'll make it very clear. It's it's not a knock on anyone. I think the more appropriate term on this topic is like it's more perplexing, perplexing from the perspective of the like titles we've seen in the past get passed up or that they couldn't justify bringing over here. And in this, you know, we've gotten everything from, uh, and I know she's loved, and I, and I like it too. But every we've gotten everything from Hatsune Miku to Akibis Trip to Senran Kagura, in a world where it's tough for companies to justify bringing over more of the Yakuza series. I was going to say, uh, do, do you do you do you realize that we live in a world where? Sega brought out Hatsune Miku, but they didn't bring out Fantasy Star Online that, 2. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know what to say. And it's not. I'm not saying one is more important than the other. Like, I'm just talking from the obvious or from what I thought would have been the potential fan base. Like, it's amazing. So I'm guessing that even if the, let's say the, the Miku fan base or whomever, even if they're more niche and hardcore... They must be putting up their dollars. Like they must be, when those yeah. games come here, there must be guaranteed sales from that hardcore base because some of these other titles are half million to close to million sellers overseas, or have even more fond memories in the Fantasy Star series, and they're and they can't do it. I mean, yeah. I mean, the only thing I can say is that who who publishes. Uh, uh, Senran Kagura is that uh, Nippon? Exceed. Oh, it is Exceed. So, so yeah. Exceed. Honestly, without doing like without going to VG charts or knowing insider information, they must have the most loyal, dedicated, put their money where their mouth is fan base in in the whole industry. And and I I think part of it too is like you you're talking about games where fifty thousand copies could could be all they want or all, all they right. all, not all they want all they need you know. So, I mean, you know what? God bless it. God bless the fact that we're in a point where games like that could come over because I remember the eras where we begged and screamed and cried and pleaded for games like that and never got them, you know, because they, they weren't worth doing. I mean, we just, 15 years later, we just got Vibrib in here in America. Because that was a game that Sony America was like, eh, it's just not worth doing. It's just too weird and too small and whatever, you know? Um, so I, I, on one hand, I love the fact that we're at a point where a Senran Kagura can come over and it has its base and they buy it and they get more and they're happy, you know? 
Craig, you mentioned criminal girls. I'm still shocked that we're getting criminal girls. You know, I remember like back when I on on Warning Huge podcast when I said I was going to play that. I'm like, I'm never going to play it because I'm never going to come over here. And May I issue? I'm I'm going to issue a challenge to uh to whatever potential translators and uh, publishers and developers that may be listening to us because we are the hottest podcast on the scene. So I've got one for everyone out there. Yes. This is what I want to see make its way to uh, digital networks, PlayStation One, uh, even if or subtitled only. A game that's eluded me for years. I've always wanted in English, and that never came over here. I want the Samurai Showdown RPG. Ah, yes. I mean, with all of the obscure stuff that's come over here in the two, latter part of the beyond the 2010s and the 2000s, with all of the crazy stuff you just mentioned, Vib Ribbon, mm-hmm. we still have never gotten Samurai RPG. Yeah. And I've actually gone back on YouTube and watched the video to see if it's aged poorly or if it looks bad compared to how I remember it 15 years ago. And I got to tell you something. That game aged pretty damn good. Hmm. Yeah, you should go. To, but I mean, I mean, that, that, that's. I think it's kind of easier for for two D games to uh, to age well, though. You know, like I think I think three D games age much more poorly, or you know, much worse. Right. Uh, over time, than two D games do. I was just thinking that to myself. You know, you I'll, do you want me to throw you an exception? One that's a, a mix of both worlds that I would say aged well because the main characters were sprite based in a three D world. Hmm. Xenogears. Ah. You know what I mean? But you're exactly right. So it doesn't fall into some of the same pitfalls of the all fully three D titles. Right. Right. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I I think. I think the shame, if, if, there's, if there is any shame, is the fact that we are still at a point where there's a certain um, really weird segment of games that don't get brought over. Like some of the... Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it because I, I, I think it just came out as a fan translation, but uh, the Nameless game, are you familiar with that at all? <laughs> I have to admit I'm unfamiliar. It's uh, an Ashino game, literally nameless game. It was from Square Enix, developers Epics, um, and it's like a a DS horror game. Hmm. And it was just like a weird little game like that. And and I mean, you know, we we were at a point where a lot of the crazy DS games were coming over, but there's still like just so many little obscure things like that where. Because I mean, you know, let's be fair. With Senran Kagura, there is definitely a selling point, or, or there, there's two, or I guess depending on how many characters there are, there's quite a few selling points in the game. You know, we know why why fans are interested in that series. So I think it's easier to sell something like that than it is a a nameless game, for example, uh, where it's just okay. It's a really weird. It's on a console of the, I mean, system that's dead at this point, and. Um, it's a, it's a horror game on a portable, which is kind of weird. And you do a lot of reading, which is kind of weird. I'm sure, you know, so it is a shame that we're still, you know, it can still be tough for some of the game like that to come out. But at the same time, you know, we have been surprised by seeing some of the, the Otome games make it over here. You know, something like a Dangan Rompa make it over here. Uh, 999 or Virtue's Last Reward. So it's... It's all it's 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 
I feel safer in hoping that games are going to come over, but at the same time, some really good games have still been stuck in Japan, unfortunately. Yeah, it's weird. Like, so, like, not to keep going over this over and over, but it's like the ones right on the fence or the one that may seem more logical. It almost seems like the absolute zaniest of the zany may have a better shot temporarily these days. Right. You know, uh, it's yep. it's a it's an interesting, uh, I guess, time period. Uh, I don't know what to to make of that because I still love. I'm still very passionate about the uh, the Japanese sector of gaming. Uh, it still comprises the bulk of what I own. I'm always a top, uh, whether it be import art books or, uh, you know, historic uh, looks looks back through various publications. You know, it's still number one to me. But, man, there's just some things that are coming over here that I just can't. I don't know how it's getting approved and where the dollar signs are coming from in, in all instances. You know, I mean, like, it's... Um... You know, having between our last episode and this episode, I, I was I spent two weeks in Japan, and I'm not one of those people who say like, "Oh my God, Japan's like Mecca, and you have to go over there and live over there forever, and it's just everything's amazing and awesome." But there is just this, there is this nice thing about you still really feel like the gaming culture when you go out. You know, like if if you go to you know a bookstore, you see like all these crazy like. The, the MOOCs we're talking about, you know, like MOOCs or whatever they are, um, all these crazy specialty books about games. Um, you go to like the game stores and there, there's, you know, you can still find all these game stores. I mean, you can find can in America as well, but even even like the, even the big name stores, you feel like there's kind of love there for the games. Like you'll see, I mean, if if you've ever been to Japan or ever seen photos of like Japanese game stores, you'll see like the little, the little handwritten signs for games and stuff, you know, and and just the presentation and the way they're displayed and just the kind of things they have. Like it, it still feels like it's a, a culture and in a in a community in a way. In in when you go out and shop and stuff, that I think we've kind of lost. I don't know if we've lost it. It's fair. I think it's it's become something different in America. Like so much of that is like online at this point. I think. Well, the Whereas digital in, the digital aspect is so strong, and especially yeah, in like the people people coming buying digital games or they're ordering the games from Amazon or whatever. Right. Or we have just crappy things like GameStop, you know. Um, whereas in Japan, there's that's still like you can still go to stores and still feel that, which I kind of miss, and I, I love. I love seeing. Uh, you know, I'm spoiled. My area actually has a few retro shops, and I'll do a quick shout out. I, I was not present, but Portland was host to the uh, 2014 the Retro Gaming Expo again this past weekend. But uh, that aside, you know, there are still some mom and pop quality retro gaming shops in my town, believe it or not. But but back on your point of Japan and that experience. Uh, I'm assuming, did you get to go through like the super potatoes of the world or hard? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. See, what, I I went to both. I was at both um, Tokyo and Osaka. So Osaka. I mean, as far as I've always known, Osaka is where Super Potato started. So I got to kind of go to like the original stores and everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I, in both towns, I went. I mean, like, did you see the? Cha- I only know this from watching various online videos. Did you see the chair that's comprised of old like Famicom carts? I did not. I'm not sure where that's at exactly because I know, I know, uh, I think is there one or two in Tokyo? Because there's there's two in Osaka. I think it's two at this point, and then I think w- at least one in Tokyo. 
Um, and I mean, it's it's kind of it's it's kind of an interesting thing for me because I don't like I used to go to Akihabara or whatever and have a super big long list of things I had to buy. At this point, I'm going more just kind of just to be there and look around and and see what's up and things. But I actually a friend of mine was over there as well going to TGS and he had this like eight page printout of things he had to buy. Wow. He was there, you know, so he was just so excited to go to see stores and, and, and find things. And it's, it's always funny because it's, it's at the same time, it's never as easy to find things as you think it's going to be. <laughs> and it's also way easier because like you get this mentality of, um, Oh, I'm going to go to Japan and they have all the figures and all the the books and all the this and all the soundtracks and everything. And what you don't realize is in Japan, it's just like in America, like all that stuff's just like cyclical, you know, where their latest games are, they have on shelves. And unless they're, they specialize in back games, they don't care about like games that are five, six, seven, eight years old, mm, you know? Right. Um, figures, figures are whatever is either selling right now or what is rare enough they can get a really good price for. Like, I was trying, and I knew it was not going to happen. I was trying to find, which you have, and I'm still jealous of, uh, Poison, the Poison statue. Oh. Never, never going to find it. And um, I didn't I didn't find her anywhere. Uh, because just that's something that they just don't have at this point. Because it's just, it just gone out of rotation. Whereas, in here in America because it's more of a collector's market because these are okay we're importing them from japan and selling them to americans and there is much more of a collection kind of mentality behind a lot of this stuff right i think it can actually be easier to find some things in america versus in japan wow that's kind of because in japan their time is just come and gone you know but whereas in america you know this figure that came out 10 years ago in Japan, like people are, may just be discovering that series now, you know, like for example, we're just finally going to get Doraemon here in America, you know, which I don't remember when it came out, but I think like 1970 something in, in Japan, you know? So, so to us, that's brand new. So, so um, the American side might be more eager to, to find those things that are still floating around and, and, and have them in stock and offer them. So that was like a big thing that I a problem I had when I first went over there was I was expecting, oh okay I like the dirty pair dirty pair is Japanese anime they're gonna have dirty pair stuff wherever I go, you know? <laughs> and no, no nobody had it because it was yeah. a, this really old anime that nobody really cares about anymore. Right. So it um, it's always funny that but on the other side, you know for example you'll find things that just are totally commonplace over there that in America you would never find at this point. Right. So now before we, I, I want to talk about this a little more, but I'll, I'll issue you a, uh, not a challenge, but a, a potential swap. I'll make you a deal. Uh Oh, if you can find me, Uh Oh, uh, it would probably have to be mint, you know, not beat up in a box. If you can get me the Rachel statue of, of Ninja Gaiden, I'll trade I you feel for like you. I feel like I've seen that recently. You want to know something absolutely ridiculous? And I thought I was seeing things. This was a couple years ago, and I know it's still there. You know, you want to know something? On a technicality, there's one right in my town. Really? You might be going, "What the hell?" Well, a few years ago, when I was looking into buying a couple uh, 
uh, and I don't have many of them, so it's not like my place is littered with them. But it, there's a few I've picked and choose. Like I have Ray Ayanami of Neon Genesis. I have the blonde-haired version of Poison. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on, yep. hang on, hang on. Yep. So are are you a, are you a Ray person or are you Oscar person? Because <laughs> saying that you have Ray makes you think you're a Ray person. Uh, I'm I'm not the Neon Genesis expert. I'm still eagerly anticipating 3.33. I have no idea what's what's the holdup. Uh, just for sake of conversation, I'm going to say Ray. Oh, <laughs> you're one of those. Okay. So there was on uh, on Play Asia a few years ago. I was looking through what they had offered. And there was a sale section, and usually there's nothing that interests me in the sale section. And they had a Rachel statue or figure, whatever you want to call it. It was like 50 bucks. It was really high quality. And I mm. didn't do it. I was thinking about it. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, maybe I don't really need this. I don't want to spend the money. And then I regretted not picking it up. Well, a yeah. couple of years ago, long story short, in town at one of the retro shops, I looked in the window. They have a display with various statues and figures. And it was in there. Hmm. And I was like, What? So I went in the store and I said, look, I said, I know these aren't for sale, but just out of curiosity, I said, one, I said, is it for sale? You know, if, if there, there was a price attached to it. And I said, two, if you don't mind me asking, where'd you get it? You know, because someone there had, like, someone had to know what they were looking into or getting to, to get that. Right. You ready for this crazy cockamamie story? Hmm. The, the display was stuff that b- workers brought in just to display. It was just for that, but it was still their own items from home. That's the first part of it. Secondly, they claim select GameStop stores for promotional purposes for managers were sent that. I want to say for promotion with Ninja Gaiden 1 or 2. Like Obviously, it wasn't for customers, and I kind of know what they're talking about because many years ago, there was a beautiful little Mega Man statue that hit stores for, it was like a, a, we'll call it a promotion gift for managers, real high quality. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's the Rachel story. So that's the end mm. of that. Now the Mega Man story is a much sadder one. <laughs> the Mega Man one is one that years ago when I worked at the store about 15 years ago, I'd wanted it. And somehow one way or another, it got around to Neil. Uh, and he was kind enough to give me that as a present maybe, I don't know, like wow. 10, 10 years ago. And he's like, you know what? I'm so happy to give this to you for a few reasons. You know, one, I know you want it, you appreciate it, and you take really good care of your stuff. And with my family and myself, I know that in this house it's going to break. <laughs> and guess what? About a year after having it, I was cleaning, and I broke it. Oh. <laughs> it yeah. Even more, you know, I, I really leery on buying those things too because I'll give you one more story. I had a beautiful Masamune Shiro Intron Depot statue. It was with the female character that was in one of his books with the ball and chain. Really mm-hmm. awesome looking. And they had it on sale at a local uh, comic shop that deals with a lot of unique items. And I was so thrilled. It was when I moved into my own apartment and I put that on display. And I had a heart attack. I don't know what it was. I still don't know to this day. But I had it on a flat surface on a on a um, one of my cabinets, and I was vacuuming, and I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't hit the you know I didn't knock into it, and I heard something, and I looked, and it hit the floor and busted, and I was so mm. pissed. So 
I've got stuff, 90% of my stuff here is in mint condition. And two of my most prized possessions that needed uh, extra care, I, I found a way to, to bust those myself. But anyway, See, so I, that's, I, that's the challenge. I, I, I'll, do a tra- I'll do a swap for you. I'll do a trade. If you find something I like, well, now, uh, now, I yeah, because you, I mean, you do have the, the blonde poison, though. <laughs> so, yeah, I know about that. But no, like, I've, yeah, it's really weird because I feel like I've seen that Rachel statue somewhere recently. Yeah. But I don't maybe that's, you know, honestly, maybe it was some weird, weird thing like that. So if that story I was told was true, it's maybe not out of the question. There's a, flu- a few floating around because of that old promotion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I, I know a certain somebody whose house it might be in that we could always go break into, you know, because he has a bunch of that kind of crap. Real, who is that, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, somebody I won't mention on, on this show. A, fr- uh, a friend? No, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the word friend. <laughs> Trust me, you know who I'm talking about. Somebody who has way too much of that kind of stuff. Really? You'll have to tell me off the air because I'm, a, I'm drawing a mental block. Um, he's infamous well, and we both know him well i mean i know him you know of him really yes well yeah you'll have to i don't want you know this will save us on editing i won't have you give too many hints but i, I just must not be uh i was some some of listeners are screaming at you right now because they know who i'm talking about and they're like how do you not know um is he a youtube personality or someone in no. the industry He's a per- he's a personality, all right. He's someone in the industry. Wow. I don't know that I don't know that he can work YouTube to be honest. <laughs> he's not always the most technologically savvy person in the world. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know who I got it. And I just covered my computer with water. Wow, this is great. <laughs> Did you really? Yes. Oh. My computer's going to, like, fry now. That was, like, karma. My apologies. You know what? I know exactly who you're talking about. Yes. Hang on. Hang on. Talk about something. That's no problem. So uh, this is the perfect opportunity as we get this pseudo break to take advantage of uh, some uh, advertising and plugs here for the fictitious bills we have to pay here on the Generic Video Game Podcast. Haven't had enough of Shidoshi and I in your earbuds? Don't forget to check us out on social networking on Twitter. You can find myself, Anthony, at 24BitAJE. That's the number two, the number four, B-I-T-A-J-E. Find my partner here, the one and only Shidoshi on Twitter, at Picoeri. That's P-I-K-O-E-R-I. Hey, got a question, got a concern, something we've forgotten about? Future potential topic? You can email us at generic at morningproject.com. Also, last but certainly not least, the whole family of Morning Project podcasts. Go right now to www.radio.morningproject.com. It's the home of GVGP, the nichiest podcast ever. Classic warning, a huge podcast episodes. That's the one that started it all. And every once in a while, you may also catch a Miranda's Sweet Shop. So don't forget to check all of that out. No, sorry, I'm not, not, not trying to throw you off. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's all right. So uh, fans, want to thank you for your continued support. And before we get into uh, back on topic, there's two remaining and very special plugs I want to do. One of them is actually, you know what, and I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. You know, some of my stuff, uh, 
may kind of sound, uh, you know, rehearsed or practiced. That's because I like to get certain aspects out without any flubs and uh, just to keep things, uh, you know, terse and to the point. With that being said, this is something very serious and uh, very positive at the same time. This is uh, going out to a fan, and uh, I'm not a very emotional guy, and I mean that people who know me, you know, feel that I'm a bit robotic at times, a bit stale. But uh, as many know, there is a podcast I used to partake in, uh, uh, one that's currently not recorded anymore, although the whole team, so to speak, uh, we're all on good terms and all friends. Uh, that's so no nasty rumors start. And that was on the Double Plus Good Games video game podcast, and there's a reason for this special mention. And there's a gentleman who approached myself and gave special thanks to not only myself, but also Neil Bauer. And the special thanks comes to, uh, from Pat Beck on Twitter, known as Ninja Pat Beck. And he shared some very kind words for myself and Neil in that, if not for the podcast, uh, he wouldn't have pursued his dream of getting into uh, game development and uh, it actually sparked him to go back, finish his education, get a college degree. And this is all speaking in fact. This isn't something that he put on the plate and that he wants to do. This is something he pursued over the past two and a half years. And uh, with that being said, I'm going to wrap up this plug with um, the specifics are that he, uh, he did his studying through Full Sail University in their online game design BA degree program. And I went to the site at fullsale.edu. And uh, in regards to their game design course, I, I printed out a little snippet. And it says, uh, if you dream of creating captivating, engaging game experiences, Full Sale's online game design bachelor's degree program can help you set your dream in motion, learn how to develop a game from concept to completion using the processes used by the world's most well-known studios. The program's specialized curriculum teaches you the elements of game development from storytelling and narration to technology and production to leadership and project management. And using Full Sail's unique online platform, you'll be able to engage in the same interaction between devs and artists that this highly collaborative industry depends upon. So long story short, uh, very special thank you to Pat Beck. It was very touching. And, uh, it, you know, it's one of those things. This sounds so cliche, but, you know, sometimes whether it be in the sports world or people that are looked up to, you know, they always say, you know, if you can change one person's life, it's, 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 it's worth it all. And I got to tell you, when doing these recordings, I never, ever looked at anything like that. I always looked at it from the perspective of doing something I enjoy. And I always have an appreciation, appreciation for the fans, because without the fans, it would be nothing more than talking to myself. But this, uh, this went beyond that. So uh, it's kind of amazing, because when I sit here, uh, with my laptop and record with you or others or whomever it may be, you know, it's it's always out of good fun and maybe, you know, giving someone the ability to pass the time, but that was above and beyond. So uh, thank you once again, and I know uh, Pat will be listening in the near future. Uh, finally, as I wrap up on uh, these plugs... I, I was just going to say, before, yeah, before you down, I was going to say, um, I, I, I constantly get emails from, from my listeners... Um, about how I've ruined their lives, um, and it it always just 
I really, you know, kind of tear up and everything when, <laughs> when I get like emails like that, because it makes me very emotional and, and I'm glad to have had such a negative impact on them and, and everything. But that, that's sorry, so please. not true. No, not that's so not true. I get no email. <laughs> people don't know I exist. No, that's not true. There's, there's, there's many a people who speak highly of you. I'm sorry. Please uh, finish your finish your part. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's uh, that was the first special shout out, and here comes another uh, special plug. And it's somewhat we haven't done any guest episodes, and it's not something that we're looking to make a regular occurrence per se. But as they say, there's an exception to every rule. Uh, there is one special guest episode that we pretty much have on lock. Uh, that I'll be talking about here shortly. And then we have another potential extremely special one on top of that. Uh, but that one is for further down the pipeline. And all of the T's have not been crossed and the I's have yet to be dotted, so to speak. Uh, but speaking in the now and uh, in the facts, uh, game fan, alumni, and original artist Terry Wolfinger, 99.99% uh, will be making a an appearance here on GVGP. Now, this is someone, uh, he's a great gentleman. He's, he's an artist that's still uh, around the industry for well over two decades now. And he's, it's someone whose work has, has just escalated into the realm of, uh, I'm going to just say greatness. So he's really, it's something he's stuck with over the years. He's honed his craft, traveled overseas to perfect his craft, and he's always learning. He's, he's a very humble man. He's very respectful when it comes to his work and others. And uh, in some ways, which we'll leave up to him to express and explain, he still does some things around the gaming industry, ironically. Um, with that being said, I'm going to do a little plug for him. So one, look out for him on a future episode of uh, GVGP, what may very well be... Um, proclaimed as a DLC episode at the the great price of free. So outside of that, uh, for aspiring artists, I've got a special little plug here. So for GVGP fans, longtime diehard game fans, aspiring artists, you don't want to miss. There's a two-day web course coming up. With the Stan Winston School of Character Arts, it's going to be hosted by none other than Terry Wolfinger. Mark your calendar. It's going to be November 3rd and 10th from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Aspiring artists don't want to miss this. For further information and details, please check out stanwinstonschool.com. That's all one word, just as it sounds. stanwinstonschool.com, the 3rd of November and the 10th. Hosted by none other than the original game fan, the OG, Terry Wolfinger. Wow. That's exciting. <laughs> so we've got no, no, there, I mean, yeah, that sounds like so like like uh not actually exciting, but that is very cool. Yeah, so I it's I think it's gonna be it's gonna be great for up and coming artists. It's gonna be a something great that they'll want to check out. Especially having seen his recent work, his new work. Um, he's still, he, one day I know he would like to revisit his past, his original works. Uh, he does a lot of shows and I think one day we will see him revisit, uh, the realm of gaming, um, and, and come full circle with some new modernized art. So, um, yeah, no, I mean like, like I, when, when I look at his stuff now, it's, it's so 
different than kind of the stuff he was doing. I mean, it's I can still see like his influence there, right? But there's definitely like it's it's always interesting to see kind of how how and I don't know if this is really a fair comment, and we can talk to him about it. Um, I was gonna say how artists um, styles change over time, but I don't know if it's always changing styles, but also. I think there are probably different styles in an, in a person, you know, and during one point in their life, they may, be, they may be doing one style because that's what was called for, you know, like what, what he was doing for game fan is very different than what he needs to do like for stuff now, you know? Um, so maybe it's tapping into different parts of your creativity uh, and that kind of affects your art style. Um, but also may, maybe it is a case of just like kind of, you know, I mean, because people's tastes change. And I, I, if I look at, you know, websites I've built over time, you can see how kind of my opinions on what good design was changed, um, both from external influences, but also internal kind of thought about what I, where I wanted to go. So it's, it's really interesting to see kind of the stuff he's doing now, knowing what he did uh, back in the day for game time. Well, I will say this, you know, I could go through and run through and answer those questions, but, uh, that's not my place. Uh, would definitely want to have him do that. And I, he's, he, I can tell you, he's a man that has the patience of a saint because with all of the line of questioning that I've, that I've asked him on the side uh, from, you know, from person to person as a friend outside of quote work, um, it's amazing that he hasn't hanged himself from the ceiling from, <laughs> <laughs> because whatever question you can think of, whether it be artistically or behind the scenes or whether it be changing up his style, the progression, you know, what, what, how it came about, you know, he has been kind enough to take the time and explain it to me, make me understand certain things uh, because I was kind of one dimensional in, in my eyes for art. I personally have absolutely zero artistic talent, which is, which is very sad because I love, I love collecting art books, looking at different art styles and it's uh uh, I'm just terrible. So he's, a, I'm so, I'm know. so bad at art. I can't even draw a bath. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. But, you know, I will say, you know, some people have said I have a good eye for art. It's just that I don't have it personally. But, uh, speaking of Terry, he's mm -hmm. a man that does have the talent and, uh, you know, he's put in the hours and the practice. So, so look forward to that. So, you know, GVGP, we've been away for uh, close to 60 days, but, uh, we haven't been sitting back quietly. We've been working on stuff behind the scenes, uh, trying to iron out maybe a more solidified schedule. Uh, as we've said in the past, our goal is still to do uh, at least one episode a month. There may be some exceptions in the next couple months with a couple special episodes. But as we enter 2015, look out for us at least once a month. Uh, we want to thank you for your support. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, we've gotten some comments on our episodes. It's been more, certainly more positive than negative. I dare say I haven't seen any negative and it's still a pleasure for me to be on this uh, network of podcasts. Pleasure to be recording with Shidoshi, uh, for taking the time out of his busy schedule and making things work. And it's a pleasure for me to break my computer on the show live. Like so far, at least my trackpad is now dead. Is it really? Yeah. Yep, my trackpad is totally dead. So that's fun. Do you think it might have you uh, ever had this happen in the past? Do you think it may be able to quote dry out? Um, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm wondering. I don't see any smoke coming up out of it as of this point. But I, I did spill quite a bit of water on really? it. Really? Um, through my own stupidity. But 
yeah, so we'll 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 continue on. And see well, we can we maybe go. do a fundraiser right here on uh, GVGP yeah. for some donations. <laughs> oh, that's that's. Hey, with some of the stuff I've seen I going on it, in the cosplay world, and I, and I'm not mentioning any names, I've seen some stuff going on out there. Uh, hey. I'm going to kickstart my computer. Yeah, it would be... Uh, it, it, Actually, I don't think that works. I think, I think a Patreon can work, but I don't think I, don't think I can kickstart it because I have to actually make something. Hmm. Well, I guess we're making the podcast. That'd be well, really well, of course. scummy. We're, we're music to their ears. Yes. Um, speaking of uh, music to my ears, that music being horrible, uh, Evil Within, you mentioned it before. I've put some good time into it. Uh, we've talked about it in private uh, in recent days. As of today, today we have not discussed it. So I am approximately seven hours in. I'm which 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 which, which could mean you're on like chapter, chapter two of this. <laughs> I believe. I from spent what... like I spent like five hours today. I got through a chapter and a half. I'm probably realistically thirty-five to a maximum of forty percent done with the game. What did you say chapter you're on? Six. Six? Oh. Um, I'm, what I'm six probably more like 30, 35. I'm probably about 35% done going off a number I heard elsewhere. Right. There was a spot last night, uh, and this will be spoiler free because I'm not going to get into specifics. I was at a spot last night that I knew I had to finish because it was a spot where if I didn't finish it and I let it go, it would have been the kiss of death for me where I may not have had the drive to mm. move on. Now, that's not actually not saying it was bad or the game is bad. It was just knowing myself that I needed to get this out of my system, have, knowing the layout of this particular area where I knew it like the back of my hand. Because if I went a few days or like next weekend after my work schedule and getting back into it, I may have lost the motivation having not remembered the layout and how to I'm trying to think of what you're talking about? It's the same battle I discussed. It was the battle. Oh, I, the the, the follow up, right? Yeah, and I tell you what, it we got so yeah. bad that oh, it got so that, bad that I went online to watch a video, and I didn't I didn't look ahead. I literally just looked at the sequence to make sure what I doing what I was doing was correct, which it was. Yeah, and it mm -hmm. literally came down to what we'll call one extra swipe. Like literally, I must have died twenty or thirty times. Having been within the grasp of getting past this moment, like one strike away, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. And then I went through it again. It's like, let me put it to you this way it's one of those things in gaming where if I popped on the system right now and did that sequence again, I could do it on my first crack. Yeah. Or it might take but me another the, 70 tries. It's, um, I think the problem with that one is it's, it can, I think it can be really hard to, realize what you're supposed to be doing yes. and until you realize that um because I, I i heard of somebody who was on it like for an hour trying to figure out what to do well like yeah i'll meet you halfway i knew what I, I knew what to do but it took me an hour yeah and oh um okay so so you did you okay did you beat that battle yeah i mean honestly i'm not kidding you i knew i had to do that last night because if i didn't right that was the kiss of death i guess i mean i mean did you did you really beat it or did you kind of beat it because there, there's two ways it can end uh, well i didn't die and i used every damn 
tool at my disposal throughout that area and okay uh, did you did you did you end that segment with the thing you were fighting being dead to the best of my by 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 your own hands uh no because i dare say the last sequence of your options of how to attack it my last sequence had it going into a vat of xyz Now I'm curious if we're talking about the same thing. It's got to be. I don't remember the VAT. Well, I'm, I'm trying to be elusive with my terminology is not right. to spoil. It's in, okay, in, the, I, in, I the, guess I, in the flaming, the fire, the lava, or whatever it is. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So, so it, it didn't die in a cutscene. Because okay, here, here, I guess here's here's what I'm getting at, and and for, for people who haven't played, they're like, what the hell are they talking about? Um, you can either actually legitimately kill that monster, or you can have the game kill it for you. Well, I, I was pro- I, I was under the impression that I did it because okay. every other time I did, I was wound up dead. So because there, it's what I would have called a quote clean run. Okay, because yes, because in in that final area that you're in, once you once you do all the things in that area, you can actually leave that area without having killed it. Oh, really? No. And then because and spoiler alert for and people aren't going to be able to put this together. Wait a minute. I'm confident I beat it because it reminded me of Devil May Cry where, you know, in DMC where you have the souls on the door and they don't leave until you fulfill a certain task. All right, hang on one second. Hang on yeah. one second. Just say anything for like 30 seconds. Yeah, so uh, it, it is now a tea time as we try to figure out what's most confusing, the era of Sega add-ons. I have this little paper here. Or... <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, never mind. Never mind. We're talking about different things. Well, we are. Yeah. Now, I'm hoping, were no. you talking about something further back in the game that I'd already done, or are you talking ahead of me? I'm talking ahead of you. Wow. Because you mentioned something. You, you, you said you were referring back to something we talked about before. Yeah, I mean, specifically what I'm discussing is Chapter 5. Um, yes. But you didn't fight that thing again in Chapter 6. I'm not at that point, at least in Chapter 6. What I've experienced in Chapter 6, I felt like I got transported into Resident Evil 4. Right. This is what I, I got. This is what I got transported into. On chapter six, I got transported into Resident Evil Four, and the gentleman <laughs> with me came out of House of the Dead. Yes. No. The the thing you fought in chapter five, uh, you fight again. Oh no! And it's it's way worse. You've got to be kidding me. Way worse. What? You you don't you don't even and I'm okay we'll, we'll get past this this weirdness in a second people I'm not, for like all of like three listeners who have actually, have actually played Evil Within, um you don't even know what you're in for with that character from the fight you had with it before you have no idea what you are in for with that character it and the problem is since I've already kind of spoiled it for you yeah I mean I'm not gonna lose I'm not gonna cry over it I mean I'm just shocked right now. So you can you can you can completely beat that character or you cannot beat that character. And the problem is the game glitched for me so that when I put out all the effort and all the ammo to beat that character, the game glitched and I could not proceed. Really? 
it, it got me stuck. So I went back and spent all the time to finally beat it again properly, went forward again, and once again I could not proceed. What? So I had I had to not beat that character. And I tell you, this may sound like a negative take right now for listeners, but I actually had a lot of positive things to say about this title, but that's kind of uh Well yeah, so so let's let's, let's talk about it in a way that people will actually appreciate and not be weird. Um non-spoilery randomness um so i mean are are you are you actually enjoying it uh yeah definitely i mean definitely more yes than no i mean uh yes a uh, quick answer yeah I, i'm enjoying it i i think i'm i'm really curious to see what your opinion is going to be when you're at the part i'm at which is i'm basically on the next to last stage um because when i first started you must be gangbusters I, ahead of me then. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm, way, I'm way ahead. Yeah. Um, when I first started, I hated the game because I think the first chapter was horrible. Oh, um, let me th- really? Yeah, because it, 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 it sets up nothing for you. You don't know who the characters are. You don't know what's going on. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll give you that. I, it, yeah. it throws you right away into a really annoying stealth segment, which I hate. I hate stealth in games that aren't stealth games. Right, if it's not Metal Gear or Splinter Cell yeah. or whatever. Yeah, like I always hate that, and and they throw you into that right away as your very first encounter. Um, the it's just it's I, I I just I did not like anything about it. As the game went on, I I kind of changed my mind because I'm like, okay, this is this is actually kind of fun, and I still don't understand what's going on. But but one of the cool things I thought was. Every every chapter, like the game, does something different. You know, you're not like always in the exact same location. You're you're at different locations. There's different kind of themes. Um, there'll be a little different gimmicks in in a lot of the stages and everything. And so I appreciated all of that. But and I know you've run into this on some level. The the part I'm at now, there's just so many ways you can be insta killed by things. That is true. Like even if for clarification for listeners, you could have a pretty much a full life bar and yes. there's like what I call a gimme. Like there's certain animations, like there's certain animations, you know, once you get it, you're done. As a matter of fact, you know, this is interesting. The point you bring up made me think of a concept that I don't think has been in games before. Stop me if I'm wrong. The way this game works is that if I take too many hits in a segment that I know I should get a cleaner run on or I know I could do better, like whether it be laziest or just lazy or just being off, I'll just stand there till I die because yep. I know I can get a and, cleaner run. So which made me think yep. of, you know what they should add into certain survival horror games like this? They should add in a suicide option. I can see why you would say that, but I think my argument would be the game shouldn't be like that in the first place. Yes and no. Um, the the deal breakers for me in gaming are, like you said, a glitch. So a glitch would be a deal breaker. You should never die due to perspective or the camera killing you. You should only die due to lack of skill. And with a game like this, the excuse I can make, which may not be relevant anymore... The Evil Within asks of one to kind of memorize certain sequences or learn yeah. certain patterns through mm-hmm. trial and error. Yep. Which is the the pass I'll give you on that is very old school. But 
it's very old school. The argument old school old schoolers can make is that well the reason that was in place years ago was to stretch out the length of a game due to restrictions yep. or the lack of what could be accomplished technologically. Yep. But I would say I'm more forgiving of that from like a contra perspective than camera perspective or glitching killing you. Those are two those two things are the unforgivable because that's not the player's fault that's development fault i would i would counter that and and i know some people out there probably think this game is like overhyped to death but i would counter that with 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 dark souls and demon souls and one of the many things i love about those, those games is i feel like those are games where as long as you are a smart player you can um, you can figure out what you have to do at any given moment. Um, or there will be little things around that will give you warning as to what you're about to experience. And it's not, it's not like saying, hey, there's a big rock that's going to fall on your head. You know, <laughs> look out. But if, if you are a careful player and all of a sudden you're, you're kind of like walking around the corner and you look, look up the stairs... Oh, there's a guy standing up there with a big rock. I bet he's going to push it down at me. And so you can be prepared for that. I feel like Evil Within um, lets you so many times gives you no preparation. And it literally is like I, the way I explain it is it's, it's beating your head against a wall until you've done it enough times that you found where the weak point is. <laughs> Like that's what this game is, and it's it's and I like the part I'm at. I was playing today. I, I I literally seriously I played the game for like at least five hours, and I got through a chapter and a half. Wow! Because I got to a point where what you just said. So many times I'm like, you know what? At this at this at this stage, it's it's better for me just to stand here and let them kill me and restart, than it is for me to go on because of the one little screw up. And I was at a part of the, the game where it really is this kind of um, long list. It's almost like the, the in a way, like the, the, the Tekken combo, you know, like you have to remember. That's true. You got to remember that string or button, sequence to then survive. These, then these, and then this, 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 and then this. And then if you don't get it perfect, like you're not getting, you're not, you know, you're not accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish. And so just, I got to a point where I, I just let myself die over and over and over again. And then you have, enemies with um the one hit kill thing it, it it's oh i there there's there's moments in this game that i really like there's parts that i really like but there's also just so many frustrations and now let me give you another example um there's a part and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say much about what it is so that i don't spoil it for you but there's a part where there were two enemies uh across the distance from me okay Okay, they're basically the exact same kind of enemy, just the two regular little guy things. And I had a sniper rifle, and on the ground are sniper bullets. Now, the only difference between the two guys is one of them's just walking around, and the other guy's standing next to a lever. Okay. Okay? So what happens if I do nothing is you walk forward... The guy standing near the lever sees you, he yells, he pulls the lever down, enemies attack you. Okay. Exact same guys, exact same distance away from me. I can shoot and kill the one guy just walking around. 
but the guy standing next to the lever, I can't kill. Because that's like an automatic setup by the game that doesn't want you to not right. kill. Wow, that is kind of that's that's kind of a no no. But the carrot, the the monster is there. He's standing there. I can see him. He is the exact same distance away from me as the other guy is. He is the exact same type of enemy as the other guy is. He is out in the open. Let me – okay, look. Then this might be a spoiler. Let me preface this. Okay. I'm going to mention a character that can be seen in pretty much all the trailers so far. Okay. So I'm going to mention the chainsaw guy. Yeah. Now, from a video game perspective, there's a part with the – we'll call him the chainsaw guy where um, there was a part where I saw him at a certain distance from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I threw something at him because I'm like, you know what? I wonder if where they have him right now is kind of for show. And right. I bet there's no reaction when I do what I'm going to do. And to my surprise, I threw X item down there and it had an effect. So now before I continue that story, that's interesting what you say with the sniper rifle because after what I experienced with that character, you would think, oh, well, there's no – there's going to be some sort of effect. So them locking you out of that is kind of, I can't believe that. And then secondly, back on the chainsaw guy, if you, now that was from a video game perspective, kind of testing out what you can do or what has a reaction from a logistics Mm -hmm. standpoint, why in the world would I ever do what I did to chainsaw guy? If this was real life, instead of me just getting my ass out of there. Well, I mean, because if, 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 (laughs) If you're in the situation you were in that, that's gone on so far in this game, my thinking would definitely be that dude's chained up. I'm above. I'm up out of his way. Um, I'm going to kill him because there's quite a possibility he's going to break out and attack me. You know. So I I would I would, but I guess my argument is something you just touched upon is the fact of. Like there's a lot of inconsistency. Here's because... one. Here, spoiler uh, for those listening. Fast forward approximately twenty seconds. The item you get from Chainsaw Guy after that sequence. Don't you think logically you should keep that as your basic melee weapon? Even though that would, but that would destroy the game though. At the same time, almost like Doom. Yeah, um, and I think that's part of the bigger beef I have with this. Like, okay, the guy's here next to the lever, right? You might argue, okay, well. The game needs him to come down and an open thing. But the reality is the game doesn't need him to do that. They could have the option of having either way. And if they really wanted him to do that, then why not like hide him up out of the way and he jumps down once he sees me, you know, when it's too late or has there's a wall between me and him. It's like inconsistency because right after that section, the part where I have to defend myself and there were times when I was point blank pointing my gun at somebody and I shot at them and it did no damage whatsoever. Really? So like like the game's idea of when enemies are safe versus when enemies should be able to be hit like is off at times too. Hmm. I mean... Uh... And, it, and it really is inconsistent because like there's another part, which I'm not going to spoil, spoil, but... Um, there's another part where these enemies are attacking somebody and from a far away distance, I can actually kill some of them. So like it goes back and forth between when you can do things, when you can't do things. And that inconsistency is one of the things that bugs me about it. Mm, That's very unfortunate because, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want you to lose your train of thought. Keep going. No, I just, I, um, 
I'm gonna have a hard time reviewing this because I don't know like like there are there are some really cool things about it and the the shame is the later stages actually are way more interesting to me but they're just so brutally hard really it gets that uh, challenging huh to a point that I I I think it's unfair a lot of the time maybe not a, I don't know if a lot's fair but a great amount of the time i think it's an unfair game just because like i mean have you run into any of the guys with um and i don't know how i'm going to cut this so people listening might have heard a really weird cut there uh so if you did it i said something that wasn't wasn't sure are we back real time talking normal now yeah, yeah, okay. sure, that's fine. Yeah, let's, let's, let's so I had a friend playing. Yeah, friend playing on easy, and, and it is quite challenging from my experience um, so far. So, have you run into any of the guys with dynamite? Yes. Um, there's a number of times I had where because a group of enemies comes in, and I'm I'm aiming at somebody and firing on them, and somebody else is off on another side has dynamite and threw it at me, and there's no warning to me that that's there. I'm going to say yes. And I don't know it's there until I see my body blowing up. <laughs> like, that's one of just many, many examples of where, like, I think the game just does not give you much of a chance or it just has so many instant kills, at least at least for a good majority until you've really gotten your life up to, to where you can take a hit or two. The the game is a real eye-opener. I'm, I'm Once again, I'm going to be wishy-washy. I'm going to go part your way and then say something else. I'm going to say, you know, some of those design-wise are, are, are it's, it's a tough pill to swallow in 2014 with the progression of games, whether one feels it's for better or worse. Uh, at the same time, this game is also a reminder that we have our hand held so much in other games. That's not covering up for flaws, inconsistencies, or, uh, you know, other anomalies that are present. I'm not brushing over that. Uh, I'm saying this from a perspective of without putting a number on it. I'm just speaking in terms of general uh, feeling and design in that. This is a reminder that there are so many games we're so used to automatic health replenishment we're so used to having the hours exactly of where to go. Sure. So it's, you know, not sticking up for it completely. Um, but let me put it I'll, – I'll say this. A game that had many hardcore elements in a 3D environment that I felt kind of stuck to hardcore, but I would still argue – in my book, I actually think the game was excellent even though I don't talk about it as much. I'm going to say Ninja Gaiden Sigma mm-hmm. because there are some things – I mean the game is older now. I'll give this away. I don't think it's that big of a spoiler. Like, you know, one of the <laughs> – the things that makes me laugh in that game, going back to old school, is at the end of the game, you go through all the bosses again. And as a matter of fact, there's another game. Uh, the, I think the original Bayonetta does that. But now I don't want to put the jinx, the jinxeroo on uh, Evil Within. God, I hope that doesn't happen in this game. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not. Oh, Lord, I hope not, because I will, I will shoot myself. Um, I, I do know people who who have literally gotten so chapter fourteen is the next off chapter. I love you people today who who said they put the game down and just quit in the middle of chapter fourteen. Really? Because they they just couldn't take it. Um, I I think the one of the problems I have, and this is a, a problem I think is that's um, with a lot of horror games these days, is that they build on kind of two things. That's frustration and annoyance. Like like enemies will either frustrate you or they'll annoy you. And 
I think that too often is something that's used for the idea of how to make something scary or threatening. And I, I just, I, I don't like that. I mean, like, I know there were the two recent first-person horror games, like, uh, was it Out, Outcast? Or Outlast. Outlast. Outlast, and then the other one, Daylight. Um, and both those were the same way. I think that, like, they made things either frustrated, frustrating or annoying, and that's part of how they brought challenge into the horror. And I, I hate that. And I think, I think The Evil Within does that too often, where it's, okay, we're going to have a lot of enemies that one hit kill you. This is going to be scary. That's not what makes it scary, you know. Um, There's the, a the, the difference between, like, again, I, I hate to keep going back to it, but I do because I think it's just such an amazing series and does so many things right, the Souls games. The Souls games are very scary and they're very threatening. Um, but they're not that way just because there's a bunch of one-hit kill monsters. They're that way because these are things, These there are enemies that are legitimately threatening to you and that even as a good player, given the opportunity to know the, the stakes, um, the challenge they provide requires a certain amount of skill from you. You know, it's like... I, I, it's not quite the same thing, but, you know, having played Bayonetta 2 recently, <clears throat> part of me was at a point, I'm like, man, this is kind of an easy game. Ooh. But it's not an easy game. What it is is I think getting from beginning to middle to end is not hard. I think what the game is is that it wants you to do that with style and right. with getting good, good medals on every stage. You know, so just getting from the beginning to the end, like, isn't the challenge of the game. That's not the, that's not the point. Well, I'm sure the challenge has to be there in terms of platinuming it, which I've never done because I, I remember when um, they did a limited edition hardcover book out of the UK by Future Press, which I was blessed to get one of. And coinciding with that is you could view videos online. And I got to tell you something. I actually went through that game twice. I went through it on PS3 and 360, respectively. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So you're talking about the first yeah, one, Yeah, yeah, right? my, my bad. Which, by the way, for our listeners with the Wii U, not only will uh, on the 24th will Bayonetta 2 be coming to Wii U, you also get the original Bayonetta, so this is actually relevant. Uh, but, okay, so how, how, like, so currently Bayonetta on PS3 is, like, stupidly cheap. How bad is that version? If you've never played Bayonetta and and you want to experience it and you only own a PS3, I still say definite buy. I actually I think I think I missed I think I missed the sale. I think it's not over. I I beat my first experience with Bayonetta was the PlayStation 3 version as I imported it in October of 09, I believe. As many know, PS3 is not region locked, so that's why I did not do the 360 import. This was a follow-up to your question on uh, for those as to how, quote, bad the PS3 version is, uh, if it's worth it, etc. Um, long story short, it's worth it. Since then, there was a pseudo patch where one could install the data to the system to improve load times. Doesn't do much to improve frame rate or other anomalies with that version that was handled by Sega at the time and not Platinum Games themselves. Right. Uh, my first worry, I think, upon getting Bayonetta on PS3 wasn't so much the... Uh, the visual fidelity, it was that, was the game really that good? Because having been a long time Devil May Cry 1 fan, 
Um, I couldn't believe that a game would score so highly overseas, especially with controversies over the publication that those scores came from. And I got to tell you, when I put that game in, the intro, I was hooked from the intro segment alone. When I say <laughs> intro, I'm talking the actual cutscene mm-hmm. and the comedy that was uh, integrated. And I'm not even a big comedy guy. And I usually, excuse me, I usually don't even like comedy in my games. But that just really struck a, a hit a home run with me. And from there I was hooked. And the more I played the game, uh, after having played the demo that was available and being pleased with it but not expecting the world, I couldn't believe how good that game was. So for that aspect of the experience and to, to play it, if you only have a PS3, I would say it's worth it. Uh, the 360, as we all know, like this is another weird thing, you know. People, especially today, ironically, people love to do frame rate comparisons, resolution comparisons. I'm going to shoot it straight with you right now. Does that stuff make a difference to an extent? Yes. But at the end of the day, if we're not talking huge frame rate dips or game-breaking stuff, I mean, really, that doesn't matter. It always comes down to the gameplay and how much fun you're having, and Bayonetta offers that. Um, but I will admit, this was one of the few games outside of fighting games, which are more, uh, you know, more demanding in terms of precision and lag. You will notice a difference. Now, that doesn't mean that the PS3, it's a game breaker. You shouldn't have it. But I will admit that the 360 version looked, looked cleaner and you could actually notice some of the difference uh, in the timing of the combos because in some ways, funnily, it is akin to that of a fighting game. Right. Or, or what I like to say, it has a Virtua Fighter feel to it mixed in a Devil May Cry world. So I do have to give kudos points to the 360 version. It truly was superior. This wasn't one of those things where you go online today and you're looking at a 900p versus 1080p console comparison where you're like, you know what, who the hell's going to notice this? This was something that was warranted and you could tell a difference. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, I played on 360, and I'm like, I, I just, well, I was thinking about a Wii U, but now I might be getting a new computer instead. Um, I, I, I think if anything, I would just get the both games on the Wii U and have that as my kind of main copy. If I didn't have the Xbox 360 version anymore, um, but you know, I was also going to say and. I think part of my problem with Evil Within is I'm playing it right after I just beat Bayonetta 2. And that's kind of like when you're talking about action games, it's kind of like going out to a restaurant and getting a really, really good pizza. And then the next day buying one of those, like, you know, those those Tostino $1 pizzas. <laughs> that's a little harsh, but I knew you were going to make yeah, it comparison. Right? Little, you little you little went harsh. from... But, you went from 100% pure refinement in one genre that they perfected to to one that, you know, kind of stumbled, had some potholes and had some, you know, you know, moments of greatness mixed with a lot of uh, you know, uh, inconsistencies yeah. and letdowns. It's I mean like like it's it's kind of like if you like Japanese RPGs and you play like Persona 4 and then anything you go to after that it can be really hard to live up to, you know. So I think that's part of the problem is I I just spent my so much of my time playing this absolutely amazing, just so fluid, such 
precision, so perfected action game to Evil Within, um, it's it's tough. You know, you have to kind of like reset your mindset on a lot of things. Hmm. Well, uh, I'll say this in closing statement on the Evil Within before we move into our main topic here. I will say without putting numbers on it, if you know if it was a yay or nay, uh, okay. For survival horror fans, I'm going to say a yay to at least experience it. Maybe not at the full $60 price tag, but I think it's something that should definitely be checked out. I would say the only survival horror fans that should stay away are the ones that are so dead set on their um, their experience has to be either like an old school Silent Hill or something reminiscent of the PT demo or where the atmosphere is the is really the bulk of the experience this game does offer atmosphere but if if you're looking for that true horror I don't think you're going to get that out of the evil within you're going to get in my opinion more of those resident evil-esque jump scares there will be times from an artistic perspective where you will feel like silent hill you will experience moments of The Last of Us, in my opinion, and then there will be a whole lot of moments where you get pulled out of that and go, "Oh, wait a minute! This is Resident Evil Four. Well, let, let, let's let's be let's be perfectly honest. This is Resident Evil Four Two. This is absolutely Resident Evil Four Two. Uh, I'm I'm not I, I'm hesitant. I'm not disputing that. I I hesitate because I feel like with this with, is... with crappier characters. You're talking the main cast. I'm talking the yeah the the entire cast. I, I mean, because I don't I don't think the enemy I don't think the overall character design is disappointing. I feel there's a lot of stereotypical like I made that kind of joke earlier. I think the gentleman's name is Joseph in the suit with the glasses. Joseph looks like he came out of House of the Dead. Right. But but today's but 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 no, know, no wait wait let me ask you okay all right who. Who is Leon S. Kennedy? Who is who is Leon? Like just 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 let's let's play this game. Like so, so with, without without saying this, this is a, the if you ever watch the Red Letter Media uh, for the Star Wars prequel reviews, um, they ask like like without saying their profession or what they look like, tell me who Leon is. In the Evil Within? No 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 no. In Resident Evil Four. What do you mean? Am I supposed to describe him? Yeah. So without telling me what his profession is or without telling me what he looks like, tell me what kind of character Leon is. Give me – you go first. You give me no, 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 no. Because I, 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 I know what I'm talking about. I mean like I, I, know, I know what I'm trying to – the point I'm trying to make. So I want you to explain to me like when you think of Leon what as a character, what do you think of Leon? And how would you if, – if somebody had never played Resident Evil – and you want to explain to somebody who Leon is as a character, but you can't say what his profession is. He's a he's a at this point he's a you know special agent, or what he looks like, big coat with the fur neck and and short hair. And right. Everything. Yeah. So like you know I I can't. Yeah. I, I would have said like the blonde. You know the yeah. The... So 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 as as a character as a person, how do you explain him to somebody? Um. What would you say? Like, uh, what st- strong in nature, looking to 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 get X job done. Um, God, I, I'm I'm sounding so horrible at this. You know, stand. You know, wanting to uh, 
um, help others to re- you know to to take care of the task at hand or mission. Um, you know, am I, am I on the right path here? Sure, that's fine. Okay, now now describe Sebastian from The Evil Within. <laughs> So, yeah, I can give you a video game answer, but not I, – I can legitimately give you a gamey answer is what I'll call it, but I see what you're saying. Like if I didn't have certain comparisons that I could make to other characters or games or why I feel certain things are the way they are in the video game world, it would be rather tough to describe him outside of that. I mean Sebastian to me feels like one of the – main non-playable characters from Resident Evil 4. Uh, Sebastian Castellano, I believe. Like We could even go as far as to say he's you know more akin to the, the Latin male character in terms of his style and look. Mm-hmm. And voice acting-wise, it's interesting because we're at a stage in gaming where voice acting has become a big part of it. And I'm not saying it always has to be AAA, but... After you play something like The Last of Us, which really drives home that the expression or acting in a game can hit home as strongly as a grade A Hollywood movie, you're not going to get that in The Evil Within. Now, you don't get something that's terrible either, but you get something that's weird like it came out of the latter part of the 90s or early 2000s. Sebastian also comes across... Uh, maybe not as full of life as uh, Leon, who you know isn't going to be remembered for his, uh, you know, performance in game. He comes across as more—I uh, don't want to say monotone, but more like neutral. And I don't know if that's a victim of old school Japanese development. I don't know if it's the excuse of horror movies aren't always meant to have a acting. Uh, they're based off of a genre of movie that's not known for its acting. Or is that just, a, you know, like a, an old school, just a an element of yesteryear that got implemented into this game because of the producer or designer behind it? Yeah. I mean, is that accurate? Yeah. And I mean, and a, I don't know. I, I, I just I just feel like. And like I, when I play this game, it's weird being having played, you know, like you having played so much stuff. It's weird for me. Like I'm so accepting of it because I remember living through that progression in gaming. Like, so when I play it, it's almost a trip back for me in, in a way, which I'm not fully against, but that's because I remember it. Someone who's younger getting into the gaming medium who may be into horror or learning about that and, and giving this game a shot. Like if they're going from only having played the last of us to this, they won't have as many reference points for us and they won't, and they certainly won't be as rosy or rose tinted glasses for me. I, I, I think, you know, I think part of it's this, um, and we'll get past this so we can get onto our main topic, but, uh, when Resident Evil Six came out, it, there was very a lot of very very mixed opinions, and part of the conversation that was going on was, you know, why can't you guys go back to what Resident Evil Four was? You know, like why can't you go back to what that game was and what Resident Evil was back at that point? And I feel like the Evil Within really goes back to a lot of the mentalities and gameplay aesthetics that were around for Resident Evil Four. And what I realized is I don't know that I want to go back 
anymore. Like I, I think it's you're talking t- to RE4 era. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those kind of be careful what you wish for, because I thought I wanted to go back to that kind of stuff, and I thought I wanted a game like that again, but I don't, I don't know that I do. I'm going to make a butt kissing statement against that real quick. I still consider in my heart, no question, Resident Evil 4 is one of the greatest games of all time. Yeah, no, it, I, 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 I still think it's... Yeah, and I'm not saying you're not saying that, but here, here's what I think the issue... Or there's a, it's, it, here's the issue we're running into. Here's the butt kissing. Resident Evil 4 was so great, and I, I don't... I want to use the word revolutionary, but some people out there may be going, well, maybe that, that's too strong of a word. Resident Evil 4 was so evolutionary to the third-person genre... Absolutely. ...and action that it, influ- it influenced so many around it that there's a saying, it's tough to catch lightning in a bottle twice. Shinji Mikami has done it more than twice. He's He did it with the original Resident Evil, which for purists out there may be crying at home, hey, what about Alone in the Dark? But Resident Evil has remembered it, you know, and he's remembered as the godfather of the genre. So this guy caught Resident Evil in a bottle. Uh, they did Resident Evil 2, which Mikami had a hand in, which was quite different. He caught lightning in a bottle again with Resident Evil 4, which blew everyone away. And the reason that blew everyone away is, is, was because the first time you played it, the it was nonstop, one sequence after another. What the hell was coming next? You couldn't believe it. Yep. And then he even plied his craft elsewhere. And while this game won't get the recognition and won't be remembered the same for the action genre... He kind of did it again with Vanquish. So this guy certainly has the accolades and the credentials, but now the problem with the evil within is Resident Evil 4 did so much right and evolved that genre that people have now forgotten like what was taken from it or we've seen it so many times elsewhere, and it's hard to elevate to, to elevate again at that level, unfortunately. Like... You know, the question is, well, what do you do? Well, the answer is, well, these guys, that's their job. This is what they're getting paid for. There's, am I going to sit here ignorantly and say, we've exhausted, the industry has exhausted everything that can be done with the genre? Well, I can't say that because that would be a stupid statement and you'll be proven wrong in X amount of time. But, but really, the stumbling block until then is really that question. What's left? What, what can he do to do it again? Well, and I think I think one of the things that made RE4 so good was instead of saying, um, how do we continue what we've been doing with Resident Evil? The question was, how do we bring in new ideas and refresh the entire franchise? You know, that's what Resident Evil 4 was as good as it was because it it allowed itself to throw away a lot of the old baggage from the Resident Evil series before that. And I think the problem with Evil Within is it's it's falling into the, that the trap of just trying to do the next step of what was being done instead of really thinking in 2014 or, or 2013, whenever the development started, you know. Um, uh, at this point, how do we make a new kind of horror game? Um, because, I mean, you know, Resident Evil 4 still had a, a lot of uh, callbacks to the older series. It, it still, like, you know, respected what had come before it. But I think his idea was, you know what, I want to make a, 
I want to make an old school Resident Evil 4 style horror game, and I don't think that's what he should have done. I think he should have tried to push forward and do something really unique with the genre. And um, again, as I've said previously in different places, as scared as I am of what Kojima is going to do with Silent Hill, I'm also very interested to see because I can't predict what that game's going to be. I have no idea what Silent Hills is going to be as a game. And that to me is exciting because that gives us a chance to have maybe a new evolution in, in horror games. I'm going to make a, I know I keep saying I'm going to end this, but this isn't specifically an evil within. This is more in the industry. I feel what I'm about to say is another X factor of sorts. Okay. Let's look at this like a sports or, um, Okay, so I just got done praising Mikami's accolades, right? Like, look at the, this guy. He's like, what, his mid-40s now or whatever. He's had a, he's quite, had quite a career. For someone to get to, to achieve what he's done or in the industry, to, to get one ace title is, is a blessing in and of it itself. We can look at guys like, look at Yuji Naka. Did, did, worked on Sonic the Hedgehog, was a prominent figure at Sega, worked on everything from Knights to Burning Rangers to some unique ideas. Uh, you know, broke off uh, from there. There's there's other people we could list, like, uh, what is it, like, uh, Hironobu what, Sakaguchi. Like, there's a list of people who have had careers and have accomplished X, Y, and Z over and over again. Now, if you look at it like a, whether it be a baseball player or a football player in their career where they, they come up in the ranks, uh, maybe like a, and someone that just sets records, like, uh, an A-Rod or uh, Ken Griffey Jr. or Mickey Mantle. I'm all over the place, but you get the point. Like in football, you've got, you know, the, the Joe Montana's of yesterday or the Tom Brady of today. Tom Brady, who's someone that's coming in his mid-later part of the 30s. The, the yeah, issue you know, is... You are, you are, you are losing like a majority of our audience right now. They have, but, no, but idea, here, but, they have no idea any people you're talking but, about. But here's the point. These guys accomplish, they're record setters, they, they make a name. And by the time they get Let's say they get traded to another team or bringing it back to Mikami. Mikami's been from Capcom to doing his own thing with Tango Gameworks to now being under the Zenimax banner. If you look at those as Team A to Team B to Team C, this guy has to keep reinventing himself. He's already accomplished a bunch of things. And it's like like an athlete, they're going to get to a point where they just can't like like this fruit or this orange this has been squeezed dry like this guy has proven himself and he's made a career and he may be wanting to you know he may get extra freedoms he has his resume to rely upon which is certainly deserved but now i feel like the evil within is kind of like you know like okay um I don't want to, I hate to say it like the twilight of his career or like you see moments of what made him so great. And at the same time, kind of like, you know what, there's a, a new generation, uh, you know, I, and there aren't, 
There aren't many people who can survive and continually reinvent themselves in an exception. And I hate to kiss this guy's butt on quite the episode on, on an a episode that's going to discuss Sega. You know, an exception, maybe Shigeru Miyamoto. Mm-hmm. You know, that th- I mean, this guy, I mean, good Lord, this guy's entering his 60s. And, you know, this this guy can still go, so to speak. But that's kind of how I feel about Shinji Mikami. It's like, you know, I feel bad because this guy has had quite a career. And now he's got to do it again. Well, I mean, here, here's my problem. Because and, and, it's nothing against Mikami. And let me put it into a, a, a way that I think you will definitely understand. Um, so I was a huge fan of Degeneration X in, in WWE, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and you had the different iterations where first it was Shawn Michaels and Triple H in China and Rick Rude for a little bit. And then, you know, Shawn Michaels got kicked out. And then it was, you know, X-Pac and, and the, the New Age Outlaws and whatever. Um, and I love Degeneration X. And then, and then that whole thing kind of, you know, tapered off and went away. And then years and years and years later, they're like, Oh, we're bringing Generation X back, and I was like so excited. I'm like, yeah, awesome! I mm. love, I love the X. I can't wait to see them back. <laughs> and then they come back out, and then I'm like, you know, I think like I didn't need this, you no. know, like I think that my memories of DX were were enough. And even though I thought I wanted them back, maybe I actually didn't want them back. Or sticking with wrestling. I remember how excited I was that ECW was coming back. And we, oh, all, God. we all know how that turned out. Don't, don't get me started on that. So, you know, I mean, like, I still love Shawn Michaels. I still love Triple H. I think they can still do great things on, on their own. But I don't think we need DX to come back anymore. Because at a certain point, it's just them retreading. And I was way more interested in Triple H when he then was an evolution because that was doing different things and then you know so on i it's something against mikami i just think that i think because i really do think this is him going back to resident evil 4 in a lot of ways and i don't think that's what we needed even though we thought we wanted it that's that's a good way to to put it and i I was just i'm you, you just really Got to got to bite my tongue on some things there, but uh, no, 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 no. Yeah. And, and, and let me no, no. Let, let me be fair real quick. Let me be fair real quick. Um, I I have not beaten it, and I am still putting a lot of thought into how I feel about it because I think there are a number of really good things about this game, and in some ways I do appreciate the kind of a little more old school, you know, feel to it. But I'm really mixed, and I was not expecting to be this mixed going into it. You you didn't throw me off with Mikami. You, you threw me off with your praise of Big Beak, Triple oh, H. Oh, I look there were, and, and, you know, especially as a I'm like this is so off the rails, but especially as a huge Jericho fan, I I hated Triple H for a long time because there was all right. the talk about him keeping right. Jericho down or whatever, you know. But I think I think over the course of his of his career, like, I mean, you can't you can't discount like all the good stuff he's done. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, let, let me steal this line to to with that analogy, you know, Resident Evil and, and things of that nature, in the words of Paul Heyman and the old ECW, it was a product of its time. Yep. Yeah. So, well, well, this, this is a, uh, this is quite the, the journey 
to our main topic here. How have we already gone like two hours at least in this podcast? And we haven't gotten oh, to the topic again. I, I think our fans, uh, I don't know if it's a little inside joke with us and them or if they've come to expect it by this point. But uh, uh, in all seriousness, this is a, a, a topic, uh, it's, it's near and dear to me, it's near and dear to you, and it's near and dear, I dare say, with just about every dang listener on the Morning Project Network. Now, not to be a glory hog and steal the limelight, as we get into Sega here, I'm going to do a little, uh, I've prepped a little introduction for myself, and then I'm going to hand the reins over temporarily to Shidoshi, uh, as I don't want to hog up all the airtime here. So, I'm going to start it off with this, with uh, Generic Video Game Podcast Episode 3, Entry 4, just to drive you crazy. Hmm. So... Sega. A lot comes rushing to mind upon hearing that name. Many great memories, excitement. At one time, it sparked visions of the future for gaming. Genres that had yet to be created. A company that took chances and knew no limits. They were truly the opposite of Nintendo. The yin to their yang. An unparalleled system war. Groundbreaking arcade hardware, mascots aplenty, and many of which were great. Sonic, Toe Jam and Earl, Vector Man, Bug, Echo, Joe Musashi, and more. Cool Factor, showing a side gaming had never seen before. And yet Sega also sparks memories of disappointment, jumping the gun too early, Losing focus and proper direction, bringing the games industry from a hardcore gamer's perspective to a screeching halt by altering company direction to a third party in 2001. It has been said that SNK has the most diehard and insane fan base. Nintendo has a loyal group who will go down with them to the end no matter what. The 2000s saw the mainstream success of Apple and a set of fans who will pay anything for their latest devices. But Sega may have the most passionate and divided fan base all in one lot. It's really tough to truly explain how important and great Sega was, especially to someone who didn't live through their height in the early 90s. While this may not be the most finely tuned intro, I wanted to speak from the heart and put immediate thoughts to paper. Prior to this recording of this episode... I felt I'd never 100% truly convey the right words about the importance of Sega, but I knew I could at least speak from my own perspective and my own heart and what Sega meant to me. I've chatted with many loyal Sega fans prior to this show, and they all have their own take on Sega, their own memories, and undying passion. It's incredible after all these years that Sega's height is still so fondly remembered and no other console war since the 16-bit era has had as much impact. The common denominator amongst all loyal Sega fans is, we all know, that the industry would be better if they'd never fumbled after after the success of the Sega Genesis. And um, to be clear here, this is going to be Sega consoles because we kind of had a discussion about what this podcast was going to be, our, our main topic was going to be about. And I, I think one of the initial ideas was doing it about the Saturn, 
just by itself. And then we're like, well, why don't we do a Sega podcast, period? But then our thought was, well, Sega is just way too big of a topic to cover all in one show. Um, so to kind of go back to a little bit of the Saturn idea, we're going to do the Sega consoles. And I have owned... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I'm, I'm not mis- incorrect on this. I have owned every Sega system. I have not owned every version of every Sega system. For example, um, I never had a 32X. I never had a Wonder Mega or things like that. Um, but I have owned every system. And I guess let me start with my, my story about getting into Sega hardware because I... I did not like Sega consoles at first. Mm-mm. And it wasn't anything... I don't necessarily think it was anything about Sega, period. Um, I mean, I knew of Sega from the arcades, and I, as a young child, was a huge fan of two of their games specifically, and that were those were OutRun and Space Harrier. Mm. Um, absolutely loved those games in the arcade. I was terrible at both, uh, but I, I loved them and various other, other games. But... When I so I I had you know um, some really weird like Sears system and then I had Atari twenty six hundred and you know back in these days like game games weren't anything like what they were now so you didn't have more than one system you know you had a console and I remember going to a friend's house and they had you know the Intellivision and. That was kind of cool, and they had a couple of really cool games, but they didn't have none of the games that I had in my 2600, you know. So when it came time around for 8-bit, um, every, like, the NES, there was this, and I don't even know. I mean, because thinking back, it's like it's hard for me to know where this came from because, you know, the internet didn't exist. Um, I wasn't. I don't know how many magazines I actually read, and and some magazines didn't even exist yet, like EGM didn't exist, GameFan didn't exist, you know. But there was this, like, whisper in the wind, almost, that this Nintendo console was coming out. And Nintendo didn't mean much to me, but I knew it was a new game system. And it looked cool. Um, So... I had to have a Nintendo. And again, I, I, don't, I don't know why. I don't know where that, that feeling of having to have it came from. I don't even know how I found out about it. But I found out that it was coming out. I ended up getting a, a, an NES. And because that was the mentality was you have a console, that's it. I had the NES. And one of my earliest stories with Sega, and to this day I still feel kind of guilty about this, I had a friend named Tim. And I think... I might have told some different podcasts if you listen to my other stuff, but um, so my friend Tim, he owned a Master System, and he loved the Master System. Not not like not like what we'd say to think of these days, like a hardcore fanboys or anything. It's just he had a, a Hang On, and he had some other games, and he really he truly loved those games and loved playing them, but. I wasn't satisfied with him having a master system because that was that weird console, you know, that only, only, only people who didn't have the real one, the NES owned. And (laughs) so I talked to him and talked to him and talked to him. And I, I finally convinced him and this is how far it went. He, he talked to his parents and they sold the master system this is a system he loved, games he he adored. 
he sold the system. He sold the games. So he could buy NES because I was pressuring him so much into into getting an NES. So I'm like, well, you can't not have a Nintendo. Nintendo is like the, the future. You know, that's what you have to have. You can't have the stupid little Sega thing. So not too far after that, I asked my dad to buy me a Master System for Christmas. Wow. And because I, at, at, at that point, you're starting to get into the mentality of, well, you know, I maybe could own more than one system at the same time. Um, and I had divorced parents, so it's one of those things where I could, you know, be like, hey, Dad, for Christmas, you owe me big time to get me a Master System. Uh, so he, he finally got me one. He got me one with the, uh, the, the Sega Scope, which was the 3D glasses, which still to this day, like, blows my mind because these 3D glasses were amazing for the time, and it would take so much longer for us to have 3D again in our games. Um, so I get this Master System, and I'm like, you know what? This is a pretty cool system, so I ended up really loving it. And I feel so bad for that because poor Tim, who had his, his hang-on and had other games and who he, that he loved... I talked him into selling them for NES, and then I got switched over to the Sega side. Did he like see? Did he witness this, or did he hate your guts after that? Or? No, at that point, I think I think we weren't hanging out as much anymore. Wow! So like, I got away with it. Um, but I mean, I, as far as I remember, he he enjoyed the NES too. But right, I was like, man, I was a real dick to that kid <laughs> to get him to sell. So that was my first experience. And you know, before I really get into the, the, the math system, I'll let you talk. But um. I mean, I was there. Like that was that was the first Sega console that existed in America. I got it, and so to this day, I still have these really like strong emotions for it. Well, uh, somewhat similar boat. Uh, my first experience with the Sega uh, console was the Master System, and the only thing that's a little foggy in my memory is that, you know I want to say I had the NES first, but and this is crazy. I may have had them either both at the same time or I went back and forth where I had NES, got a Master System, and then back to the NES. Now, this is a little bit interesting now looking back as an adult versus a child then because, well, first off, memory of the system was good. Let's get that out of the way. I, I thought the games were colorful. I thought they had a good look to it. I even speculated to myself I thought they even looked better than some of the NES titles, as we'll find out, as we found out years later. The powerful, or the, excuse me, the hardware was actually more powerful. It was superior to NES. I think one of the issues I ran into with the Sega Master System, <coughs> excuse me, was actually very similar to the same one I ran into with the Turbo Graphics in that. I enjoyed both consoles a lot and had a good amount of games, but I could never understand why there weren't more games or right. more support. Right. Fast forward again to present day through history lessons and gaming, you learn that Nintendo kind of had a stranglehold on third parties or if they put certain titles on certain system that they'd kind of get bla you know blacklisted, you know, the 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 partnerships in place over here were much different than overseas in a time where, it, I mean, hell, I mean, Japan might as well be another planet to me at that time. I couldn't tell you, you know what I mean? This is having no knowledge of any of this. So getting back on topic to the master system, you know, it was one of those things where I enjoyed the system. Uh, I enjoyed the some of those games that even though young, I remember playing in the arcades. Um, and I'll just make a quick note. You know, I, re I have some memories of playing everything from Alex Kidd 
to I remember losing my mind after seeing the graphics on Rocky, uh, even though the game didn't really play that well. Uh, I remember playing Zillion, which was one of my first experiences with characters that had that really old school, that traditional old school anime look. Uh, how funny things work out. Uh, Black Belt, which uh, I enjoyed, which I find so funny because that was technically my first experience with Fist of the North Star. And uh, I'd say which, another... Which, which is, it's, it's funny because you say that because um, like Zillion... A zillion would end up becoming one of the early anime titles that I got into when like, I was getting into anime, and I'm I'm pretty sure I played the zillion games first, um, but it was it was that was like crazy like when I when I realized the connection between those two kind of like you don't know black belt is actually fist and north star, um, and then as soon as you learn of that older you you see it right away don't you right yeah De- oh definitely you know. Um, and I would say one of probably my most, maybe my height of excitement with the system was probably when Space Harrier came home and I believe it was on the first four megabit cartridge and I couldn't believe that. Mm. That was when I was still living in New York, as I've alluded to in the past, discussing some of the, uh, that on the show previously, having lived there, been born there, which, uh, this actually kind of wraps back around to our little gaming, uh, uh, topic here and that I never realized growing up that New York was kind of the first test center hmm. for the NES. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, never there knew was, that. Because, yeah, I mean, because I've had some arguments with one of my other podcast co-hosts because um, when I, to, to go to the enemy for a minute, uh, when I first <laughs> got my NES, uh, Super Mario Brothers wasn't available to me. So I remember the day that Super Mario Brothers came out. Like it, w- it was not there from day one. There's been some arguments over like if it was and if it wasn't. And I think part of it was some markets were test markets, and they, I think they had the game earlier. That's what happened. Um, yeah, like I said, I learned that there was a couple. Yeah, a couple cities that got it. I believe New or New York being the first. And it weird from my perspective because, you know, I I grew up. I grew up in New York, and that was normal to me. You know what I mean? Like just having yeah. seen that at the time. Yeah, uh, and, and I want to be clear too because uh, the Master System was not Sega's first console. But I think what we want to do is we want to kind of go over the American side of things um, because there was the the SG one thousand was was Sega's first official console in Japan. Um, and oh, I I totally spaced off on what I was going to say, but well, what we got here technically, the Japanese would have been known as the Mark III. Yeah, the Mark III. A yeah. little bit, little bit different. Oh, what I was going to say was, um, because you talked about the game library and one of in the why there weren't many games and what was interesting and what people might have trouble understanding if they're if they're younger is, so when. You know, there there's this supposed or not supposed but famed uh, video game crash, and there was a point where, um, just because of a, a number of complex reasons, video games like their future got very questionable very quickly on the market. And Nintendo, when Nintendo first decided they were gonna, um, well, not first decided, but as as part of what they they their way to get into the American market, they brought, they added Rob to the the package. They could sell it more as like a toy instead of a video game per se. 
And when Sega was going to come over here, they were, you know, this video game company, they had experience in arcades and everything, but they didn't really have the distribution channels and whatnot to release a system and games. So they actually worked with Tonka, like as in Tonka trucks and toy company and everything. Um, so for a long time, the Master System was under Tonka in terms of um, distribution and I don't, I don't, I'm not exactly clear on how much of the situation Tonka controlled, but I know later in the Master System's life, um, Sega either took back the rights or, or purchased Tonka out of the picture or whatever it was, but Sega ended up having full control over the Master System in its releases, and that's when you start to see kind of this release of games um, that hadn't come out before. You know, that kind of really late-era Master System library. Uh, but, so so you mentioned, like, the graphics and everything, and so for me, it was it was interesting because, yeah, it, you know, because I finally had two consoles and I could see games on both systems, I was really shocked at times because I remember one of the best examples of this was the game Rampage. Rampage mm. came out, and... You know, again, people may not know this, but Nintendo had this this tight-fisted control over their system, and because of how popular it was, you know, probably like 95-whatever percent of the market, one of the rules was if you release a game for for the NES, you couldn't release it on, on, on on, you know, rival consoles. Right. So most of the time, games didn't make it to both systems. But there were a few times that games did, and one of those was Rampage. And seeing the difference of Rampage between the NES and the Master System was just crazy. Like, the Master System version was way closer to the arcade, way more colors, way better sprites. Um, So you did see stuff like that, and you're like, man. And Double Dragon was another good example. You know, Double Dragon for the NES was a totally different game, only one player. On the Master System, it was closer to the arcade version. It was two players at once. So it was... The Master System was kind of like... You know, like, I think all throughout gaming, we've had these kind of more hardcore systems. You have... You had that. You had, um, you know, the, the Neo Geo. You had TurboGrafx. You had these systems where you kind of went to these consoles for different experiences or or for certain specific things. And I think the Master System was this, this really unique interesting side system that when it did have games uh could be really cool and you definitely saw the improvement over the nes but the problem was just it did not have a library um there were just so few games for it compared to the hundreds and hundreds that were out on the nes i have to say uh one game i did not see on your list here which we're not gonna talk about much about games but um I, I can't not mention Fantasy Star because yes. Oh, <laughs> you sound like there's something very important to say. My thing on Fantasy Star was I remember seeing it uh, like in Toys R Us in stores, and I, I like it was conf- a piece of me was a little confused because uh, you know it's obviously an RPG, but like the perspective always like. I didn't know what to think of it going off screenshots on the box, but I did like the art even at the time. But the ultimately what stopped me from getting Fantasy Star, though I believe I was very close at times, was the price tag. 
Yeah. Now, this may be shocking to listeners, but correct me if I'm wrong. And I and mind you, this was in New York at the time, probably late eight towards the latter part of the eighties. Mm-hmm. I want to say that thing carried a price tag as high as close to like sixty five bucks, like before tax. Yeah, it, it might have. Like, now, mind you, you know, I mean, you know the deal. Like that, that's bad enough having a system and a couple games, and then having to ask your parents right. for you know it just wasn't happening. But I do remember seeing that game and wanting to ex- uh, experience it, and um, it just didn't happen. And if I did have it for a short period of time, I sure as hell don't remember it. So I, I don't believe I ever had that in my collection at the time. Well, it's it's funny you say confusing, and like it's. It's unbelievable to say this at this point, but back when Fantasy Star came out, we didn't know what RPGs were. Yeah. Because, you know, the 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 first um two of the first real RPGs were at least in America that we got were Fantasy Star and Dragon Warrior, which was the original Dragon Quest. Um when they came out, like I get again, it's it's like it's like saying, "Oh yeah, back when fighting games didn't exist, and you can't even imagine at this point." <laughs> you know, um, back at that point, RPGs didn't really exist. So when it came out, you didn't know what this was. You know, like it was so hard to to even comprehend like what this game was because it didn't play. I mean, I remember when the first Legend of Zelda came out and. That was like that game was gigantic, and that was so far beyond most of the games that we were used to, you know, because games had limited number of screens or whatever. Um, so, Fantasy Star comes out, and it's I I'm pretty sure I played it before Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior. Um, so it was really my first role playing game. Uh, it was this major master system game and it was one of the first real games i had seen um with a main female protagonist so there there were a number of things like really caught on with me but it was fantasy star that absolutely cemented the idea of me just loving the master system like that that game is what if anything needed to sell me on the master system it was it was fantasy star and it just it completely blew me away i had just no concept that games could be like this you know the games could be this big this in-depth or anything um so i I mean that that game that game was was it like that was all i needed to have to really cement you know my love for that system um and looking back like it was a really nice it was a great little 8-bit system you know i mean the the problem was the library it just didn't have didn't have anything i mean it, it, it you know it would be very very easy to collect the entire library for the master system and i mean what it did have was was interesting stuff but looking back it was just really random and it's again it's like it's like a neo geo or especially the turbo graphics like you you don't you can't own a turbo graphics and want to play all the big games that the other two consoles have you know you have to be more for, you know, like uh, Ordine or Kadash or Dungeon Explorer, <laughs> you know, or, or uh, Devil's Crush. You have to want those really weird, crazy games. And so if you were in that kind of stuff, 
Master System was perfectly great. If you were wanting Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Star Wars and these Mario and Zelda things that all your friends love, like you, you never wanted a Master System. I, I will say before we move on from the, the Sega Master System, it, it is of note that with all of the gushing we're doing over Sega and we are covering the consoles, it is worth noting that um, one of the things I did, I want to say towards the end of my tenure of owning one was extending the life for me was uh, trying out some of the Sega card games, which... That was really weird. Yeah, I remember... Uh, the one I distinctly remember owning was one with the vampires, like Vampire House or uh, yeah, something along those lines. Something like that. And um, it was known as My Card in Japan. And this was prior to NEC's Hue Card, which is what the standard TurboGrafx slash PC engines use. So the point I want to drive home there is not only did I have that experience, but Sega really was uh, an innovator. In, in a lot of things that they did. It's just that their timing wasn't always spot on. And uh, another interesting and unique aside to this is that I remember being stunned when calling in a, a, a mail order house to get the, a game or two, and we were told over the phone, and I think we might have even said this in the last GVGP, ironically, was it had that built-in game snail maze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't know if I said on the show or not, but that was that was when like cause I I found that out after I played Fantasy Star, so I was certain that the built-in game was Fantasy Star Two. I like cause I was just a dumb kid at that point. So I'm like, oh my god, there's a, there's a built-in game. I wonder if it's Fantasy Star Two. That would be so awesome. <laughs> well, now, and just to drive the point home of what you were making about Fantasy Star and the RPG aspect, um, I'll, I'll twist it up a little bit. I actually had experience with. Uh, we'll say RPG or RPGs. I don't really want to say plural, but in more computer form or on yeah. Commodore 64. Right. But, but the crazy thing is even with that fantasy star was still unique and, and foreign territory because the style of RPG was, was still different, whether it be from the art perspective or, you know, just how the battle system looked in still shots. So it was still very alien yeah, and and to be clear, before anybody yells at me, um, there definitely were RPGs on on PC. You know, it just like as a console only gamer, like we had right. no concept of what the RPG was. Right. So now, kind of uh, moving along here to what I I'll go out on a limb, which is potentially what I feel could be the meat of this show. Uh, the most exciting aspect was the successor to the Master System. Uh, I mean, Jesus, I mean, it doesn't even need an introduction. <laughs> the 16-bit, the Sega Genesis. And and it's funny because um, this, is, this is where Nintendo lost me and never truly won me back. Because with the NES and the Master System, I loved the NES. I was, I was totally on board. I, I liked my Master System. I mean, I, I, I loved it, let's be fair. I loved, I loved both. You know, and I, I knew they had different purposes and different reasons for existing, and they offered me different games, and I was happy just loving both. Um, but then Sega's like, we got this new console, and it's going to be awesome. And Nintendo's like, ah, the NES is good enough for you. And I'm starting to be like, you know what? I kind of want a new console. 
Like, I'm kind of looking at some of these graphics, and these games look amazing. Like, I want this, you know? And Nintendo's sitting here telling me that I, I don't I don't need new, but I, I want new. I want something bigger and better, you know? Um, so I still remember, because I had gotten Altered Beast for the Master System. And, I mean, you know, to be fair, it was an okay game, but it was only one player, and when you fought the bosses, the bosses were really small, and the background had to go black because it didn't have enough memory to do the background plus the boss plus your character. Oh, you're talking the Master System version. Yeah, the Master System Okay, version. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all these compromises. And the Genesis comes out. So I, <laughs> I, I talk to my mom, I'm like, you've got to give me a Genesis. We go, we pick it up. I get it home. It's got Altered Beast in it. I put Altered Beast in. And my mind is blown. <laughs> blown. And then, like, if you go back and look, yeah, you can say, okay, the, the Genesis version wasn't the arcade version. But I, I couldn't have told you otherwise. Like, I could not believe what I was seeing on my television screen. And, it even, and the other thing, now that you're jogging my memory, the other thing, if you think about it, was the voice. Yeah, there was actual voice in the game. Yeah, and it was sounded pretty, you know, at the mind you at the time, it sounded pretty damn good. It was this it was clear. Yeah. You know, there's other games that could lay claim to having the first voice in a game or this and that, but I mean, this was actually like more than one or two words and it it was like you didn't have to guess as to what, you know, the the narrator would have, you know, was saying. Um I mean, I, got, I don't even know where to start on Genesis. Like, I don't. I don't either. I mean, I, before I, we, yeah, it's. I mean, this was the. I love. It changed everything. It did, and I loved Genesis. I, I, I again, this, this, the Genesis was where I got cemented into the console wars, and I, my side was picked at that point. Because you know when when down the line I got a I got a Super Nintendo, and I got it. I'll be honest, I got it for Street Fighter too. Which because ironically was which historically for like for real deal was the tide turner which made Nintendo get, the pendulum swung back to Nintendo with that game. Because it was only going to be for Super Nintendo at first, right. and Street Fighter Two was this gigantic gigantic phenomenon and everybody had to have a copy so i mean that that's 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 why but you know what's funny i don't think i ever actually bought street fighter 2 i i remember renting it i'm in the same boat as much as well there's a whole story to that i loved fighting games but my dad would also play with me so we'd sometimes have to come to a conclusion as to what to get next mm-hmm. and i remember he he just was see this is you would you believe it my dad, this is off top, my dad and I were very close. We did a lot of things together, and he got, you know, he was into gaming. But as crazy as all that is, he was not into fighting games. Can you imagine that? Mm. <laughs> and then, I mean, Can you imagine? I mean, I, I don't know if it's, you know, they say when someone grows up or if it's like you're living, reliving their childhood or out of spite or, you know, people do crazy things in their life, and this is very innocent. But, like, I'll be damned if I don't own every, almost every damn fighting game under the sun now. Right. But anyway, so I didn't have Street Fighter 2 either, but I didn't – my very first Street Fighter I ever owned and one of my very first fighting games to own was Super Street Fighter 2. Yeah. But back on topic, yeah, I'm with you. That was the tie turner. I remember all my friends playing it at school and and 
I was jealous, man. I mean, I remember I rented. I was so happy I got to rent it, and I played the hell out of it for a couple of days. But I mean, and and and, and, and that's yeah. when you like instead you get like the the oh what was that game? There there was a number of like fighting games for Genesis, like <laughs> Kaneko and play, people like that, you know. And I was mm. like, I don't need Street Fighter Two. I got these <laughs> games, and you play them, and they just suck, and you're like, oh, but. But so okay, so beyond one NES for uh, Super NES for Street Fighter, right? I just like Genesis was was it for me. Well, and there's so much that happened. Even if this is the crazy, like can't stress this enough. The Genesis had such an impact that Street Fighter Two came along about halfway through that system cycle. Mm-hmm. Even if you threw in the towel and you ended the story in 1992 slash 93 when the home version of SF Two came out. There's still so much to tell between 89 and 92 alone. I mean, there was that much great stuff or that much that the Genesis did, whether it be through the intro, you know, I'll let you fill in the blanks, whether it be through the introduction of Sonic, they had a mascot. Like I said earlier, the yin to their yang, the Genesis console to Nintendo's philosophies. They had Mario, Sega had Sonic. Even in that three-year span, you had the introduction of the Sega CD, the CD medium add-on. Uh, I I mean there was whether it be the the superior side scrolling shoot 'em ups, um, treasure you know the introduction of Gunstar Heroes from from Treasure, hard quote hardcore titles the import scene, uh, Streets of Rage countering Final Fight, you could literally make a whole episode out of that three year bracket where Sega was on top before yeah, and- the pe- you know. And that's the thing is like with the Master System versus NES, there was no competition. It was just not even a question. Um, but you had a stronger Sega, a Sega that had gotten Master System out there at one point on their own. Finally, so they had distribution channels going. They had made some connections with with developers. They had some developers who didn't want to do things the Nintendo way. They had you know the antitrust lawsuits in America against Nintendo, so that finally. Nintendo couldn't say you can only make games for our system and nobody else. Um, you had all these like pieces being put in place. And when the Genesis came out, suddenly the library issue wasn't an issue. I mean, I still remember it was in magazines, you know, it was, you know, the Genesis does what Nintendo ads, you know, and, and Oh yeah. I mean, the, the unforgettable. Black, the black background and then all the little TV screens and, you would see that on the back of the box from magazines or whatever, and you're like, man, there's there's already going to be a lot of games for this console. You know, like right off the bat, they had games. And again, so okay, let's see. So the Master System comes out, I mean, the Genesis comes out October 29th, 1988 in Japan, and then... Um, Oh, it was actually earlier in America. I never even realized that. So it was actually in August in 1989. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's that's the next year. Okay. Yeah, they got an 88, I think, overseas, and we got it. Japan got an 88, we got an 89. So we got it about about a year later. So summer of 89 is when we get the Master System. So let me see when the Super Nintendo. Oh, we got it here August of 91. I know that by heart. Was it 91? Yeah, so and I could t- I'll give you some nerd facts here for the for our audience real quick and and bookmark your thought. 
one of the reasons I've learned later on as to why there was a delay on SNES architecture wasn't only because of what they wanted to do, but one of the things that held them up is they wanted to make it backwards compatible with the Famicom, which wound up being costly to them because they couldn't do it in the end, which that's an interesting mm. aside. Mm. I didn't know that. And then before getting to 1991, when SNES came, getting back to what Sega's accomplished there, there's two big things I can tell you between 89 and 91 before the thing even hit for, for me personally. One, one is more of an obscure thing. Technically, we had a whole new genre introduced to gaming uh, in Herzog's Y. Yep. And secondly, the title that made me... Like, look, I was excited for SNES. I'm not going to lie. Reading about the rumors, the the the, the tech specs... The game, when I saw it on the commercial, that blew me through the wall that I couldn't believe was running on the Genesis. Strider. Yeah. yeah. That game... Now, you want to talk about games. You look. You can look at certain games like even the Street Fighter II conversion, which at the time, you know, I probably said, oh my God, it's the same as the arcade. I have a lot of that stuff on Virtual Console now legally. I, you can see immediately the differences, not yeah, discrediting yeah. what they accomplished. You look at Strider on the Genesis, which I believe was repro which was programmed by Sega, which even though it was a Capcom title. You look at Strider, and you look at the arcade version, and I got to tell you something to this day. Unless you're a Strider fanatic, it is tough to tell. No, that that was an amazing game. It really was. Um, no, what I was gonna say was, um, you know, I mean, like, I, so, so. Basically, Sega had a, a at least in this country they had a two year window before the the Super NES hit, and like these days, I I don't I mean two years is still a big deal, right? Like if the PS4 come out two years before the Xbox One or vice versa, that'd still be a big deal, you know. But I think we're more conditioned to understand that these things are are console generations and cyclical, and we wait for certain things, you know. But back then, it, 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 there wasn't this concept of this is just how things work and, and you know, um, you're going to get a Super Nintendo and then you're going to get a system after that and a system after that. You know, there wasn't that kind of thinking. It was just, oh, my God, a new game system. <laughs> Sega's giving it to me. Nintendo's not. Like, that's what it was. And and just like I said, like I said, like seeing that little ad and just seeing all these visuals that were just so shocking to me and that could just never ever exist on the nes oh no way you know and and you get it and you're playing some of these games and they're just like so crazy you know and so like sega sega wise finally they did have that that ability to to go head to head with nintendo and i mean one of the ones you have to mention of course like you like you said already is, is streets of rage um because Final Fight's going to come home. It's going to come to the Super NES, but it's only going to be one player. Like, what? what is up with that? Like, why? Like, you know, like, everybody's like, why? The game's two-player co-op right. experience in the arcade. Like, why are they making it only one player? Oh, I think it's, well, you, and you know the deal. I know you're probably not questioning me, but I think it's that old school song and dance of, you can guess why they probably got it out like that with some slowed down and missing a character was just death right. time and launch, right, right, you know. Right, right. You know. But... You know, as a, as a fan, as a player, right. and not really understanding at that point, you then say, "Oh, okay, wait a minute." Sega's come out with this game called Streets of Rage, and you look at it, and it's got two players. Um, looks really cool. You get it. It has awesome, awesome play mechanics, 
amazing music. Yeah. You know, time. doing all the all these things and you're like, wow, this is so great. And then, you know, I, I still to this day picture I can picture the, the EGM layout where they're talking about like Streets of Rage and Final Fight, you know, face to face, or when they when they review Sonic the Hedgehog, like, oh, there's this new Sonic the Hedgehog is going to up against Mario. And I got it and I loved that. And there was it was just like Sega can actually do this. And you you had faith this system could be this amazing rival system, you know, whereas Master System completely failed. And I just like, I, I you, and you go on and I think one of the funny parts was, is with, with the NES, games were like games, you know, like at that point I was too young to really realize that games came from necessarily different countries and everything. Right. You know, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure when you're, when you're really, really young, you think Nintendo makes everything, you know? Right. That's right. Okay. These companies are making these games, but you know, you don't understand that Konami's not an American company. Um, I remember one time I called FCI, their, 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 their <laughs> phone number, uh, because I had a question about Ultima, which they'd released on the NES, you know, and it's uh, it was a division of like the Fuji Fuji Television, so the full name was like Fuji Sanke something something something, you know, Communications Incorporated. They had a spot in the U.S. to call. Yeah, yeah, they had, they had an American branch that you, wow. you, could talk, you could talk to, and so I call, and and so this this very Japanese sounding lady says the full name out. And I was like so confused, and I just like hung up on it right away because I just didn't know what was going on. But you know, so like, I mean, like that's when I first start realizing, okay, maybe these companies have other connections. But to me, before that, everything is just American people making games, whatever. Um, but so, one thing I was to talk to you about was on the Genesis. All of a sudden, there was this weird divide in gaming, and. Part of it was this really small company called Electronic Arts. Yes. And they started making all these games. And I remember like, okay, they have these these funny cartridge, shaped cartridges and everything. And the boxes are a little bit different. Yes. But I started playing their games and I didn't really like them. And I didn't understand why. Because they were just so different to the games I was used to. And so this was my first real experience of Japanese development versus Western oh, development. Oh, yeah, uh, that's a good point. I never really looked at it that way, but you're, that's a very yeah, astute point. all of EA's games were, were either American or European developed. And I said, at that point, I couldn't, I couldn't understand why the difference was there. But I knew, like, it's, like, I wasn't ready. I was like, okay, this is, this, Genesis is really interesting because there's these two totally different kind of worlds of gaming going on on it. And what it was, I said it was Western versus Japanese. So you had all these really crazy niche, you've never heard of them before, Japanese games. And then this kind of computer gaming side that was starting to bleed into consoles. And they were, they were coming together into this really eclectic, strange mix of, of, of game titles. Well, this is that's actually, and I'm going to mention this about EA real quick. This is a, they have a lot of amazing stories for this time period with the Genesis. Now, yeah. tying this back to Sega in regards to the the revolution in the sports game genre, mm-hmm. 
And EA specifically with Genesis, they were able to do some masterful things in what I consider as EA's glory days. And I believe from reading articles later on, it was kind of frowned upon because at the time, what I dare say Trip Hawkins was still involved. And what EA did with the Genesis hardware is they reverse engineered it uh, to, yeah. to learn it better. And then there was also another story, which I won't get into fully here. I'll leave it up for the fans to look it up, uh, whether it be through Retro Gamer out of the UK, is there was a weird legend or story that went where EA actually was involved in the first Joe Montana football helping Sega. As weird and crazy as that sounds. So anyway, there's a whole other piece of history there, but bringing it back to our experiences and Sega is that there was that divide between the East and West there distinctly for the first time. and But at the end of the day, there was still more quality software on the Sega platform. Sports were essentially associated with the Genesis and brought in yeah. a whole new market. And yeah. I would even go as far as to say, you know, outside the sports title, I was a big fan of the early Desert Strike and uh, Jungle Strike games. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there were some Western games that I was into. Like, I, I don't know why, because I hate baseball, but I owned like Tommy Lasorda baseball. I did too. <laughs> um, I actually owned. I really, really strangely owned the first John Madden football game. Yes. You know. Um, but that's 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 a testament to how big it was for gamers at the time and yeah. something that's the, that's the point like even though this is blasphemous to be discussing this genre on on this network that's a testament again to the the popularity amongst game fans to something that hadn't been done at that level before and they did the same thing with uh uh hockey yeah i mean i i mean i can only keep repeating this but <laughs> it's 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 funny because you go back and you're like, okay, these things just didn't exist. So yeah. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I mean, not to be not to be fair, football existed because of course you had like Tecmo. Madden Tecmo debuted on uh, on whatever. computer. Yeah, and but I it mean, wasn't to this not yeah. I mean, but in terms of the console, this was the first time that a really like I feel like a really serious football game existed. Right. And I remember playing this sort of baseball. What blew my mind was you could hit the ball and it would come flying up towards oh, the camera and you could actually yeah. you could see yeah. the stitching on it and the, yeah. the the name and i'm like oh my god this is like real life you know like it was it was crazy and so um that was because i mean not being a huge sports gamer but you know sports games really do benefit from better graphics and better technology so that was really like a big deal that you could have you know like voices in games now or you could have these these more realistic graphics for you know your john madden football or your buster douglas boxing or you know the golf or whatever else this has to be said too it was always the game of opposites and buster douglas nintendo had mike tyson yep and it's a sign of the times again so who should sega get Right. Buster Douglas, the guy that dethroned Mike Tyson, and uh, you know, I mean, Sega—that was the thing. There was great competition amongst the two biggest boys in the yard, and it paid off. I mean, it was it was it was a phenomenal time in gaming to be a gamer, to be into the hobby. And there's a very important factor we haven't really delved into much yet, and maybe you were going to. It wasn't just a any game in particular. Mm -hmm. 
and it's not saying what Nintendo did was wrong, but talking about freshening things up. This was the first time ever with gaming as a hobby, Sega made it cool. Yeah. And I think PlayStation, I think for a generation that may have missed it or came in later, I think a lot of people perceived Sony as doing that. And some of it was deserved in Sony's camp for certain things that they did. But the first company to make gaming cool or to bring in an older audience and not just make it for kids and to open your eyes that more could be done with gaming or different genres or things done differently was definitely 100% Sega. So basically you're blaming Sega for Call of Duty existing. Well, you know, it's kind of so, no. The short answer is no. But the funny thing is, like, I, I have to admit, um, Sony became S- Sony. Kind of, it's funny because we, before we got on the air, we were discussing how Xbox felt like the successor to the Dreamcast at that time. PlayStation felt like they, in terms of advertising, placed okay. Xbox picked up the console reins of Sega at that time. Sony picked up the advertising reins of Sega from their era after they faltered. But right. but Sega was the first to to make it cool to talk about on the playground to ignite that war. Going back to the the Genesis commercials, the Nintendo, I couldn't believe that they even acknowledged yeah, competition. No, that 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 was like that was like blasphemous. Like you, you don't. I couldn't. But I the, yeah. talking about it the next day, uh, losing sleep over it. These were things that probably seem so silly and asinine now. It was not to be believed. Yeah, no, I mean, like that that was just crazy. Yeah, and and, and I guess that didn't go. That you know what, you and I being uh, uh, as young as we were. Uh, we weren't the only ones uh, going number two in our pants over it because, once again, uh, retrospectives, boy, Nintendo was on the horn <laughs> talking about that because that was something that wasn't done uh, in yeah. the Japanese culture or like the advertise. Like this was another. I don't want to say unfair advantage. This was an advantage the American marketing team had over Japan in that, whether it be throwing certain rules out the window or not having to adhere to certain unspoken guidelines and the likes of uh, Tom Kalinske, who um, uh, you're going to think I'm crazy. You know, this isn't a show where we, we boast about getting a long lineup of guests. We, we talked about this a couple hours ago. We will have a couple special features. You know who I contemplated reaching out to? Not saying I'm going to do it. So I want listeners to make it clear that this is not lined up. I actually considered reaching out to Tom Kalinske hmm. because I have seen him do a couple interviews elsewhere uh, on the, the uh, uh, Retro Gamer publication overseas. He does seem reachable via LinkedIn. And ironically, and I did not go, but he, I believe he also had a panel this past weekend in Portland. Really? Yeah. Now, now that aside, to bring it back on topic, the reason I make such special note of Tom Kalinske and the Sega of American division and marketing at the time, some people may be like, well, who gives a crap? They were so good and so instrumental, and maybe it was a product of the time as well. They had such great players. Everyone was firing on all pistons, whether it be from the marketing department, just Sega's time. Just It, it all came together as a cohesive unit, and something that I feel is missing from all of the major players today 
And I know we live in a much different world today. And this goes for Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo. They're all guilty. Nobody has an American division marketing-wise that I care about. I've never cared about uh, a, a an advertising perspective as much since the Sega days. I would say the last time I cared about or an advertising campaign got my attention outside of Sega were the very original Sony You Are Not Ready ads. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think... Sony these days does some pretty good stuff. I'll, I won't. I won't backpedal on my personal statement. I haven't seen a gaming advertising campaign since the mid '90s era that I've that I've given mm. an shit about since then. But I mean, I I, I totally agree with you. Um, and in terms of it, I think it really was because you had Nintendo, which was a very Japanese company run by the Japanese side, and at that point, Sega still had a lot of autonomy on the, on the American side, you know, so they could kind of just do their own thing. And, you know, I mean, Sega never thought the Genesis would do what it ended up doing here in America. So I think it was a case of, you know, they knew the culture, they knew the players, whereas Nintendo was kind of trying to do things the Japanese way. And Sega just comes in and they are, like, they are the cool. Like, I mean, like, that was the whole thing about Sonic, you know, he was, he was fast, he had an attitude. I mean, it, it seems totally cheesy now, but... These were elements of that Mario didn't have, you know. Mario was like this this fat, weird plumber guy, whereas Sonic was this this speedy blue hedgehog who was like running through everything and and being the hero and all this kind of stuff. And I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll say it again. Even through the test of time, uh, Mario is still a fat plumber, and I still <laughs> don't think he's he's a very memorable character, and he works. But like. I don't get – I've said this before. I don't get excited about Mario with the new Mario game. I get excited about the level design and the game-playing aspects right. of that series. So, here's the reverse. I still think to this day Sonic is an awesome, really cool character. The unfortunate aspect more times than not now is it's the reverse. Sonic is still yeah. cool in my mind. The games are terrible. Yep, he's been some real crap. Yeah, so it's like it's the – I got to a point recently thinking to myself, and this may be the ultimate sin, at this point with all of Sonic's ups and downs and the crap he's been drugged through, at this point if I were Sega, I would just have – I would see if I could come to some sort of agreement and have Nintendo make a new Sonic. <laughs> uh, yeah, seriously. no, I, I, can't, I can't blame that thought. So. You know, but yeah, but Sonic – I mean that was another unbelievable thing. And as you'll remember, a tie turning point uh, to get the one-upsmanship on Nintendo is that – the big decision was to unpack Altered Beast. I've read this story numerous times in the overseas publication in that they, there was a meeting with the, the Japanese in Japan, and I believe it was Kalinsky, if I'm not mistaken. They had a couple presidents in and out at that time. Kalinsky was the strongest. And he pretty much said to them with the marketing division when he took over Reigns, they're like, they asked him for his opinion, what he had planned, and he said, look, unpack altered beast it sounds like some sort of a satanic a name for a satanic game <laughs> he wasn't dogging the game but he's just saying how it's perceived by name right. and to the public and right. he said take sonic the hedgehog that you know the new game that he'd seen in development pack that in give it away uh you know unpack altered beast and drop the price and there was silence in the room and they he, they all spoke amongst each other in Japanese, and he said to himself that he probably thought it was going to be the quickest tenure at a job. <laughs> he felt he was going to get fired right on the spot. 
And as he walked away to leave, he was stopped by one of the gentlemen. And they're like, and they pretty much said, translated into English. After they argued, he said, stop. And he goes, we hired you for the Western Division to handle, you know, America and Europe. He goes, none of us agree with anything you have to say here. But you're not here to market Japan. You're here to do what you're to do in the West. And he said, go ahead and do it. Yeah. And that was the that was the the first Tide Turner. And they packed in Sonic. Uh, I still remember to this day, even though I had an Altered Beast set, uh, when I had moved, I think, I, I don't know if I'd rebought the Genesis again. And I was able to send away a warranty card, and I got one in the mail free. So, I mean, great promotion, and you know the deal. Milk the first one, get it in everyone's hands, sold like gangbusters, and make your money on the second one. And, I mean, can we stop for a minute just to, like, just ponder the idea that there was a point where for the standard price of the console, you got a game and two controllers? Oh, uh, you know what? Playing, like, like, that's, just, that's just so crazy you, in this You know what? Moment of silence. And I'll tell you what. I know these things cost money and it's not free. But, you know, if I was back in there, if I'm playing uh, armchair quarterback here, I'd go right back. Right back to that uh, philosophy. I, you know what I mean? Like, how much better are you going to look than your competition if I threw in an extra controller in a game you might actually care about? Wouldn't that yeah, kind of? I, I mean, wouldn't that kind of help you decide, push you over I the think, edge? I think the problem with the controller is just the fact that like they know people will buy another controller, you know, and they they know they'll get you. I, I would definitely stick to the game. I mean, you're right, but I would definitely stick to the game, the packing. You know what I mean? Or something. Oh, I mean, yeah. No, I, I definitely think I definitely think so. I mean, I think there should be at least something. But, I mean, I guess in these this day and age, like with, like, PlayStation Plus and, and Xbox Live Gold, like, they're kind of expecting you to have those anyway. And if you do get those, you get the kind of free games every month. So that's r- kind of, right. you know, but. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, another thing we haven't touched on with Genesis was, going back to the Master System, the the power base converter. Yeah, I knew that was coming. Which it's it's you know these days like backward compatibility is a big argument, but back then like it just didn't exist and you never expected it to exist. And when a new system came out it had new games and that was it. You know? If you wanted the old games, you just kept your old systems around. But one of the things that Sega did and I I, I think because, you know, they had a they they had this little loyal base of master system owners and they didn't want them to feel completely screwed. And they also probably wanted to give them a reason to upgrade to Genesis. Um, they had this little power base thing that came out that you plugged into the top of your Genesis that it would not only play Sega master system cartridge games, but also the card games. And because it had a card slot, you could, you could play the 3d games because the 3d adapter mm. went into the card slot. Mm-hmm. So that was like a big deal to me. And that, again, was another reason why Sega just hooked its claws into me because, you know, I I had this relatively small but still, um, you know, huge emotional attachment Master System library and suddenly I could bring all those games to my Genesis and they'll still play perfectly fine. Like even I could even get rid of my Master System, you know. I could sell it to buy a new game or, like, you know, or whatever. Um so that was like really cool, and I mean that that's when I'm trying to think of when the next time backward compatibility exists. Uh, I don't think it, I don't I don't think it exists until the PS2. That's what it? I want to say as well. That's my gut. Yeah. 
Which I mean, and, uh, and that's a whole I mean, upsetting. That's a whole upsetting. You know, it's such a racket now where you know they can, and these companies wanted to do backwards compatible, but the reason that they've lost interest now is because now they want to charge you on a streaming service, or you know, they don't want to, or they want to get you on a download network to have you rebuy your catalog, which I've ignorantly probably done most of already. But it's <laughs> like they don't like. There's no gimmies, and it, like you could support this damn company. $60 a game, you know, I'll support you to the end of time. I'll stay loyal to you, but don't keep trying to F me every damn corner and make me rebuy your game five times. <laughs> like, why don't you throw me a bone? You know what? You throw me a bone somewhere, and I'll scratch your back. But it's gotten so ridiculous, like, for years and years, they're like, hey, this is backwards compatible, double backwards compatible. Oh, wait a minute. We've got a streaming service. We've got. We're in a digital age. We can. Yeah, I don't even want to go down this avenue. This will take another hour. But it's like, yeah, I mean, it's so frustrating. But th these type of things, with these physical pieces of hardware or these things that, you know, obviously they can they can maybe wear and tear over time and malfunction. But the idea of it, the principle of it is, you know, you can maintain your library. You can still enjoy yesterday versus you know today in the future but now it's yeah. everything is such a racket and a business now it's it's uh it's unfortunate yeah um and you know we, we don't want to get too far into the games but i i just will say that like the the thing that really and again you know the genesis helped shape me as a gamer because there were all these crazy weird japanese games you know i mean you remember you you mentioned Herzog's Vi already, mm -hmm. you know, there was that, there was Gary's, um, there was, oh, I'm totally spacing off on it now, um, the weird RPG, oh, Super Hydlide. Oh, God. Super Hydlide. I did not know what the hell to do in that game. I, wanted, was, I owned it. Yeah, I it really don't know if I got made any more than five or ten minutes of progress. Yes. Um, I actually beat it. There was, <laughs> yeah. There, there was, there was War Song, which was part of this, which we didn't realize at the time, which was part of this gigantic, epic, you know, uh, Japanese strategy series. I was, um, I, I'm always forgetting like what names it goes under certain times. There's Last, Lastinger, and um, oh, what, what, what are the other names for that series? Langrisser, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, what, I, did, I doesn't it go under another another name at a certain point? What, what does it become later? I I feel like it's oh uh, uh Growlancer. Oh, okay, yeah, it's, that's it's kinda, right. It's kind of it's kind of right. it's, it's not yeah. it's not official, yes. it's yes. not official, yes. but it's like the spiritual kind of continuation of the mm -hmm. of the the Langrisser series. But you had that. You had um, Target Earth, which was which was amazing. You had Burning Force, you had Insector X, you had like just like Arrow Flash, like all these uh the Ernest Evans, Viento, well, yeah, yep. Valis games, like you had like all these really crazy Japanese games. And so, you know, like that really got me. I mean, you had, you know, some of the Capcom stuff, some of the SNK stuff, you had stuff like that. But you had like, a lot of these just really weird games you hadn't heard of that you that I, I bought and then ended up loving and so that really got me into this idea that 
there was gaming outside of what Capcom was doing, what Konami was doing, you know, like what the big guys were doing. There was a lot of other game gaming out there to enjoy. And so like for so for me, that's that's one of my favorite parts of the Genesis was just um and I mean and of course you have like, you know, stuff like Fantasy Star Two and Landstalker and Shining in Darkness and all the good Sega stuff. But you had right. all these all these great little games that um just made the Genesis such a great experience and just just so full of life and enjoyment and stuff. You know, some people sitting at home may be going, "Well, Jesus, with all with all the praise and uh, that we're giving, how you know this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Why the hell aren't they still atop the industry?" And you know, there's the sad part to this is when they started to, uh, you know, just uh, I always say what I always tell people, like my friends around town, or when they pick my brain about gaming, and you know, this isn't what I've read in books or whatever, but my opinion. I feel the straw that broke the camel's back or really when Sega slipped up and could never quite get back to their glory days was the 32X. Yeah, but... I, but... I feel like that was the one that... Like, that was... That was the start of it, in my opinion. That 32X was the... That was, that was the mistake that caused the rest of their domino effect. But to be fair, we're not there yet. Right, but I'm just saying. I mean, with all, yes. I mean, we've been singing this company's praises yes. like we're getting ready to walk down the aisle. Yeah, with no, Sega. because once once we start hitting on like what's coming up, I mean, you you right. will understand why what happened to them happened. Yeah, you know. but uh, and, and and you know we, we may not spend much time on it. But then there was the amidst this was these these there was the Sega CD add-on. Well, that, that so that that's what I went into next with Sega CD because. Um, like this was a really weird time in gaming because these days, you know, you, you kind of you for the most part expect that that you'll just get a new console at some point and that'll be the next generation. But there was all of a sudden this idea that games weren't going to be on cartridges anymore; they were going to be on CDs. And I believe this started with NEC with the PC Engine. Because in Japan, yes. you, you, you had the PC Engine and then you had the PC CD, um, which you plugged in the PC Engine. And it was a nice little compact system, nowhere near the giant monstrosity we got in America. <laughs> uh, but so you had that, and all of a sudden then Sega was going to have their own CD system. And then Nintendo was like, oh, well, we're going to work with a Sony company to make a CD system. And, of course, we all know how that went. But... So... There was talk about CD coming to Genesis. And I mean, like, like, like back in that era, like what did I'm, I'm trying to think of like what I thought about CD games? Cause like I said, it was a really weird thing. And I think nobody totally understood like what was going on, you know, because with the, the, the Sega CD, so we're told, okay, you get way more storage space. Um, which back at that point, okay, it wasn't that big of a deal. But the the main thing was all of a sudden you could have like real music. Yeah, that was big. Games. Yeah, what was it, like you Red know, Book Audio? Red Red Book Audio, and they also said, okay, we're going to also put a chip in here to do kind of the scaling and rotation stuff that the Super NES. That's right. Do. They could find yes, it can do some of the Mode Seven. They could yes. do the Mode Seven style yes. stuff. 
Right. But I mean, like, what did you? I mean, like, do you remember like any of? Well, I wound up like... getting one, and I didn't get one later. Like, I got one pretty within. I want to say within a year of that CD player coming out. Yeah, I, I think I, me too. Yeah, I got one, and I tell you what, the only reason I was really hesitant was because rumors had been around so long in the magazines that Nintendo was going to do a CD add-on. Now right. I know this is going to sound like talking the, the the devil's talk, but I will admit. As much praise as I've given Sega, and I've said this before, Nintendo was always good at releasing something when it was complete, and they were confident in it. So my worry was that if SNES CD-ROM is coming out, I might be better off waiting six months or a year for what they're going to showcase on that. But be it as it may, whether it be a friend at school or someone talking me into it, or as well as stuff that I wanted, I thought from a gamer's perspective and being you know a gamer through and through the Sega CD had a lot of potential and opportunity to be explored so uh, the, you know the sound was a big issue being able to finally match i think that was a big thing for me being able to match the SNES in terms of many of its other tricks that they could do with this i think i thought in my head that this was going to get supported and then you were going to finally see games that matched or were superior technologically to the SNES because now like now there was no excuse you had the sound you had the rotation and you had extra space but it didn't work out like that yeah and i i mean i i feel like with i mean there were definitely some deceptions but i feel like the turbo graphics is where I really came to understand what CD games could do. Like, I feel like I didn't really get that on the Genesis. And part of that reason is, I think, much more so than the TurboGrafx, the Genesis got caught up in this this wave of uh, FMV games. Oh. Like, you're talking like Sewer Shark and Night Trap and make my own video and um, uh, all the other stuff. I so should have sent you this article before we went on the air that uh, covered the whole FMV uh, era because there's an interesting thing. And I'm going to give credit. uh, This is going to blow this guy's ego up if he he even listens to this episode. I got to mention Neil again because he was the first person I got to give credit that ever told me this. And I thought he was crazy. And this article I read echoed what he told me a long time ago. Did you know that FMV games like Night Trap, Sewer Shark, and I dare say one or two others were filmed and done as way back as 1987? I do because they were for a console, and I can't remember if it was Hasbro or who it was. Yeah, from another major toy company that was looking to get into this. I mean, that blew my mind. Yep. No, yeah, no, no, no. When, when I first heard that, it it was crazy to me because I I never knew that before. Yeah. So anyway, back on topic to you. They played that card because the Sega CD could actually perform the video uh, as silly as this sounds because it was so subpar, superior to that console and do more. And this obviously added titles to the library. Yeah, uh, and I mean I can't completely blame Sega because to them. It was something that they, their system could do that nobody else was doing. You know, like like the Super NES couldn't do that. There's no way it could ever do that. Now know? let me ask you this though. Now you see, you were you know, I would assume even in your younger years you were a smart gamer, and I'm going to toot my own horn here a little bit. I can tell you honestly, look you in the eye. 
even at that young of an age, I knew the FMV games were doomed because it forgot the golden rule of gaming, the gameplay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did you not know that? I mean, even when you were younger, like, didn't you see that as a huge red flag? Like, you knew that those games wouldn't last to the gamer because there was no real, there was no gameplay there. No, it was like, remember, um, remember Captain Planet? Yeah, uh, yeah, yes. So for people who don't know, so Captain Planet was this toy that came out. <laughs> and what it was, was you had, a, you had these like little like sanitized action figures and then they had a spaceship you put Captain Planet into. No, 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 sorry, not Captain Planet. Not Captain Planet. Uh, I do remember Captain Planet on TBS for those listening. I wasn't lying. Oh. What type of a toy? Describe it again. The the one where you shot at the, at the television screen. Ooh, I don't know if I... Oh, man, what was that game? Not Captain Planet. Oh, jeez. So it was, this, it was this action figure. Um, and you, you, so basically his, his ship, Captain Power. That's what it was, Captain Power. And he was Captain MP. So his spaceship had a light sensor on it. And what you would do is you'd watch on VHS, you'd watch these these television episodes. Like, I think they're like live action. Wow. Is Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. And then you'd point at the screen and you'd kind of be like shooting at the, supposedly shooting at the screen and whatever. And then sometimes like you had to be careful because if you didn't dodge, dodge out of the way, when something flashed on screen, the sensor in, the light sensor in your ship would pick it up and you'd get points against you or whatever it was. So, like, that to me was like FMV gaming. It's like there's stuff going on and I'm pretending to kind of interact with it, but I'm not completely interacting with it. You know, like that was always my opinion of what FMV gaming was. And I, 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 you know, you had people like Tom Zito from digital pictures, like swearing it was the, the second coming of video games, you know, (laughs) and I always thought it was garbage. I always thought it was not going to be around for that long. Like I hoped, I hoped it wouldn't be around for that long because it was just a terrible idea, and it wasn't. It wasn't like real gaming, and it was right. just so poorly done. And thankfully, it didn't last long. But I think be, for me, because Sega went that route, while the Turbo Graphics was more, here's these Valus games, and oh my god, they've got like anime cutscenes, and the characters are talking to each other. Like that to me was mind blowing. You know, that's when I first really saw that, and that's what sold me on on the CD stuff. And on the Sega side, I mean. We, to be fair, again to just get to go over them very quickly, we got some great games. We got the Lunar Games, which for the time were just these gigantic epic RPGs. We got Snatcher, which I mean, of course, is Snatcher. You know, um, we got some some. I remember that the Sega CD was like one of the places to really get the one of the best versions of Samurai Showdown. That's right. You know. Um, we got the the fighting game Eternal Champions. We got the we got the Echo the Dolphin games, which were the same games as the almost same games as the Genesis, the regular cartridge versions, but they had these really crazy soundtracks on them. We got Sonic CD, which game fans swore to me was the best game ever created <laughs> in the history of mankind. Don't forget uh, Robo Alest. Yes. And uh, while not, I don't think it was Japanese. Yeah, it wasn't Japanese. But you know, another game I remember having fond memories and playing with uh, my dad. We were very excited for that AH3 Thunderstrike. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember that one? Yep. Yeah, that was good, too. And then um, there was, like, Kyo's Flying Squadron. So, I mean, there, there was a handful. Like, I, I don't... I never felt like I had been cheated when I bought the Sega CD. You know? Oh, of course, uh, Silphied. There was Silphied, which was... Yeah, a that was... Game. Yes, that was crazy. Which, that, like, really did some things, like, you weren't expecting games to do. But... Um, there were enough games that I, I thought it was worthwhile, but it, it was it was getting close to kind of stretching it. Where it's like, okay, there's just there really should have been more with this. And the problem is, as you kind of alluded to before, if if it had just been a Sega CD, like Sega CD, I don't think was was the end. You know, I don't think that's what caused Sega to go down you know when all was, was said and done i think that was a that was a road blo- road bump you know a speed bump that they could have gotten over and gotten past i think the problem is what comes next and then what happens to the next console you know and what comes next is of course like you said the 32x and i think the 32x is what really starts to decline I I, to- I totally agree, and uh, if you don't mind me backtracking a tad, uh, I'm only saying yeah. this because I'm actually looking at my notes right now. But getting back on the Sega bandwagon, we 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 glazed over this. Another thing that Sega introduced this era, which hadn't been seen before, at least over here in the states, was integrating star power, and I listed just oh, yeah. Joe Montana, Michael Jackson, Iart and Santa. Tommy Lasorda, Buster Douglas. I mean, that was... And integrating them into their advertising. Right. Uh, a real quick uh, Michael Jackson note. I, I, my understanding, he was a big Sega fan. Oh, and, yeah. And while not proven, there's rumors to this day that he contributed, if not did the Sonic 3 soundtrack. Yep, yep. So, I mean, that's that's huge in and of itself as, uh, as well over there. Uh, which is funny because in recent years Nintendo played that card with the DS and Beyonce and and uh, uh, other stars. But back on the 32x note, yeah, that was the start of the downfall. Uh, another thing, something you mentioned earlier that I'd never actually thought of uh, when I always try to rewrite gaming history in my head. Something I never thought of until you just mentioned it. You know. While it may have been a niche audience again or an even more hardcore sub base, you know, things could have been drastically different if the choices in games on the Sega CD were what NEC had offered. Yeah, I mean, I never thought of that. um, I mean, it certainly wouldn't have had that same debt. Like, that would have. If you eliminated the FMV games and utilized that technology appropriately and sprinkled it throughout games that deserved it or broke things up or gave you more story or, you know, just to go, hey, listen to the voice in this. You know, I, th- I really think what that fan base Sega had, uh, that that could have changed some things. And I think part of it, I mean, like, I, 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 like, I liked Sonic CD. I thought it was a really interesting game, but I, I kind of think it was too complicated for its own good. And that was really one of the big games they needed to come out and be just this amazing game. And I think I think they went the wrong path with Sonic CD um, because you had like you know 
two thirds of the game were things that the players might not ever see if they didn't do the time travel aspect, which you didn't really have to do unless you cared about getting the best ending. Right. I remember renting it and blazing through it just to get to get through it because I rented it. But having right. gone back and played the game again, you're right. Like it's double edged. It's it's awesome. You can go back and it, it gives you more uh, replayability. But at the same time, you're right. It wasn't something that was necessary. You could still just gun through it and say you beat it. And I mean, like, you know, we had a game like Fantasy Star 4. Like Fantasy Star 4 should have absolutely been a CD game, you know. And I think I think it was planned to be at first. Um, and you know, there's other games that like that should have should have been CD games. You know that they 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 really should have put effort into making these these games just do things that no other console could do. Because I mean, like you know, the, I don't think Turbo was ever really serious competition. So it was Nintendo, and if you had a Fantasy Star Four where characters were talking and they had like animated cutscenes and things like on the scale of like Lunar, that would have been just awesome. You right. Know? I mean, could you imagine how much even more fondly and how much more that would have been talked about over the years if if they did something like that? Yeah. You know, or they, or if, if if we could have had sports games that really went way more into the, the voice and stuff. You know, I, I'm actually kind of glad you mentioned that because, you know, I have to admit, if we're going back in a time machine, you're talking about the sports talk football. Uh, right. I got to say something. You know, even though I had a Sega CD at the time, that aspect was kind of upsetting because, look, as an, once again, being older, more mature, understanding the more the inner workings, behind the scenes stuff, and and you know, at the time, so I'm going to make a statement that's going to sound uh, really stupid, but remember, we're going back over 20 years. The voice technology in the cartridges was upsetting because one could say to themselves, well, what what do I need the CD add-on for? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, seriously, it's like if you're able, you know, and that was the other thing with, you know, getting back on Nintendo and the whole CD. With their, with the, you know, they were supposed to do the CD add-on. And here was another X factor during that era. And, Ninten- and excuse me, Sega did it later on towards the end of the Genesis's lifespan. Nintendo was finding so many tricks and they were so slick and clever at not having to introduce new hardware, whether it be through new chips inside their cartridges or making you believe they were doing a whole hell of a lot more than what should have been capable on that system. And, you know, that was another gunshot to Sega because that gave them time to perfect their craft of their next system or do whatever it was they needed to do R&D wise while Sega kept introducing new hardware pieces. So it made them look foolish. You know what I mean? And that was another yeah. tough uh that was another tough pill to swallow. I mean, remember that pill to swallow when you saw the effects showcase in Yoshi's Island and Donkey Kong Country. Which you know what I mean like Donkey Kong Country and stuff like that like always gets me because they were like they they touted that as being it, it it's kind of the Apple thing, right? They tout something as being this magical experience when it's just like, okay, there's still sprites. It's just the original source is 
you know, rendered characters instead of like hand drawn characters. Yeah, but at the but look, but at but, that time, I mean, still, but, but Nintendo mean, like got in people's heads that their system was doing something the Genesis couldn't do. And to Sega's credit, and the masters on their end, and while it came too late, and the character didn't have maybe that charm, so to speak. Sega was able to pull off miracles technologically in Vector Man. Yeah. Because they had Donkey DKC came, and then I think Vector Man was like right after it. Or I mean, you were seeing things towards the end of the Genesis lifespan that was amazing. The other factor there was is they were doing amazing stuff on standard Genesis carts. Here was the problem. They had a Sega CD and a 32X sitting there. Once again, going back to the Genesis cartridges, they were doing amazing things. They shouldn't have been able to do, but things had become so confusing and clouded, and Nintendo still all had it on the one-stop shop in the SNES. And here's the thing what the problem, part of the problem is, is in Japan, I think there's a different mentality towards experimental hardware, where I think you can come out with a CD add-on, you can come out with the, these these peripherals or whatever, and be like, hey, we're going to try this, let's see if it works. You know, and if it doesn't work, eh, it's not a not a super huge deal at the end of the day. Like, I mean, that mentality might have changed somewhat in Japan over time, but I know for a long time that was kind of the way, and that's why you saw all many di- all all so many different kinds of experimental things in Japan in terms of you know technology, portable stuff, and and things like mini disc and and whatnot, and things that didn't catch up on, on the West, but Japan was more open to the idea of that that experimentation. I think that's kind of part of what was Sega's problem is that they're like, okay, let's just bring the CD thing out. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, and that might've worked in Japan, but it didn't really work in America because I think over here, if you bring it out and then it just kind of doesn't get support and it dies, people remember that, you know, and, and I think Nintendo could survive it with a virtual boy. Cause they had just like so much goodwill built up. Right. But I think, you know, this, it was too early kind of in the heritage of Sega for what people thought of them as a company and their fan base, especially their fan base, because if you have more hardcore players, they're going to be more upset, I think, if you release something and they don't support it properly. I, I agree. I mean, that's, you know, as a matter of fact, because of that mentality and having lived through that, I'm always amazed today at what Apple is able to get away with. Yeah. I mean, God, I feel like they're putting something new out every six months. Yeah. And and I'm even more stunned. As a matter of fact, I do think of Sega every time I see them doing it, even though we're kind of comparing apples to oranges. I can't believe, like, every time I go past the Apple store and there's a new product out, like, there is a line that wraps around the whole building. And I'm like, God, Sega... They put something out every two years, and they got slaughtered. You know, two totally different things, kind of. But it's like, from a tech standpoint, it's like I can't believe the mainstream are willing to upgrade as much as they are present day. And I think it's gonna be a big question though going forward: is is have people's because you know, I mean, the last generation was so long compared to what the other generations have been. It's gonna be a question of. You know, are are consumers going to be willing to upgrade? I feel like I feel like they're getting less and less willing, at least with game consoles. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. 
Well, you know, I thought that, yeah, this is a little off base, but I thought this uh, console generation, the one we're on right now, might have been going a little bit swifter than last generation due to development hurdles they had previous generation with PS3 and all that. But let me tell you something. I got to tell you something. Not that I'm in need of any more games because I am not. This start of this generation, in my opinion, has been a slow burn. Yeah, I mean, people say that, and I, I, it's for what it's they... weird. It's it's weird because as 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 long as it took for us to get these new consoles, you would think they would be ready for the new consoles. You got yeah, and and it's the way they express the the more ease and PC like architecture. And I'm not disputing that. I'm assuming it may be coming down to the game worlds and and the the workloaded hand, but be that as it may be after the way they express the superior performance, much easier development. It it seems it doesn't seem any faster this start than it was last generation. In my opinion, I think it will be though. I think part of it has been, they've had to still support the old systems or they had to kind of move projects from the old to the new. So I think going forward, it'll be a better setup. I think it's just kind of the initial kind of, you know, growing pains and getting past the point where they can just drop the old systems and not think about right. it anymore. But, <clears throat> so, I don't, so that we're not here for eight hours, 30, 32X was this really weird idea of, well, we... I, I, I've, I've heard like a lot of different tellings of this story, so I'm never sure like what the exact truth behind it is. It's kind of like, you know, well, we've got this entire Genesis consumer base, you know, do we want to just drop them? Do we want to give them something to get, squeeze some money out of them? You know, do we do we need something to transition, help transition to, this, to our, you know, 32-bit system? What do we do? But the 32X comes out and it kind of makes games better and it it adds more stuff and all of a sudden you can you can plug your 32X and your Sega CD into your Genesis and you have this gigantic super tank of a console. Like you want to bitch about like how big consoles are these days like that was <laughs> a crazy monstrosity you had going on when you had that. Um like the 32X, I think, was one of the few Genesis systems that I just waited on for a long time. And I kind of just bought it when it was cheap at Toys R Us. And I I, I don't know how often I've even used mine. I don't, I don't know if it works at all. And I don't even know what games I own for it. Because I just didn't care. Like, I, I was smart enough. Like, I was working at Game Fan at the time. I was smart enough to realize this was just a total stopgap until the Saturn came out. So like on on your side, did you did you get a thirty two X? Did you? No, the only time I remember contemplating it, buying into the hoopla was because uh, I had the Sega CD. They were like, well, it, like you said, not only if you had a Genesis Sega CD and thirty two X, certain titles would be able to take advantage of all three components. And I think the only game right. that may have arguably was that Fahrenheit Firefighter game or whatever. Yeah, there weren't there weren't very There was many one or two games maybe, but so like when I was reading that in the magazine, you know, once again my gears are turning, but you know what? I even I couldn't convince myself on the 32X I did skip over and then as we'll get to I I did get a Saturn. 
Yeah, so I mean, I just, I just don't feel like there's much about thirty two X. No, like, I mean, I literally, the library was small. They had it maybe, was interesting. It had a couple interesting games for it. After what the thirty two X came out like in maybe like ninety four. Uh, when did it come out? Thirty two X came out in yeah uh, ninety four. So with almost a decade of waiting, one got was arguable uh, the best uh, port of Space Harrier. I mean, it's it's funny I, because it's I funny never to played think that. Yeah, it came out like five years after Genesis. Yeah. Um, but it's it was it was a year well here it's, a little, little, little less than a year before Saturn came out. Once again, so. jogging the me here is another kick in the pants. They had a decent like well, I use that word lightly. They had a decent version of Doom on there. Decent version of Doom. Decent version but, of Mortal Kombat. But then the SNES, while it was ugly looking. Got a version of Doom on cartridge. Yeah, but I think that the, wasn't the thing was like oh, it was so letterboxed. One of it was like super super small, and the yeah. other version was like didn't have the music or something like yeah. that. Yeah, but you know what I mean. It was just one. It was just one yeah. of those things. Like you know, they could still say they got. Do you know what I mean? Doom on their console. Yeah, yeah. It for me, I think it was like what you mentioned, like uh, Space Harrier port. Yeah, and Star and Wars Arcade. Star Wars Arcade. They had Chaotix on there, which tempted me. They had, like, I, I think, like the two big, in, like, unique games were Chaotix and Colibri. That's yeah. They had the, that. And I the, think they had the a Humming decent version of uh, Blackthorn. Yeah. So I mean, they had a few things, but it it was I I feel like it was evident pretty quick that thirty two X was not going to do anything. Right. And then you're talking about confusion. So all of a sudden, here was the <laughs> here was the talk. It's like okay, so we're gonna have. If I remember correctly, is okay. We're gonna have the Genesis. You can plug thirty-two X into it, and then we're gonna have the Neptune, which can play Sega Genesis games and thirty-two X games. Uh, but then we're also gonna have the Saturn, which is gonna have a cartridge slot, which you can maybe play your thirty-two X games in the cartridge slot. What a mess! And. It was like people didn't know what to do. What a know? mess. And the the thing was like a year and I said I I would need to go back and really read into like what the story on 32X was cuz I just I've read so many things at this point I'm confused as to which one's the, the real thing, but the Saturn came out May 1995, so 6 years after the launch of the Genesis. If if they had just held out that one more year just said, okay, we're going to have one more year of really cool Genesis games, and then you're going to get a brand new system. I mean, the Saturn has its own problems, which we'll get to, you know. But if they'd least done that, I think they would have looked much better. Or if they'd said, you know what, the the Sega CD is, is our new system until we get a new system. So let's put our effort on, in, like into the Sega CD and see if we can do anything about pushing this console and, and getting you know more good games out there and stuff. Well, well, this needs to be mentioned as well. Another behind, Here's a behind-the-scenes factor that I've read that started to play a part. Is that... Now we're going to get into the politics of it. So Kalinske and Sega of America had the success with the Genesis and proved that an underpowered system against the SNES could be successful. But the Mega Drive, as it was known overseas, wasn't selling well in Japan. Uh, to put this into perspective, the... What the Turbo Graphics was here in the U.S. was essentially what the Mega Drive was in Japan, 
right. and the PC Engine was actually rather successful. So that aside, Japanese management or certain suits, like uh, I believe it was middle management, w- there was enough of them pressuring the Sega of Japan president at the time, and it turned into like, you know, the top management's like, well, hey, you know, this is selling well in the U.S., why can't you guys sell it? So then middle management started busting chops with the Western division causing Kalinsky to gracefully step, you know, they didn't tell him to, they didn't the top management didn't want him to leave, but because of just the way the hierarchy or the structure worked there and the pressure, like, you know, being in the pressure cooker, like needing these sales overseas and, you know, wondering why it was doing so well here and they couldn't do it. Now we get into the political game of like the office games. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was the start of – that was another aspect. That was the start of the end because as they were prepping for the Sega Saturn, there were some very interesting opportunities I didn't learn of till later that Sega had the opportunity to take advantage of and that they were willing – at least on the American end, were willing to do or to put input on. And their mind – they like they already had laid out or it was a done deal with what they were going to do with the Saturn. Which is kind of right. like when you look at it now, hindsight until you're like, it's amazing. It's interesting because as an adult now and, and working a, you know, a quote real job and having done so for years, working in an office, if you're someone that has never had a, like a real office job, or if you're lucky enough to be your own person, more power to you. And I envy that. But like, once you get into the, the political aspect of an office or a corporate aspect, when you read the Sega history, hindsight is twenty twenty. When you look at it on paper and you look at the success of the Genesis or the opportunities they had to carry on to the 32-bit generation versus the decisions they made, you scratch your head and you go, how could a group of individuals be so ignorant? How could you make such rudimentary and stupid mistakes? Yeah. I can tell you as an adult after having worked in various offices, <laughs> I and I, I can completely and unfortunately see why that ha- – like it could be as simple or dumb as – and this isn't what was written. I'm going to give an analogy like it's like sometimes you can tell me to make a certain decision and if it makes my life easier and I don't have to hear you squawk, you know what? I may make a decision that may not be the best if it's if it's an evil that will get you out of my hair for a few days or enable me to think. But when you look at it with a clear head from a business perspective and you look at the decisions Sega made or the opportunities they had and the individuals they had making the right decisions versus what they did, what a tragedy. Yeah. Because now those effects, those issues now relay over to present day. Now what do you have at Sega? What do you, what do you have in the Western division? It's a shell – to say it's a shell of its former self – isn't doing that statement justice. <laughs> like, look at 20 years later, you had a an empire, a success, and you still had those individuals that were willing to hang in there for at least a little bit longer. It could have literally changed gaming history because of stubbornness, certain traditions, inner office conflict. You now have what you have today. And I mean, I mean that we've seen that like time and time again. I mean, that's you can argue that's what happened with the PS3, right? Is it was, you know, an office of people trying to come to an, an agreement of what to do with the console versus 
you know, a few people really focusing in on what needs to be done and, and having some sort of vision behind it. But I mean, I guess, I guess I, guess I got to be careful because at the same time, the PS3, everything about Ken Kudaragi and his insanity, you know, that was the kind of system I'm sure he wanted to do when he was just, you know, crazy. <coughs> What and, and, Sony has to be thankful for the last generation, well, there's, they have to be thankful that they were riding off such a high success of PS2, and even though a lot of their fan base defected at the time to 360, there was still a there was still a huge audience there for the PlayStation platform, which forced developers and Sony to create the proper software. To, right. to maintain the system competing. The PS3, to me, in many ways, echoed the Sega Saturn. It was the Sega yeah. Saturn of its time, but the reason yeah. it survived and made money was because it was riding off such a huge fan base of the previous generation, and they were on top for two generations. Well, you also, you also had a, a company that was really willing to willing and able I should say not just willing, willing and able to um make sure that a long line of great games still came to the hardware. Yes. That's yes, that is a fair statement. Yes. And games that you know, God bless Sega for the games they released, but games that would catch on with you know, um a wider audience of players versus the very, very niche stuff that hit the Saturn. And uh, it seems like we are back. uh, GVGP episode three, session four, uh, pretty much has the uh, infinity code going on with it at this point. Yeah. So I, I, as, as I, as you kind of people, as people who listen has kind of heard, um, to that, what, what to them is a little while ago, uh, I basically just dumped this water all over my computer, and it ended up being um, a bigger deal than I had initially thought. So we we kind of like stopped the recording, and now it's days and days later. So instead of like trying to be all smart and pretend like it's still the same day and everything, we're just being totally honest and saying, look, it's like days later. And we're finishing the show now. And plus, we were we were tired because it was way too late. Well, it's a pleasure to be back, and uh, you know, my my condolences go to your computer. Uh, that's that's never anything that's fun, and I hope it can get. Yeah, because it's it's you know it's it's funny because a simple thing like okay, so the, the trackpad is going out now because I, I I it's it's got just water damage inside and everything, and you initially think okay, your trackpad's going out, so you just hook a mouse up to it, right, and just use the mouse. Uh, the problem, though, is because the trackpad is still kind of alive, it'll just randomly do things on its own. Mm. So I'll be, like, looking at the webpage, and all of a sudden, like, it'll, like, zoom in the webpage, like, really close, and then zoom it back out. Or it'll, like, switch to a different desktop so that I'm looking at a different application and stuff. Um, or I'll be typing something, and, like, it'll move the cursor around. So even though I, you're, I'm thinking I could just hook a USB mouse to it and do it things that way, like, the... The haunted trackpad I now have is making it impossible to use. So I'm going to 
be taking it to a local shop to see so i went to apple just for full disclosure to people listening i went to apple and they're they're like yeah it's going to cost you too much to fix it here so you probably don't want to do it um so i'm going to go and see if i can get it fixed and if not i'm going to have to um see it's it's the bad thing too is that it their their intel is like just getting ready to start releasing this new uh thing called broadwell mobile chip this will be a lot, like a lot better than their current stuff and so the rumor is that will that won't start being available in Mac laptops until early next year. Mm. So I'm also in a really bad timing for this because it doesn't make sense for me to buy a computer now. It makes sense for me to wait until the beginning of next year and see if those systems come out. So I've got this little 11-inch MacBook Air that I have for work. That is now my main computer and that comes kind, of, kind of survive on so we'll see how that goes not to get sidetracked yet again which our listeners have become accustomed to with us uh do, do you like the uh, 11 inch air i it's um when i first got it i was like man this thing is tiny and you do get worried that it's it's kind of small but i was talking to anthony off off recording was that i previously had a 21 inch imac as my main computer I swapped that out for the 15-inch MacBook that I spilled water on. And I actually really, really like the 15-inch size display, and I think that's, like, plenty for right. me. Um, so the 11-inch isn't really terrible for me to use. It, the The worst thing is, like, there's a few applications where you can just feel like they were never meant to be on a screen that small. Mm. Like, you'll be in Photoshop, and the, the save dialog boxes will just be a little bit bigger than they should be and stuff but otherwise it's it is a great i mean i i I have co-workers and friends and stuff who look around their laptops you know like these real full-size laptops and i could just never imagine doing that anymore right um because this is so small and light that like this is this is the biggest i would ever want to carry around this point in terms of actually taking it places and in in terms of that it's it's like it does everything great for me i'm still using the uh, big daddy Alienware, yeah. but I yeah, I, I can't like man those those PC laptops I just can't. but I I will say I next year may be the year finally that I go over to get a a Mac and I do like the Airs so that's uh, I, you know say we have we also have we have um we currently have four Apple laptops no I'm sorry five Apple laptops in this household wow uh, given the old ones we need to get rid of in my work one um but the uh, we have a 13 inch air that is not mine uh but that is actually a really nice computer um and i mean like unless i would say unless you're gonna be wanting to play games it will do like everything you mm. need to do like ga- games games are tough on it definitely but otherwise it's just a wonderful little computer and they're actually not badly priced so mm. if you're gonna switch like i think going that kind of route makes total sense and i said i don't know like how like how big is your the display uh, honestly one? it's crazy at the time it's i got a 17 ah uh, it's a 17 but yeah you know i i do use some of my friends uh their macbook air and they've got a lot of different mac products and the 13 is something that i've looked at in the past uh you know i'm going to say the same thing that every other potential app buyer probably says and i just wish they're a little bit cheaper yeah, no, I know, I know. You know, but um, and I was gonna say screen size wise, that's that's why I also like my 11 inch Air because after I use this, anything else looks gigantic. Yeah. 
So even like even like the 13 inch air is like oh my god huge. But yeah, like like, like I'll use this and I'll go back to my 15 inch and I'll be like, this is so ginormous. Right. I don't even know how, what I'm doing with all the space. So it's a perfect kind of thing to get used to and then go back to something mm. else. Um, yeah, I mean, I said I, I've I've been a Mac person my entire life, so I'm kind of used to the price. But I I do understand you know that kind of hesitation, right? Because they are they you know they're they, they could they could be a little cheaper. Yeah. Well, I guess. But you know, you know what, you know what also could have been cheaper. <laughs> what a, what a segue! The, seg- the, the, the Sega. What Saturn. a segue! Bingo! Yes, the uh, three ninety nine May at night. Back 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 at a point when it's it's funny it's funny how generations change us, right? Because when Saturn came out three ninety nine, it was like, oh my god, how expensive. And then when the PS4 comes out at three ninety nine, you're like, "Oh my God, how cheap!" <laughs> right? Well, well, yes, that is a perfect segue into where we left off. Uh, we are now onto the onto the thirty two bit era of Sega officially in the Sega Saturn. Once again, to recap, we are discussing our own personal Sega memories, maybe with a little bit of history intermixed. And uh, for myself, you know, the Saturn has uh, some very fond memories. Uh, I'll let you talk a little bit here first, if you want. Uh, what? Yeah, because I mean, because obviously, I think the thing to start off with is kind of like how you how you came into the Saturn and you're you're kind of purchasing it and stuff. And I know for me, it's it's really funny because I was talking about how much of a Sega person I'd become, you know. And I I after the NES, I was not. A Nintendo person, I, I, I never really, and even when I had the NES, I was never really a super huge fan of Nintendo's games. Like I bought and played the original Super Mario Brothers. I don't know if I actually loved it or not, but you know, I, I liked I liked Metroid and and I love Metroid and stuff. But there weren't a lot of games out there that I liked, so I kind of had gotten away and become a Sega person. And you know, I had said previously in the show how much I adore the Genesis, but. Something like something came up, and I really, really appreciated the things that Sony was doing for their for their new PlayStation system. You know, they came they came in. They were this kind of new player. They're saying we're doing this all for developers. We're gonna make a system that is very very developer friendly, um, and all this kind of stuff. And just something about the, the PlayStation caught my eye, so I actually didn't get a Saturn when it first came out. I saved up all my money and went and got a PlayStation. So, um, I, I mean, and to the point that, that I started making, I was getting back into doing fanzines and my first video game fanzine at that point was a PlayStation dedicated fanzine. So I was kind of like, you know what? I'm 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 like over Sega, and maybe I'm not a Sega person anymore. I'm gonna go to this PlayStation, and it seems like they have a lot of cool stuff going on, a lot of good ideas. So I did that, but it's it's just it's just so funny because it's it's one of those things where, um, and I'm sure you've been to this this too, Anthony. Is whenever a new hardware generation comes out, and you make your decision on which console to get. And you buy it, and you you, you think you're going to be totally fine with that decision, but then just 
something about one of the other consoles catches your eye, right? And you're like, oh, now I kind of want that one too. You know, like I remember that with um, uh, the Xbox 360, you know, because I, I, had, I had a PS3 at first and I'm like, oh, maybe I want an Xbox 360 or um, a system we'll talk about later, the Dreamcast. You know, I had my Dreamcast and I'm like, oh, maybe I want a PS2. There's like this, this kind of just internal thing eating away at you when you don't have that system. And that's kind of how I started feeling with the Saturn. And I was like, maybe, maybe I do want the Saturn. And they had this promotion, and I, I can't remember, I can't remember exactly what point in the in the Saturn's life this came. I know it came early, but I don't know exactly what point. But there was this offer where you got Clockwork Knight and. Um, the soccer game, maybe, for free. Mm. If you got the system, like there was this big promotion in America, we had these two free games if you bought it. And I was, I was kind of like, well, how, how can I not <laughs> buy this system? I'm getting like two free games. Right. Like this is too good of a deal. Pass up. And of course, now if it was at this point in my life, I would be smart enough to realize. They were doing that before they then dropped the system's price. And those two games aren't probably games you're going to really care about that much anyway. Uh, no offense to Clockwork Knight, but, you know, maybe maybe you should just wait a little longer before you get the system. But, of course, I was young and foolish. So I went to Toys R Us, and I spent the three ninety nine to get the system. And so that's how I, I came to get it. But you know what? I think I've actually screwed up because I think I think what we should do is explain like what the big catch to the Saturn's release was because that that was a very very big deal. Well, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind. I don't know if this is what you mean, but you know, not only at the what was it the ninety five E three press conference uh, were Sega and Sony finalizing their launch plans. Sega pulled out a random card. And not only did they finalize their plans at that E3, they've released their system that same day of the E3 show in May, uh, several months ahead of Sony, you know, to to capture the hardcore, get it out on market, and get what... Which was crazy. I mean, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine... You know, it's so funny, I was thinking of it recently, and it's so ironic we started the show talking about Apple, but the the only company I see getting away with doing a show and then announcing products and releasing either right. either the same day or within 10 days of discussing it as apple but uh yeah. here... and, and, and i mean and i mean i mean to be to be fair i i i can appreciate what they're, they're trying to do because like i mean can you think like in this era right like go back to e3 of last year you know remember that big thing that sony did about like how we're not gonna have drm and we're not gonna have this and that yes. and we're gonna have this kind of price can you imagine that they did that also by the way the PS4 is out there. Um, oh today. my god! Like that would have been just insanity. <laughs> so I understand what they were trying to go for. And what they did was they 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 shipped Saturns to um, a few retailers. Uh, Toys R Us was a big one. The Babbage's, and then also Babbage's and Electronic Boutique right. and Software, etc. Time, um, which ha- aren't all those are all, all those three now basically that was stuff. all under um yeah i think what used to be god i'm going to show my age it used to be under like neo star and but yeah they were all awesome. in the same awesome. family of stores yeah. 
and uh, yeah, which obviously upset other retailers, and then and yeah. then Sega was essentially living off those four or five launch titles at the time up until September. Yeah, I mean they had almost they had almost nothing. Um, I mean, to, not, to be fair, looking back, to be fair, especially given like some of the absolute terrible launch lineups other consoles have had, because um, it was what it was like Virtua Fighter, it was Daytona. Right. Um, I don't think Panzer Dragoon was was it launch or it was like a month after. I want to say, I don't think that one made U.S. launch, but uh, but yeah, they, only, they it was very slim pickings. Yeah, but, but to, say, to be fair, like it was a pretty decent lineup of games, but it was kind of like you you felt like um, because at that same E3, basically Sony comes out and they announced like and and. and it, Basically, the guy walks up on stage, and um, was it like Steve Race? Was that who it was at the time? Uh, he he walks on stage, and he's like two ninety nine, and then he just walks back off. Right. You know, so Sony got this, this just big wave of excitement from their price being hundred dollars cheaper, kind of like Sony did again uh, against the Xbox One. You know, so. Saturn had kind of this window to see, okay, if it's gonna if it's gonna really have a chance to get some, you know, a good foothold against the PlayStation, it's gonna need these extra months. And to be fair, it seemed like an interesting idea, but it was an idea that kind of backfired. And just to, to coincide with what you're saying, and I'll, I will cite my source, and to many people's surprise, it is not Wikipedia. This is coming from Retro Gamer issue 134 out of the UK. Uh, so one, Shidoshi, you are correct. It was Steve Race. And uh, also at that E3, there were leaflets printed by Sony which said, if you buy a Saturn, your head is in Uranus. Yes, I do remember that. But the biggest blow came when Steve Race, a former Sega employee, made an incredibly short speech about the PlayStation's price. $299 he uttered before walking straight back off the stage. Yes. Which, you know, as the kids would say, is a totally baller move. <laughs> oh, but, but you know, um, while Sony got their licks in then and Sony did the damage and Sony came out on top that generation with what we're here to s- discuss this evening. The irony in the whole thing is that, and we alluded to it earlier in the show when we were talking about polygons versus sprites and art direction. You know, in many ways, many of the exclusive, the pure Saturn classics have aged better than a lot of the PlayStation 1's library. Yeah. Um, it's... Well, before we get that real quick, so, I, so what, 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 what was your kind of, like, how did you come to Saturn? Was there so, any kind of interesting so, so this story is kind of, Okay, so yeah, there is actually an interesting story. And I would say, as, as one can tell, you know, I've been a Sega fan since essentially the start through the arcades. We discussed the Master System, the Genesis, the add-ons. Right. So this isn't something where I became a Sega fanboy or got into Sega purely once the Saturn came. So been there the whole ride. Now, with that being said, the Saturn did have interest uh, to me before its release. But that three ninety nine price tag was tough, and PlayStation was in the pipeline. But one day, like literally one day, got up. And I don't know if it may have been after seeing Virtua Fighter in the arcades and then wanting to actually really sit down with it at home. I think it was a combination of that, being bored. And then after that E3 announcement, as summer was coming, 
uh, that's what made me want it, kind of. And I'm like, you know, I yeah, kind of want the Saturn, but, th- but this is what I, system, But right? what I did was I didn't have that kind of money, and I didn't have a job. I sold my Atari Jaguar and my collection, which was at least 12, between 12 and 14 Ooh. games. Mm-hmm. So I brought that in, traded everything in, and I had enough for a brand new Saturn. Uh, it was like within the first four days after it launched, I got the system, Virtua Fighter with it, and then within the month or two after owning it, I shortly thereafter picked up Daytona and then Panzer Dragoon. Mm-hmm. So it just happened to work out. You know, it was a combination of things. What turned out to be bad a bad decision for the company, speaking personally, was good for me because I had something to unload, so to speak. And it gave me something to do that summer as PlayStation right. came. And, you know, I would make a bold statement saying, you know, outside of the Neo Geo, which was like dedicated 2D hardware, you know, hardware for the masses coinciding with CD-ROM technology, you know, the Saturn was the was the 2D. It was the system. Well, and, and yeah, and I mean, like, one thing with the Saturn was, like, I think – the whole idea of 3D gaming really caught Sega off guard. And that's that's kind of one of a number of things that led to Saturn's downfall was that, you know, I mean, because if if you if you looked at gaming at the time, and it, it, it might be hard to appreciate now, but I don't think we really knew that 3D was going to become this big next generational leap in, in gaming because... Like, did you ever play, um, there was, oh, the original Test Drive, for example. Oh, I can't believe you're bringing that up. You, I can't believe you're bringing that up. <laughs> so, like, the, the original Test Drive, or you played, like, you know, Hard Drive-In, yep. um, or you played kind of like, this, we talked about before, like, the Star Wars arcade game, um, or you played Virtual Fighter, you know? There, there were, there were games that were in 3D, but... 3D, I think a lot of times to us were still these really, really low poly, polygon count games. You know? Like like these games that were that were they were uh, I don't want to put them in the same level as FMV, but I I, d- I did kind of feel like for a while they were this gimmick, right? That oh this is this this crazy new thing. Oh, they can do these these three D polygon effects. It's kinda of like mode seven too on the Super NES. You know? Yeah, I want you to finish your point. I don't want to be yeah, I, I'm I'm with you maybe halfway but not fully. Well yeah, I I, I, I said that I, I think there was definitely a point when we started realizing they were something. Right. But I do think for a while it was like, okay, virtual fighter I mean like think about like really think about Virtual Fighter, the original one, versus Virtual Fighter two. Those were worlds apart. Right. And the original Virtual Fighter was this kind of, eh, it's cool, but I don't know that I'd want this, to, like, every, you don't want, you know, you're not you're not thinking Street Fighter 3 is going to be like this, right? You're not thinking that. You're not thinking, oh, the next King of Fighters is going to be this. You know, it seemed like this kind of gimmicky thing. I think it seemed like a gimmicky thing at a certain point where, when Sega started making their next hardware system, I think it was for them a very logical conclusion. The next system would be something that would be a 2D powerhouse, but could do some kinds of these weird 3D Right. They could still dabble in that and do some beautiful effects with it, but not maybe not dedicate an entire game to that. 
you know, a right. pure 3D game. Yes. yes. So you said you kind of like half agreed. Well, no, this is so weird. And I, I, it's not even a direct quote. And this is so like, I don't even know if I'm remembering this correctly because this would have been in the eighties, the mid to late eighties when I still lived uh, in New York and, and not to get into family, but growing up kind of my closest friend was a, a cousin of mine and uh, he was several years older and we just we hung out because the area I grew up in was was crummy, and so we would always do things together. There's a point to this. I'll wrap it back around. And I was always into the console stuff. Like I had the Nintendo, I had the Sega Master System, and all that stuff. And he would come over, and he'd always like he'd like get upset with it, or he'd always be like, "Oh, you know, he had a computer, and he always liked the computer more, and never really wanted to play the console games, and he'd always be dogging the console stuff." But that was because we were both young and. We didn't really understand how mm-hmm. this stuff worked. And I remember going over to across the street where he lived and going into his room. And I believe he had the Commodore 128 at the time. And and I want to say they had a version of Test Drive on there. Because that's the one where you could use the windshield wipers and I dare say even pull over for gas. Does that sound accurate? Um, I know. I remember the windshield wipers part. I don't remember. Oh, I don't but yeah. So the there was definitely part, the... I know, I know you were driving like a Corvette. Yeah. And, you were kind and of that was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that was using polygons, correct? Yeah, it, it was, uh, I, th- I think it was polygons because it was a really, really early game. And I, I, re- I remember it being Now, mind polygons, you, I must have I been could... like seven years old, eight years old tops at this time. And I still remember th- he told me, I don't know how we got on the discussion, and he was about five years my senior and I don't know if he read it in a magazine at the time or whatever, which would have been way the hell beyond me at the time. And I remember him saying to me that he said that developers or whoever felt that the future of games were using polygons like triangle, like you said, triangles and squares, but they couldn't realize their vision because they needed more like the more that they could use they'd be able to more fully realize their vision but at the time the capabilities just weren't there and i remember like and mind you i was so young like i thought like i I remember the only reason i couldn't believe that is not because i understood the concept being that young i remember i found that so hard to believe because after looking at test drive i thought it looked like crud like you know what I mean? Like it, looking right, back on yeah. it now, it's, pro- it's probably an amazing feat for what they did with that hardware at the time. But like, you know, I was used to looking at stuff like you know, like Space Harrier or Double Dragon, and as we all know now, those used sprites and that had a certain art style. That was a that was a form of art via the sprites. So when you look at something that was trying to be more realistic with such primitive technology in 3D, it looked terrible. Right, right. So anyway, yeah. that's where I got off on that. And so to me, it was so funny. That when the when the towards the mid nineties hit, he he or they were they were right because it, to this day everything and you can see, you, I don't have to explain this to you you could see the progression you went from what ten twenty thirty polygons on screen from thirty years ago and now the more the keep the more you keep doing you know now we're at a point where we can recreate you know photorealism right yeah so I said I I think. Like I said, again, I'll go back to saying it. You look at Virtual Fighter and Virtual Fighter 2, I think those two games, like that's a perfect example of how that first game, I don't I don't know that you could have ever realized that that was going to be the future. So it seemed like, okay, this is like an interesting kind of gimmick that we can do now. We can make these 3D games. 
but you get the virtual fighter 2 and you're like okay this is definitely where gaming is going but so i think sega didn't realize the, the future of gaming whereas sony came in and they're like okay we are betting on these polygon things you know to at a point to the detriment of 2d um and so when Sega realized like what Sony was doing with the PlayStation, they had to go in and, and they added additional hardware to the system, which complicated development even more. And as we've learned over time, um, hard to develop consoles can win, but hard to develop consoles can also just destroy themselves because at a certain point, you know, maybe companies don't want to put that effort out anymore well yeah and not to echo what was already said earlier in our recording uh, several days ago you know i truly feel in my heart the closest thing to the saturn again except it was able to pull through the ps3 was kind of the the modern generation saturn with quirky hardware yeah. challenges yeah but the another weird uh, comparison i want to make earlier we talked about how in the late 80s when we saw Fantasy Star, it was hard to wrap our brains around it because we had never seen anything like that from the East or that true, that Japanese-style RPG, which was uh, literally so foreign to us, and how that's crazy for probably some younger listeners to imagine now. Well, another thing that's got, it's hard to imagine was I couldn't get over upon seeing Virtua Fighter. When I first saw the arcade unit, I could not understand how the people were controlling the game <laughs> absolutely because of absolutely, all yes. the camera movement. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and it's such an insane thing to it's so second nature now. It's it, like the, the thing that's even crazier is Virtua Fighter was still technically always brought one back to a 2D plane, a 2D perspective, but you could move around 3D space on the uh on the floor that you fought on, so you know that you could roll around on. Right. But there would be some camera shifts with wind poses, certain maneuvers. And it's so crazy. Now, present day, the these FPS games or third-person action games, there's there's so much camera movement. And I'm not saying it's bad. There's so much camera work, cinema-style integration. You have a whole analog stick dedicated to a camera. Like, it's amazing in the span of 20 years. Like, I couldn't even imagine controlling a one-on-one -on -one fighter uh, versus now interacting with a, a recreated, a, a literally a virtual world now on our television. And I mean, it makes us sound so old, but I do like, I, I, it makes me laugh when you say that because I remember being there, seeing Virtual Fighter and just like your brain just kind of like doesn't understand what it's seeing for a little bit, you know? And like, wait, how, how is this a real do, game? Do you know like, what I how... kept asking the people that were yeah. playing it? Because I didn't play it that day. I still remember exactly where I was too, but I was about 13, 14 at the time. And a couple of my buddies had played it and I didn't. And I kept asking them, how does it control? Or I'm like, how are you controlling it? Like, I kept asking mm -hmm. like how the stick responded. Like, I, can you imagine like... I couldn't grasp, like, and, you know, right. being a hard, you know, this was at the time a little bit older now and understanding more of gaming. I just couldn't understand, like, compared to Street Fighter or those games, like, how you could keep up with it. Yeah. But. No, I was the same way. I was the same way. Like, it was, like, just this thing that, like, it was, like, witchcraft. <laughs> you know, like, how, how are you playing this? Like, I don't, I don't understand this works. How does this exist? I, I will still say, before we get Devil back directly it. on topic, the one thing, no matter what the advances we've made with 3D control on 
on the TV screen and there's some gorgeous games. Like they've fixed a lot, a lot of things. I still always go back to the, the basics of, you know, I still will argue you, even if it's only a difference of a sliver now, 2D games are st- still to me the, the most precise and the best one done properly. And I always remember because, think about it, the what, the, the, what you're looking at when playing your games, the television, is still a flat surface. You, you can look yeah. at it, th- you're looking at 3D, you know, in movies or whatever, you're looking at, you can, you can look at, you know, uh, a movie or look at 3D within the television, so to speak, but the actual, your canvas is still right. a 2D piece. But, right. you know, but yeah, so that that's that. So that's that's how I got on board with the Saturn unloading Jaguar, came into it in that fashion. You know, they had kind of a, a, a short stack of titles at first. But that w- this was also the system that cemented, like, while I always enjoyed Sega and N- Nintendo simultaneously, and I still, in, you know, enjoy Nintendo present day, the Saturn was the one that, I would say, turned me into the Sega fan. See, it's funny for me because I'm almost tempted to say the Saturn's my least favorite Sega system. Wow. It's like, and and I I know part of that is because I I, so I mean here's the thing. So just 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 to to I guess finish my side of it was that I did the Saturn and I ended up I went like I've never gone back and forth in generation as much as I did that generation between the Saturn and PlayStation as which one I liked more. So when I got my Saturn, I ended up really loving it and getting away from the PlayStation for a while, and then I went back and then forth, and then I kind of liked both. Um, I I think like the Saturn was I think part of the problem for me was the Saturn was easily the 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 nichiest Sega system I, I you know to me and I guess I guess that's not, not that's not fair because that would be the master system obviously but but I know what you mean you I, I think I know what you're saying in terms of nichiest in terms of something that still had some quality there or was some more pseudo or tried to be mainstream after Sega found success, so it wasn't like this was something hidden away in a closet where no one knew what the hell this was? Because, I mean, because I, I think a lot of people, like, always talk about the, the Dreamcast being the the wildly creative Sega system, but you still had a lot of just big third-party games on the Dreamcast, whereas on the Saturn, you, you did have some, but just they were so rough compared to kind of their PlayStation equivalents a lot of the time. Um, I mean, there were some examples like that are alive or whatever, but I, I feel like there was just too often where I would not even consider getting the the Saturn version as my main way to play that game. You know, so to me, I'll I'll tell you exactly what Saturn was to me. To me, Saturn was the two D fighter machine. You know what? You, you, yeah, I was just going to clarify my stance because as I give this system praise and how much I love it. I was also going to say, I need to clarify for fans, you had to love 2D fighting games and old school style shoot 'em ups. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I think for people outside of those, like I think the Saturn didn't have a lot to offer. But so that that's why I kinda like I think it was okay because, you know, I had my PlayStation and my PlayStation was where I went to for the, the big stuff. You know, I mean 
I know there was Resident Evil for Saturn, but you really played on PlayStation, and you played Tomb Raider on PlayStation, and you played. You know, <laughs> no, I'm not making fun. I know. Wait, I never touched those on. You Saturn. know, you played Castlevania on PlayStation and everything. Um, but this, the, 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 when I did love the Saturn, and the, all the reason I loved the Saturn was because it it was if you were into shooters, if you were into 2D fighters and then also one very big point this was finally the moment where SNK got back into home consoles and, and, and they when, could do so when, very well with the, the hardware and when they did everything was so much better on right. the Saturn and, and part of this part of this reason this happened at a certain point was because and this is like so crazy to think about now, but um, it started with, if I'm not mistaken, King of Fighters '95. Yes, that yes, because that was my second ever import game. Yes, so and and that's the thing too. God, the Saturn was was the Saturn was really the system that got me into imports. Yep. Like, I mean, because it was because it was abysmal in America. Like the games we got, like we did not get so many of the great games. Um, but if you imported, man, there was a lot of good stuff to go through. So when King of Iron 95 hit, it came with this cartridge because on the Saturn, it had a cartridge slot in it. And I, I feel like this was like a, a, a remnant of the era when they were kind of wondering if they were going to have Genesis compatibility or if they were going to have 32X compatibility or things like that. And I think that's part of why this had a cartridge system or if they were going to have cartridge games as well, you know, if they were going to offer both. Um, but so there's a cartridge slot that hardly ever got used, but when you buy King of Fire 95, it came with this RAM cartridge. No, I'm sorry, not a RAM cartridge, a cartridge that had a lot of the data no, no, you the got game it right. stored on it. Yeah. Stored on it. No, 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 because 95s, wasn't 95s not a RAM I cartridge? I thought it was a one meg RAM cart, and then when... But I thought, see, I'm, I was thinking 95 was was a specific to 95 no because you could use that with other snk titles the issue was capcom's titles needed the four and then what was but wasn't wasn't there wasn't there one of the earliest games had it am i, am I wrong that had its own yeah, no you're yeah i have it i'll when we're off the air later i'll tw i'll just for you or for craps and giggles i'll i'll take some photos of it because okay now I think I think I'm right because I'm looking at the the photo of the cartridge, and it specifically says King of Five Ninety Five. Yes, no, that is true. That was the first one to come with the cart. So, but I think that could only be used mm -hmm. with ninety five. Right. Well, so we'll, we'll yeah. have to we'll have to figure that out. Um, because this is really isn't a game a game specific show anyway. <laughs> but so, one way or the other, it had a right. cartridge, and the idea was that. The game would, instead of sending everything to RAM and having to load things from RAM, it could load things directly from the cartridge, which would be a much faster solution. So this suddenly allowed the Saturn to access and store and use sprites way faster and way more efficiently than the PS1 uh, could. Because on the, on the PlayStation... Again, a system that was not really meant to be a 2D system. It had to do a lot of faking of sprites because really on the PS1, 
sprites weren't sprites per se they were they were textured polygons are you serious is that true yeah yeah that, that's that's how they, they get, the system did 2d games from everything i've oh. under ever ever known is it, it basically it, it you you textured polygons to make wow. to make sprites um so on there you know in a, on the limited ram like those kind of instead of instead of doing political textures you were basically putting in sprite artwork in a way and so that ate up a lot of RAM, and it had a lot of time. It had to access, you know, um, to load the new the new images in and send the old images out and everything. So, Chaos Nine Five comes out. It comes up with this cartridge. It's a really interesting idea. And then from there, again, we'll have to figure out who's right. Uh, SNK releases a a more generic looking cartridge. That can then be used with any of their games that support it, and that was a one was it one megabyte or one megabit? Uh, it's... I always get confused because it's, it's capital M capital B. I always get confused with what that is. Uh, I believe it's one megabyte. Okay, so so they had that one, and then Capcom on their side would end up releasing a four megabyte right. cartridge. So. You had from from the two big companies, you had all these ports of two D fighting games, um, and and to, to be fair, SNK wasn't as good as they should have been about bringing them all home. Uh, they but this was said this was this SNK finally getting back into making home console games after a long period of not doing anything but Neo Geo releases. Um, so you got all all the King of Fighters. <sighs> I don't they know got other they got SNK some Metal offhand. Slug. They got Sam three, Sam Metal four. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Sam R- Rushdown three and four. Oh, they got RBS. Um, that's that's right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Some some of the some of the Fatal Furies. They got um, a pretty wide assortment of the the fighters with a couple Metal Slugs sprinkled in. Because I was trying to think, I don't think they ever got art art of fighting mm, at all. That's a no. Yeah. Um, but so they get all those. And of course, on the on the Capcom side, you had the Street Fighter Alphas. You had at this point was it uh, X Men versus yeah, that Street was Fighter? The one that debuted with it. Yeah, the X Men Street Fighter, Marvel Superheroes versus Street Fighter. Yeah. Um, um. But but the thing to drive home is, you know, once again, again, sounding like old geezers, the difference in animation was incredible. Oh, yeah. Yep. It was incredible, and then even on the Cough ninety five. In between on the load screen, that when it loaded, which was which was very fast, so only a couple seconds at a time, there was even exclusive artwork that you got to see in between on the load screens. Yeah. And I think I said this on an earlier GVGP, not to keep repeating myself, but I, I won't give the whole story again. But, you know, nowadays, once again, here we go. We're so spoiled now. You know, if you, if you want to compare... Uh, an Xbox One to a PS4 to a 360 to a PS3 game, someone's going to have that video up the next day, split the screen four ways, show you the resolution, right? You know, I mean, you're going to see <laughs> right. this, like you're going to roll out of bed and then look at it for 10 minutes and go go back on with your day. Years ago, this wasn't, this was not like, to get a side-by-side comparison would was freakish. So you could read about it all day in the, in the publications or the likes of like your game fans that maybe had the ability to look at that stuff either either closely thereafter or do a side-by-side in the office. 
But for your average user at home, unless you're at a high-end retailer, you weren't going to see it. And I played X-Men Street Fighter, played the hell out of it on Saturn. And as the story goes, I went over to a buddy's house, saw the PlayStation version, and that was the first time in my life where I really... That's when I started to not study, but really take note of a game's animation or, uh, you know, like looking at something like Street Fighter 3 versus Street Fighter Alpha and Street, like all the differences in frames. And because that was stuff I never really uh, was good at. That mm-hmm. game, I attest to, that game made me a snob. Un, un, unless you that, were Nick well, <laughs> Rocks, you, you you typically always thought the Saturn version of these these fighting games were better. Um, so so let, let me let me go through like a quick list of some examples of, of 2D fighters in the system. So we had uh, Dark Soccer's Vampire Hunter, Vampire yes. Savior. So you have you have one of Capcom's uh, biggest non Street Fighter fighting game series. You have Alpha Alpha Two Alpha Three, of course, uh, which at the time I thought was a fantastic version of Street Fighter. Um, X-Men, Children of the Atom, Marvel Superheroes, Capcom's, you know, uh, uh, ventures into making the Marvel games. And then, of course, you had X-Men versus Street Fighter. And as you said, Marvel Superheroes versus Street Fighter. Uh, you had Street Fighter Collection. Yes. Um, which had, like, a bunch of the older Street Fighter 2s on it and everything. Fatal Fury 3, Real Bout, Fatal Fury, and Real Bout, Fatal Fury Special. See so a number of the, at the time, uh, big Fatal Fury games. World Heroes Perfect. You had KOF 95, 96, and 97. Uh, of course, at the time, I was very excited by that. Unfortunately, it never made it to 98, which would be you know one of my favorites in the in the series. <clears throat> you had, again, from Capcom, Cyberbots, which was a really cool 2D fighter with giant robots. You had, getting away from Capcom SNK, you had Waku Waku 7, Astro Superstars. Uh, I guess going back to Capcom real quick, you had Pocket Fighter. Um, you had... Asuka 120% Burning Fest, which I absolutely <laughs> really. Love I remember wanting to give it oh. a shot and import it, but I didn't know. Uh... The, the the problem at the time was like if you got the PlayStation version, it sucked. So, so, the humor me, tell amazing. me, tell me a little bit about that game because I remember seeing that like one or two photos in the back of mags, and I remember being a fighting game nut, and I remember looking at that, and I'm like, I want to give this a shot, and I never did. Okay, so one of the coolest things about the game is it had a parry system. But the parry the, the at the time because we didn't have Street Fighter three yet the parry system was a a forward tap oh like the just the cool defense thing, or whatever in Mark of the Wolves right but you could do the parries while you were running so whoa, what you whoa. would do is is you would have like my friend and I would always do this we like run at each other right and we'd start throwing out blows but then also be parrying so you just like really intense like back and forth like parry blow parry blow parry you know back it like it was like a kung fu movie almost. did it feel good though like it felt right oh it was so much fun it was so good and it was it was like one of those because the thing about i feel with like other games with parries like street fighter mm. or whatever they're very defensive right. this game was all about just rushing in and being offensive and so it was just so much you're just running in and jumping and 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 not playing defensive and not blocking you're just jumping in and parrying and attacking and everything and it was just such a, a fast-paced kind of game where did the characters come from in that game what was it based off uh, i think it was totally original really yeah because there's, there's been a number of oscar 20 percent games because there was this uh era where they were making a bunch of just like female <laughs> character fighting right. games because another, another Saturn title that i had that was not 
quite I, good was I, yeah that's X. another one i wanted to try yeah but no that's the problem is like the, the problem was oscar 120 percent came out and it was thought to be one of those kind of games uh you know it's like the, the, the crappy <laughs> chick fighters but it was so good I, i'll tell you another one i wanted to try and i'm assuming you may have that i missed out on it wasn't capcom or snk but was pretty kind of highly regarded uh groove on fight i was just gonna get to that um, so let me just real quick before I forget, uh, as you said, Sam show three and four, um, there was golden axe, the duel. I, wa- yeah, I should have gotten that. I wanted that. Um, I know there was, that's not on this list, but there was uh rabbit, which I, I think EA published it, but I can't remember who actually developed it. Um, but so, okay. So you also had Atlas, which you, at this, at this, in this era, well, I guess in the last couple of years, you maybe kind of think of them as doing fighting games in terms of Persona Fighter, but for a long time, you would never think of Atlas as, as a oh, fighting no game way. company. Yeah, no you way. Know. But Atlas had this, well, they, they actually technically do oh, still have it, this, uh, uh yeah, don't yes. tell me. Okay. You you know the it. Matramele, the with um the the oh, that that was a, that was a later chapter, but what is oh the actual God, what's, what's the main series I... called? <sighs> mm. Power instinct. Mm. There you go. Holy moly, go. I pulled that one out. So they had the power instinct series and I think it was chapter three. Um that was called Groove on Fight that came out oh. for Saturn. And, oh, I love that game so much as well. Um, it was a tag fighter too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a tag fighter. And so part of it was, like, the artist is uh, Ron Game Love Murata, his stuff. And love, love his stuff. And um, if I thought for a second, I could tell you what other, what other artwork, what other things he's done artwork for. But um, I know him as, like, doing a lot of this kind of Atlas stuff at that point. I didn't know you were a fan of his. Oh yeah, big. I have, big do you have, I actually I have had some a, of his import books. Do you have any? I don't, and I've always meant no. to because I actually like a long time ago. I had like I ran a fan site for him. What? Oh, well, you yeah, you should write a letter to Santa this year. <laughs> write a letter to Santa. Yeah, um, remind me. I'll see if I can dig anything up. I, I've I've always meant to like get some of his art. Yeah. yeah, but I I don't have any. But um, yeah. So and so yes, uh, match melee was. A later right, much one later. that came out yeah. on Neo Geo and PS2, yep. um, but oh, Groove on Fight was a really good game as well. And so that's the thing is like you had all of these really big, the King of Fires and the Street Fighter and the Darkstalkers and the Fatal Furies, you know. But then you had like all these kind of crazy, like lesser known 2D fighters too, and it was just like yeah. So to me, thinking back. The Saturn was the 2D yeah. fighting system, and it was almost like well, arcade heaven. Like for an old schooler, it, it was, was like if that was the thing. It was, yes, like like you know, kind of like how last generation the Xbox 360 became the place you went to if you liked kind of the sh- you know the bullet right. hell games, right? The Saturn's where you went to if you if you like 2D fighters, and part of what helps that was the not not the not the crappy american controller we first got when oh. the saturn hit but the the real saturn controller 
which I would argue to this day stands as one of the best in terms of controllers for, for 2D gaming. Still stands as one of the no, best no controllers. Question. It, it was, you had the, you had the six face, but I mean, this controller was like made for Street Fighter <laughs> from, from the start, you know, you had, you had six face buttons and then two shoulder buttons. And then you had this D pad that I don't, I don't, I don't, like it's, it's, you know how like something will happen and a company will perfect something. And then it seems like other companies just lose that technology as time goes on. Like, you know how, I don't know how you have the Saturn D-pad, and then years later have the Xbox 360 D-pad. I don't. I don't know how you that and I happens. are in the same wavelength. It's like, how did we achieve 2D perfection and then go backwards? Yes, I don't know how that happens, but that D-pad was amazing. It just, it's, it's still like I still have my Saturn controllers, and there's still ways. If you really want to, there's still ways you can hook those controllers up to modern air mm. systems. And there's even, like, um, USB versions of that. Yeah, controller. which I've missed out on, but I've seen those on import shops. Yeah, that right. you can get. Because it was just, it was just one of these. And even, like, um, like you know, recently, uh, not recently, but a couple years ago, Mad Cats released a series of Street Fighter controllers that were obviously based on the Yes, and, yeah, and, and, and not as good. No, no, they were. Yeah, they were the, not. you know who I think makes the best two D pads these days. It's a toss up between ASCII and I want to say Hori. Hmm. And speaking, yeah, yeah I, 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 don't know, I was to say I, I haven't, I haven't tried enough of them. I, I need to. It, yeah, point, they. But. Well, you know, it's funny, and I, I don't want to. I don't. I want to make believe I didn't see it. There's a limited edition version of Guilty Gear Xard for PS4 in Japan. The limited set comes with PS4's first six button oh, really? pad. Hmm. Yes. I want to say it's going <laughs> to run you in the ballpark of somewhere around 130 bucks. Hmm. Yep. Um. Let me see, because Rabbit was uh, Aorn. I don't even, I'm not even sure who that was, but that was an interesting little thing that I mentioned. So, and and to be fair, you know, there were also 3D fighters on this on the system, um, and it did get some get get some really decent Sega ones. You know, I mean, of course, you you had like I said, Virtual Fighter, and then Virtual Virtual Virtu Fighter Two was crazy. Like just oh, keep going, keep going. No, I'm just saying like that. That was. The time that was just that was I feel like you know how sometimes games just like hit and like everybody like talking about before everybody played Street Fighter Two right. when it came out you know and then I remember at least for me locally Mortal Kombat Two was the same way like Mortal Kombat Two was a really really big deal and just like everybody played that and then to me like Virtual Fighter Two also became one of those games where like just everybody I knew played VF Two like even if they weren't good. Everybody was playing that game because it was like one of the first real 3D fighting games that that felt like, oh, my God, this is something big. Well, the leap virtually and then you had like texture map polygons to give it a better look. I mean, there was a lot of things, you know, uh, that game, just a visual leap in such a short amount of time, you know. And uh, as soon as Saturn had, you know, their virtual fighter out, 
people were like, you know, how the hell are they going to bring this home? And here's another quick side note. You know, as Sega got better with the hardware, as you'll remember, they also gave and released Virtual Fighter Remix. Yep, Virtual Fighter Remix, where they went back right. and they kind of reworked. But uh, the first yeah, Fighter. VF Two was you know that was another another benchmark. And then as you were saying, you know, it hit Saturn. They got sixty frames. It ran in the Saturn's highest resolution at the time. Uh, that one really had to pull out all the tricks, so to speak. But it was a it was a masterful work uh, to bring it. You know, like I've read in interviews in the past. Like, I mean, imagine this: the the Model Two arcade hardware, which you know had influences and was based off like Lockheed Martin uh, architecture. You know, built for arcade games. They had to take this state of the art architecture and shrink it down onto a fifty dollar disc game. Yep. And they and they did a you know they did a a phenomenal job, you know. And yeah, and that's like like that's thing like like it's for that time, man, Sega was just this crazy arcade developer who had these, you know, these these model Yeah, the model that 1, were, model 2, model, you know. Yeah, that it were was just, uh I I miss it so much, you know. And they still they still do dabble in the arcade market and Due to the changes over the years, you know they'll do partnerships with you know Namco and even Nintendo at times. But, but yeah, but everything these days is like okay, they just have like some sort of intent. Right, process right, yeah, right. It's much, yeah, it's not as um, it's not as finely tuned or tw- there isn't that yeah. race anymore for like really yeah. trying to do things. Um, Sega also released, of course, Fighting Vipers, and then the very interesting fighters yes. mega mix yes which was like one of those the, the, one of those games where they kind of brought all their characters we together we have to say it, the daytona car including the yeah. daytona car uh we got the original dead or alive which that's an interesting series because dead or alive from what it was in the first game and dead or alive 2 are so different because the original dead or alive was straight up they are cloning virtual fighter you know what's funny Speaking of the original Dead or Alive, which had the danger zones, aren't they bringing those back in last round? <laughs> they are bringing it in danger zone back in last round. How crazy is that, yes. huh? Yeah. Uh, and then I was also I, – I have to because it has a certain character that is near and dear to my heart. Um, of course, there was the the bizarre Final Fight Revenge. Oh, God. I saw that, and I, I just, I never. That came late in the system's lifespan, right? I completely very, very. Forgot. I think it was like. Don't 2000? tell me. Did you dabble in it, or did you play it? No, I've never oh. played it. Did they keep? They I, I heard. I, did they keep poison in there? I, I, I think. Wait a minute. Wait, wasn't I'm, I'm yeah. way off base. I'm so unprepared for this conversation. Did they scrap that game, or did that game actually get released? I thought that game got scrapped, but don't quote me on that. I know what you're saying, and I'm trying to because think wasn't that going to be the... the game that Poison finally came back in? But then I thought it fell apart. Or... But no, I'm I I think it came out for Saturn. So, um, I know what you're saying though, because I I, I was it just the American maybe version that was something. scrapped, or maybe there was another one in the lineage or somewhere in there that somewhere along the lines or was it like or was it a i i because i know what you're saying 
there was something somewhere that got scrapped that that is pretty famous for having gotten scrapped. Let me see here. But And what was that Final Fight version called? Final Fight Revenge. I, I, wow, I, it came I, out. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I just can't remember. It's claiming, wow, it had an arcade release July 99. It came out in Japan, Saturn. This seems way late. March of yeah, 2000. It was, it, was, it was very... It was very late. That is so way late. And you know what? Poison's in there. Yep. Wow. You know, the, I, I, I'd be curious to see, like, how she plays. Yeah, yeah. I, like, you were reading I mean, my mind. I wouldn't be surprised. You're probably headed down the same avenue. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some uh, similarities to her SF4 play. Because, okay, wait. Was it was it a Capcom All Stars yeah, game that got that, scrapped? I that was a three D so. a three D yeah. game, because I know there was and the then they brought, Fighting yes. Jam that came Which out. Was such a disappointment. But oh, Capcom Fighter, there was some sort of yeah. Because I, I, I think she was gonna come. I think what it was is she was gonna come back for this this the one that this, got scrapped. Yeah, I, I feel like it was like a three D fighter that Capcom was gonna be making. And then it ended up getting scrapped. And I think that's the game that that didn't Let's end up see. coming out. But I can't I can't at this point. She was planned to I, appear in Capcom Fighting All Stars. That's what Final it was. Fight Streetwise. Maybe it was Final Fight Streetwise. Um, well, I'm just reading direct off uh, Wiki. Though the first game was canceled and she was cut from the second. So she was cut from All Stars. Okay. Oh no! Excuse me. She was cut from Streetwise. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excuse me. Streetwise. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That is crazy. Yes. Yeah. So it was, it was All Stars that wow. got canceled because they did the two D game, and then I think this was going to be the three D game, and that's I wasn't one the kind of time when like just EX had just not caught yeah, on. Yeah, they at couldn't all. get the yeah, and they really just didn't know what to do with. Um, uh, 3D fighting yeah, games. Yeah, up until Street Fighter 4, Capcom... Yeah, they couldn't... They still couldn't get it right. But... Yeah, because it, it was, was going to have Ryu, Chun-Li, Alex, Charlie, Hagar, Poison... Um, oh, man, Rival Rival Schools. Batsu, Akira... Batsu and Akira from Rival Schools. And then Strider, Hiryu. And then some, some new characters. And that, that's where Ingrid came from. And then Ingrid, of course, got doled out to other right. places. What insanity! So, so uh, that's the thing. Is is like to to me to this day, I don't think of the Saturn, and you know it, there were plenty of great Sega games that that we'll get into in a later podcast. But I I don't think of it as being oh this this just fond memories of Sega games. The Saturn to me was this was where my two D fighters were at, and to be honest, I was I was okay with that. Okay, to to be fair. 2D fighters and then Fire Pro. <laughs> you know, like that's right. what that system was to me, and that's all I needed it to be. Because at that at that, at that point in time, like again, it just just if you're younger, you don't appreciate this. But at that point in time, having all these 2D fighters that we were used to only playing in arcades, having those have real legitimate versions at home, that was 
amazing. Well, I will say on my end here, I could probably make 55 more points on the Saturn. I'm just going to say two. And then I'll close out my, that'll be my end of my Saturn rant. Two things I'll say of note on the Saturn uh, topic. Loved the Panzer Dragon series. One of my favorite series of all time. Uh, Love the soundtracks. Just love the whole world that was created in that universe. Um, Xbox One got the most recent uh, incarnation of it, so to speak. But uh, unfortunately, that uh, that fell flat. But anyway, love love Panzer. If there's any original Xbox owners out there still, uh, please pick up Panzer Dragoon Orta if you can find it. And then I would say my last statement for Sega Saturn before we uh, or before I move on is um, I would also argue the Saturn was the last era that was really kind and showed some unique efforts uh, from Sonic Team in Knights and Burning mm. Rangers, particularly. Mm. Mm, that's an interesting. I, I would say Burning Rangers. Maybe the concept mm. was cool. I love the anime aspect. The game, prob- the game is probably aged poorly, but the one I will say has aged. I'm going to use the word well. Uh, Knights. Yeah, I, I still like like Knights was a weird game because like I it I had a roommate. Uh, my roommate was um, for for Game Fan Readers was was Glitch in in Game Fan Magazine, and he loved Knights. And he was one of the people who like really got into it. So he he understood the whole um, Knightopian raising and breeding and oh, everything. Because wow. like all these weird little things in the game that like most players just never understood. And I think that's one of those games that if it didn't click with you, you would hate it. Because it was just such a bizarre game, and it wasn't a, a game that was easy to explain. Um, but I was going to say that Sonic Team is responsible for one of my favorite Dreamcast titles, so I I have to hesitate in saying there that that was the last of their great era. Um, but I was going to say one quick thing before we move on. For me, is I think the Saturn is one of the few systems where. I actually own more imports than I do domestic <laughs> games. That was definitely for the, the case for me. And 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 to be clear, that's, that's not saying I own like five domestic games. I own a healthy library of of localized titles. But man, do I own a lot of Dreamcast. <laughs> I mean, that's the Saturn imports. Then and especially, especially that was that was the. That was the the time when I was there in the middle of Game Fan at the offices, and it was easy to get imports. And you were just, you know, everybody else around you was buying a bunch of games, so that's what you did too. So, man, it was so easy for me to just collect so many games. <laughs> but I think very similar to how the failings of the PS3 got Sony to rethink their strategies and and really. Put the effort into um, getting their their house in order with the PlayStation Four. Uh, Sega looked at what had happened with Saturn and the the negative sides of it and the the downsides <clears throat> and what was rough for developers and what was rough for fans and how they had to try to be a little more daring and a little more imaginative in their system and that of course, led to their final and some might argue best 
home console, which was the Dreamcast. Yeah, yes, uh, very, very uh, bold uh, statement there. Uh, not one that I can really argue with. Dreamcast, uh, I'm hesitant because I'm just trying to gather all my thoughts and, and trying to to speak properly about it. Um, you know, phenom- phenomenal system. Um, like you said, you know, Sega looking to right their wrongs. I would say, I would still, you know, the, Genesis, still their best their their best effort. I have a soft spot for the the Saturn, the Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. I would say it had the potential to be the greatest Sega console if the plug wasn't pulled so early. I think that's the that's yeah, that's, 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 that's the sour note because you know what, all of the greatness that the Dreamcast offered came fast and furious. I mean, I did have an import and I had an import before the the 9999, the September 9th of 99 when the US got it. Um, but everything came and essentially let's think about this um, like 24 months within 2 years. So I mean, yeah, we're yeah. talking to it, 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 it's 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 so funny looking back because really that system did not last. I mean, they came out late 98 we got 99 it was officially discontinued in 2001 that is yeah crazy. And, and let me say this at the time dreamcast boasted in the u.s launch the largest lineup in launch uh history for a console and i, I don't know the exact number anymore it was it was at least 18 if not 19 we'll say about 18 titles for sake of conversation playstation 2 did outdo it a year later in terms of sheer Quantity. I think they might have cracked 20. But let me tell you something. In terms of overall quality and the the overall launch lineup, that is something to this day that has, still hasn't been touched. The Dreamcast launch lineup, um, while they weren't all A titles, in terms of just sheer name value and having some aces intermixed, you know, everything from Sega Rally to, to Soul Calibur, to Sonic Adventure, to NFL 2K, um, I mean, it, incredible. Yeah, I mean, like it's 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 tough because I mean, obviously, I have like this this huge amount of love for the for the, for the Genesis. Um, looking back, there was I mean, that had such a long life and so many games for it and everything, you know. And of course, the, the Saturn had what it had and and for what it did for me it did just phenomenally but i think like the 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 dreamcast just it was for its short life it was this perfect blend of a sega that knew it had to to do everything it could to try to get players interested in their console um and a platform that was actually getting, uh, you know, quote unquote, real games from third parties, and then also had those crazy imports. Like it was just this perfect kind of balance of all these different sides of gaming coming together in one system. And then for me, it was you know the first real. I mean, the Xbox. And the Xbox doesn't come until later. That's that's right. Uh, 
there there were attempts with like the Saturn Netlink and things like that to right. try to do some of the kind of online gaming. But the Dreamcast was the first real console where it's like, okay, you know what? This is going to be an online system, and you're going to see why online can be really cool for games. So, like I said, it's I understand because the, the Dreamcast life was so short that it is a little dangerous to say it was Sega's best system because it was just such a short window of time. Um, but, man, just like some of my favorite Sega, not like console games, period, but Sega games came on the Dreamcast. Um, that was just, to me, a period when when Sega was at its absolute best in, in terms of, of coming up with, with new games and new ideas and stuff. Um, and, you know, like I said, like looking back, like the Genesis had a great mix of here's some, some Sega classics you're going to expect, and then here's some new Sega ideas, you know. Um, but I... I just feel like there was never a point when Sega was more creative or more daring on the Dreamcast. Definitely. And and just to back uh, back up a little, every every Dreamcast console came with a 56K modem. So they were mm-hmm. all online uh, ready. And the one st- another statement I will say is that here's a bold statement. Now, to me, the Dreamcast was the last system slash era if you know looking at sega it was the last time the gaming industry really took chances and i'm putting that all on sega's shoulders like when i say that i know i'm sega isn't all encompassing like they're not sony but like to me when i think of the dreamcast and i mean this that was the last era or period in gaming where i feel like we really saw a lot of innovations or like uh, jet set radio samba de amigo you still had your you know it it was still a 2d powerhouse it could do 3d it could do well yeah 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 here i mean let's hear what let's let's list some games i know we don't want yeah to but get, no but again, this is this is important super... because and this yes, is the have, last time have... was, everything wasn't cookie cutter right you have you have those okay you have um space yes. channel five you have shenmue yes. you have choo choo rocket you have to be to be fair it was from the arcade, but you had Crazy Taxi. It was it was hot. It was a hot game, and the, the soundtrack, the Offspring, it was a hot title. You had uh, what other what other like big Sega games? Um, and let's see, Echo the Dolphin. I don't think I really count because you had Echo the Dolphin on. on they had. On uh, I'm, I'm just going off. They had Grandia, the the Grandia Two, Skies of Arcadia. Yeah, the, Skies of Arcadia. Uh, uh, what was it? Was it the the game where you're flying the, the toys around? Toy something rather. Toy. Oh God! What was that game? You were flying. You had like like toy jeeps and toy airplanes. Somebody listening is like yelling the name <laughs> out right now. And like toy was it? No, it wasn't toy. Com- toy no. commander. It was oh, yeah, toy okay, commander. Okay, I never played. That wasn't my. Yeah. That wasn't my deal, so to speak. Oh, that was such a good game. You had you had toy commander. You had, um, oh man, Alien Front online. Yeah, I remember seeing that in the. Yeah, I mean, you had Outrigger, yes. which was this this really cool like, you could, it could be a first person shooter or a third person shooter. You had Seaman. That game scared me. Yes, they had Seaman. Yeah, they had they had a version. Yeah, they, they had they Spawn take... at the time. They even had a game based off Heavy Metal. Oh man, Spawn! You had the continuation of Sakura Tyson. 
You had a, a really interesting Puyo Puyo Four. I don't. Um, I don't want to steal you your had, thunder, but they had. They also had Fantasy Star Online. Which I'll, right. I'll have to something about in a minute. Yeah. Uh, you had Napple Tail. Um, getting into like non Sega games, you have of course Power Stones. Yeah, from Capcom. Yeah, up to four player. Uh, that was that was big at the time. Um. So I mean, just like I. Metropolis Street Racer. I mean, I, I remember playing Metropolis Street Racer and racing through these like real world cities and having like actual. And I, I mean, I know, I know Grand Theft Auto kind of did the radio station thing, but something about the radio stations in Metropolis Street Racer just made it feel so much more real to me. And then having the, the racetracks, the time on the tracks actually be connected to your real world clock. So if you're playing at night, and you were like, okay, so so let's say like one of the tracks was like San Francisco, right? And I live in LA, some Pacific time. If I played that San Francisco track at night, the track would be at night because that was my actual right. time zone. Whereas if I played one, you know, across across the, the like in, in Japan or whatever, it would be daytime because what time it actually was over there at that certain point. Um, well, here's the thing. Now I'm cheating. I'm using. I'm actually looking at my own personal list of what I own on it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we got Bangayo, which technically was on N64. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've got. Let's see. Well, here's the thing. Other great arcade conversions. You know, they did later on. They did Ferrari F three five five Challenge. You know, yep. all the yep. fighters. Yep. I won't bore the uh, the listeners with that. With uh, well, let's let's say real quick though. Like, I mean, I don't. I here here's here's where it's it's tough because the Dreamcast didn't have as extensive a library of two D fighters as Saturn did, right? But I might almost argue that the Dreamcast, if you're looking at selection versus selection. I feel like the Dreamcast had the better selection. Yeah, and I, w- I will say this, just to put into perspective the strength of the hardware, it could do arcade-perfect CPS3 conversions, which was like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, the uh, Street Fighter 3. Right, yeah, so, so, okay, so, so, so it had Street Fighter 3, which was, was I mean, it didn't didn't catch on as, as great as, as some as, as Street Fighters have. Right, but, but from a purist perspective, as a hardcore gamer, I mean, it, right. was, uh, it was unbelievable. It had Alpha 3... So you you had, I don't I don't I don't say I don't think it's the best alpha game, but you still had a great choice for Street Fighter Alpha. It had getting SNK. You had Last Blade, which is phenomenal, so so good. And as much as I love Sam Show Two, um, I would take Last Blade or Last Blade Two over Sam Show Three and Four any day, e- easily. You had. Mark of the Wolves. I have to throw this one in here because there's a loyal listener we have who will remain nameless. If I don't mention this series, okay. he's going to stop listening to us. I just know it <laughs> uh, if I don't mention it. Uh, don't forget Virtual On. They had Virtual On Virtual 2 on, on Dreamcast. Uh, you know, we just got done talking yep. about Saturn, another classic. Um, yep. But, you know, the other thing to drive home as well, some of these games which we're mentioning, which are continuations in series, some of them from Saturn era and arcade, when they came home to Dreamcast, they were pretty much pixel for pixel perfect now. No more. It wasn't so much shortcuts or having to cut corners. Uh, it was almost a double-edged yeah. sword. You were now getting arcade games to Dreamcast like it, it, at a rate that hadn't been seen before. 
Yeah. Um, so you okay? So you, so you have Mark of the Wolves, which I would argue is is the best Fatal Fury. Uh, I mean, would you, yeah, would you agree uh, with yeah. That? I I do like Real Bout, uh, but Mark of the Wolves is definitely it's it's right there. Yeah, I think if you I think if you're gonna have one, you have you have Mark of the Wolves. Um, you had you had a Darkstalkers collection. Hey, you want to know what I thought was arguably the the here, how do I word this? What I felt was the biggest exclusive 2D fighter, like, to the system that had, like, Street Fighter 3 was kind of exclusive, but, like, one that really never went anywhere else, Guilty Gear mm. X. I was going to that. Was that. Guilty un- Gear X. That was unbelievable at the time. Because it ran, correct, that was, yeah. an, that was the first high-res 2D fighter and an analogy people made at the time was that Guilty Gear X was kind of what Guilty Gear X was to 2D as to what Soul Calibur was to 3D at the time. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, Guilty Gear X, you had you had five King of Fighters. So the, the unfortunate part was the Dreamcast never got... No, wait. It, it had 2008. Which one? It? I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. 98. Yes, because it was confusing. They called it 99. That's right. It was 99 yep. Dream Match. Yes. Yes. So, okay. So there... So not not only did ha- the Dreamcast have KOF ninety eight, it also had two thousand two, and two thousand two and ninety eight are considered to be two of the best. If you just stop for a second there. and think about it, isn't that the most confusing thing that we just brushed over with people? King, I know. We, we I, corrected I, I, ourselves I, in that. Yeah, they had King of Fighters ninety eight. It was called ninety nine. Ninety nine, and then there was another ninety nine. There was two King of Fighters ninety nine. So it was so stupid. Um, you had you had a version of Super Street Fighter Two if you were into that kind of thing. You mentioned JoJo's. It it had what I would argue was one of the most popular Capcom versus games, which was Marvel vs. Yes. Capcom Two. You had Capcom versus SNK Two. Oh, which and C- was yeah, and, uh, yeah, and CVS, yeah, one and cra- two. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. one, one and two. You had both of those, which was was crazy. So I mean. And then, of course, you had you know the 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 3D games were also brought in, uh, Rival Schools and Tech Romancer, and you know you mentioned Soul Calibur and Virtual Fighter, you know three and something like that. So I would, as much as I sit here and say I think of the Saturn as like kind of my my 2D fighting game, you know, heaven. I would almost argue that the Dreamcast had the better yeah, uh, you know speaking games. from being a fighting game junkie fighters. i honestly i can't argue that no I, you're exactly right like i said you had, you had last blade you had for me the, the two best king of fighters on there you had mark of the wolves which i thought was the best fatal fury um i mean just just those by themselves okay there you go and then you had marvel vs. Capcom 2 all those all those games like just that was that was the continuation it was the continuation of of sega having the 2d fighting console but then you had all of these other great games for it as well. And, I mean, you mentioned Fantasy Star Online. That was, like, I wasn't a computer player, so I, I, wasn't, I wasn't playing Warcraft. I wasn't playing EverQuest. I wasn't playing any of those. PSO, for me, was that. And I spent 100, maybe 200-some hours. Like, I would, I would... I remember because... I sit there. I didn't have a TV at the time. I had a VJ monitor, so I had my my Dreamcast hooked up on my VJ monitor. 
I had the Dreamcast keyboard in my controller. I would play PSO, and I, I remember way too many nights where I'd be playing that game, and I would look out the window, and the sun's coming no up. No way. You know? And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. I started playing at, like, 7 wow. p.m. Like, what has happened wow. here, you know? I That was, if I've ever gotten close to being a gaming addict, it was because of PSO. Wow. Well, let, you know, you know what? Let's, and I, you know, just to let fans know, Dreamcast is probably where we're going to most likely end this uh, uh, episode. I want to thank you if you've been hanging in there and listening all the way through. Thank you for your loyalty. Uh, so maybe I'm gonna we'll look at the Dreamcast a little bit different since we're gonna end on this and maybe pick it apart a little sure. more. I'm gonna I'll question you a little bit. So I'm certainly okay. I'm certainly familiar with Fantasy Star Online. I'm not ignorant. I've I've technically dabbled in it. I had a lot of friends that were hardcore into it, and um, so I've got no issues with it. No beef. It's it's nothing that I didn't like. Um, it's just it's just one of those things that because of all those fighting games, because of what I was into and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, was why I didn't quite get into it. So not a knock on the game. Mm-hmm. So what what captured you with that game? What made you play till like 10, 12 hours? What was it the was it the interaction with others, just having what was somewhat new at the time, being able to play with other live players on these these uh, adventures, so to speak? Was it looking for new loot? What what captured you? No, I think I think you hit on all of them. I mean, you know, it was like like I said, like before. You know, I know PC players had had some experience with this, but console players at that point really hadn't had the experience of going online and having an online community there and having other players around and you can talk to them and stuff. You know, and and here it was, okay, you make your own character, and then you can use all these little symbols to make your own fun little symbol chat graphics. And then you can go into this world and you could just sit there for an hour just chatting with people. Like, you know, it was this like interactive chat room. But then you could group up and go down and you could fight monsters together. And and then, oh, there were these these items and you might find this this new sword that is like two stars better than the sword you currently have. And then you can use those items you saved to kind of grind it up to have better stats and stuff. And, oh, you know, you, you found this weapon that your friend wants, so you can go and trade it with him and, and everything. And it was just, it was this, I think for me, it was the idea of suddenly, you know, I, I gaming wasn't either these small little arenas where people just shot each other, um, or it wasn't these big worlds where you were just in it by yourself. It was these big worlds where other players existed mm. there. And even though looking back, PSO was not an MMORPG because it it was only ever you know four players at a time in in these in these certain uh, stages and stuff, except for the the main you know main hubs. Um, it felt like this is a a virtual world that exists now, and there are real people running around with me, and it's not just me by myself. It's me. And other people getting together and adventuring together and, and fighting together and, you know, healing each other and, you know, protecting each other and stuff. And so it was that social aspect and the loot and the the not had never having had a game truly like this before and stuff. Um, so, yeah, it was it was just this it was this, you know, I mean, a world that I would later on really understand in games like World of Warcraft but so this was the kind of introduction on the console side. And as a console 
focused player who hadn't seen that on the PC side, I just wasn't prepared for for how engrossing and exciting that that kind of concept was. Do do you feel like since then anything has captured you in the same way or or not quite? I don't I don't know if it has. I mean, I I did definitely play a lot of Warcraft. Mm. But I never I never I I can't say never. I rarely felt that true addiction to it. Like I have to get home and I have to play this, you know, and I have to be on for hours and hours. Um, Warcraft was a game I, I could just log into, play for a while by myself, and do some adventures and then quit. Like I, I could do that. Whereas PSO was just it was because it was it was this. I think with anything, right? It's it's that new right. territory when you don't know about something, and you're going into it. Like with, uh, you know, I think Demon Souls was a good example. That was a game that just we hadn't played before. And so when we went into it, it was this brand new territory that we were exploring together on the same kind of level, you know, and, and we were finding about it together. Like now, you know, if like a Dark Souls 3 comes along, well, we've all played Dark Souls. We know how it works. We know kind of what to expect and things. This was like a new world where you didn't know what to expect. And and players were learning it and experiencing it together, and I think that's a very very powerful thing in gaming. Now, um, oh, my apologies. And 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 oh, and, and this, benefits. And, and it goes without saying, this was certainly the Sonic Team game. You were, yes, that's yes. what I meant oh, yeah, to say. Absolutely. Yeah, so this was. Yeah. No, on the, on the Sonic side, of course, you can argue that their their efforts weren't great. You know, absolutely. But um, I was going to say that that uh, Fantasy Online was what got me to buy the broadband adapter. Oh, that's right. For the Dreamcast, which was an interesting like like the Dreamcast. To one of the interesting things to me for that system was it had some really unique kind of accessories. Like you had a keyboard and mouse, which didn't I believe you know? they got because they got uh, a version of Quake Three. They had version of Quake 3, you could use it without trigger, and then, of course, you could use it with the web browser, which, you know, the the Dreamcast was kind of like one of these first steps into being more than a right. game console, you know? Um, they had the fishing controller. They had, as you mentioned, the Samba de Amiga controllers, uh, which was a really crazy thing from the try. Uh, they had the broadband adapter. They had the microphone. And they had... I think one of the uh, most unique aspects of the system and something that, that really, I can think, captured that kind of, that pioneering adventurous spirit um, was a VMU. Yeah, that's, yes. So I remember, and this is, this is how big of a dork I am, I'll tell you two stories. I remember the very first piece of Dreamcast hardware you could purchase was a Godzilla I still, VMU. I still have it. <laughs> I still have mine. So in 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 kind of in preparation for Ooh. the system coming out, cause like one of the big first games was Godzilla, which ended up just doing nothing. Like nobody cared. But they were really pushing this Godzilla game and so they made a green Godzilla VMU and it, it came out before the Dreamcast launched. Oh like, no okay Japan. keep keep like, going. Uh, maybe I have a different variation of it. Keep going. Okay, uh, so I don't know if it actually is anything about Godzilla's written yeah. on it, but I know it yeah. was green. And 
um, this VMU comes out, and I, I had to have it. So I, I ordered it from, like, NCS or something like that. Got it. Couldn't use it for anything. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I think there was, like, a Godzilla Raising <laughs> game on it. Um, because, so for people don't know, like, the VMU was this little device. It was, like, a really tiny little portable system. It had a D-pad. Um, did it yeah, have that's, two that's buttons right. on it? Was it, was it yep. two buttons? And then... It had a really, uh, really small little. And, yeah, and just for, to refresh listeners' minds, it, uh, while it may have been fading, this is don't forget still around that era of the Tamagotchi phase and and all that. Yes, yes. Um, and then what you would do is it, it had a cap you could take off on the end, kind of like current day um, uh, f- uh, USB flash drives. Yes. Basically. And then you could there were the every controller had two slots on it, and you could slide the VMU into either slot. And then um, there was a little window in the Dreamcast controller where you could see the VMU's screen. So not only would the VMU act as the system memory for for the console, so you could, you basically had personalized uh, memory card, you know, so that that you could take your VMU to a friend's house and plug it in. You'd have all your saves and everything. So you, you not only had that. But the screen could be used in gaming. So, for example, I remember one of the big ones was in yep, football games, uh, which which it was uh, it was two K sports at the time. But I don't remember what it ended up. NFL two K, yep, yep. Or NFL, yeah. Which man, when you first saw that, the, you're like, that's the, real yes. life. Yes, uh, you know what? It, it was, was unbelievable because it was it was a mix of the visuals and the at, at the time. They did this style of um, commentary yes. that was just yeah, and the, pre- the presentation, the camera work, the yeah, and uh, the presentation. So I, I remember being in a store one time and like just casually seeing on on the screen and thinking it was a real yeah. life football game at first, and then but okay. So anyway, so you had this VMU and it was one of the big like gimmicks of the system. So I ordered this Godzilla VMU. Can't I don't have any system to use it on instead i think it had the the godzilla raising sim in it so you could play that but i it had a little like strap latch on it so i put this cord i attached a cord to my vmu and i would wear it on my Get neck out of here. i'd walk around i would walk around the city <laughs> with this vmu hanging around my neck because i was so excited for the dreamcast um and then so my other story and this is this is equal parts awesome and just embarrassing um, around that time, I, around like the first year of the Dreamcast, I was taking a Japanese class at my local college, and our teacher told us to make flashcards. Uh, so in in Japanese, there's three kinds of alphabets, and the, the two simpler ones are hiragana and katakana. And she wanted us to make flashcards for the hiragana and katakana. So what I did, so somebody on the internet had figured out a way that you could do a light level of programming for the VMU. Okay, this is getting good. So I actually made flashcard programs for the Dreamcast VMU. Yes. And so what it would do is you would start it up and then it would randomize and pick a, a random Japanese character. And then you'd see if you could think about what it was. And then you could push, you could push one button and it would take you to the the reading, so you knew how to pronounce it. 
And then from there, you could either go back to the character itself to, to help memorize the character, or you could push the other button and randomly get another flashcard. So you could sit there and like, just go through it all day long and, and, and try to practice your hero. You were able to around. fill that many, like you got that many characters in there? and where... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I got, so I, I did make two different programs, like one for Hiragana Jesus. and one for Katakana. But so I made, I made these two. And so I, t I took it to were my they, like, teacher. Were they like blown away? No, she's like, she's like, so, so where's your flashcards? And I'm like, oh, well, see, I made this little, see this little device. I actually made this program for this device, and I can just do it on here. And she had just like totally blank. Wow, look. she didn't go for and it. Huh? Like, she didn't understand. And she's like, uh huh, and just walked off. Wow. Yeah. So she she did not appreciate. Wow. My my my. Now let me let me ask you this. This is uh, another fork in the road, but I'm going to ask since since you brought it up. So do you have some? Uh, um, programming insight or expertise or, or what? No, no, I have very, very little. I can, I, I, I've done some basic things. It was, it was a really simple because what it was was it worked all around images, right? You could put mm -hmm. images on the screen and then you could kind of do like simple like if if this happens, if this, oh, you, do, okay. you push right. this button and do, then, then right. show this image or yeah, do still, that. That's pretty it damn was cool. very, it was very like low level. I mean, you could do some more things kind of like websites or whatever, you know, very simple stuff like like randomize this mm -hmm. or if and, you know, or then and stuff. So it was it was like a really low level stuff, but um I was like yeah, really well, into that. And and that was one of the things the thing about the Dreamcast was it was in this era where the internet was starting to become a big thing and people were trying to figure out how to do things with the Dreamcast. So there was this whole kind of community building up online around the system and the little hacks you could do like that for example yeah i mean it, uh, amazing from amazing from top to bo to bottom you know the the whole vision of the dreamcast you know foretelling of the future of what it can do and then uh it's i i don't i don't know i, I don't talk about the dreamcast as much as i used to but i think i really just think it's because the plug was pulled pulled on it so quickly and i feel like I can't really talk to many people about it anymore because I feel like it'll just fall on deaf ears. And the system is now <laughs> – it's north of a decade. It's over 12, 13 years old. So, I mean, yeah, there's certainly a lot of people that remember it fondly and have lived through it. But at the same time, it's like – I mean, what what's – yeah, it's just what – you know, Sega is so different now. And uh, that was their final console chapter. Do you remember when supposedly Sega was going to make an MP3 player VMU? No, I, I may have read it at the time and forgotten it. The the big one that I always remember remember was that there was that speculation of them doing a zip drive add-on. Yes, yes, I, I, I'm trying. And to I want to say there that. may have feel, been one like or two photo and mags are online. But it never came to reality. Yes, yeah, so I, I think I saw the prototype at, at yeah. E3 one year. I feel like I did. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is like, like, Sega was doing some daring things. And I think the one thing I want to mention before I got into, like, what you were just saying was um, the VGA adapter. Because at that point, so what it was was it was this little box you could plug into your Dreamcast where you could then hook it up to a, a, a VGA monitor and play games that way instead of a television. And I think that was really, like, thinking back, that was, like, one of the first real, like, high-definition consoles because of that. 
I mean, I, I still think it was what it was like six forty by yeah, but that was, was so it was or kind of... maybe it might, it might have even achieved you know maybe four eighty p maybe, but yeah, I mean that was such a clean clean image versus what we were yeah. used to on all previous consoles you know uh, PC aside, but even when you take PC into consideration, like you're now achieving essentially you know something comparable to that. Yeah, so I mean, it, like I remember seeing like Skies of Arcadia in, in VGA, and you know Shenmue and some of the other games, and God, it was just it was Shenmue it blew must your have mind because I uh, that must have oh. looked unbelievable on there at the time. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, there's a lot of reasons where you can ex- under, explain, and and I mean, uh, God, I mean, we have to mention the fact that like there was a point where Sega had their own like internet service. Called Sega Link, yeah, Sega, Sega Net, sorry, Sega right, Net, yeah. where they were they were trying to set up this network, and so back then it was all like dial-up, you know, they didn't have Ethernet connections or anything, but it was this dial-up service where you could call them and use this service to play your games online and stuff. And they got to a point where if you, I think, it subscribed for like a year worth of service, you got the Dreamcast for yeah, free. See, I didn't even want to tackle that topic because I didn't have the facts in front of me. But I remember an old diehard Sega fan, a, a friend of mine, and he really thought that was going to be the like the the tie turner oh, yeah. to against Sony, like to keep Sega in the race. So did I. Were you thinking like that too at the time? Oh yeah, I, I mean, I was like that. This is going to be huge. I mean, because like think about it. think about if 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 Sony said, "Hey, if you buy two years of PS Plus, oh, we'll give you oh. a PS4 for free." <laughs> Or even a PS3 yeah, I, I I remember because they were, that was when people were making the comparison like Sega might go the, um, like a phone t- like not the phone route but the phone route in terms of like you know hey you sign this contract you get the phone free. So right. so that was another forward. Well, that hasn't been done still to this day. So I mean, you're right. Imagine mm-hmm. that like sign up for a service for a couple of years and you get the console free. Could you imagine yeah. how many PS4s or Xbox Ones would move? This right. holiday, if Microsoft and Sony gave the system away, if you signed up for a couple years of their service, right. that'd be the end of yeah. the console war. Yep. Yeah. But it didn't happen, and th- this is the, um, this is the point where I come to to hate Sony for a while, because, and and I'll be curious to see what you think. Like on my side of things. There, I saw this mentality growing of people saying, "Yeah, the Dreamcast looks interesting, but I'm just going to wait the time for PS2." And I'll, so I'll meet you halfway. I, I wanted a PlayStation Two. I, I knew it was happening, but that's from the gamer in me. Like, it had the DVD medium. Sony had so much success with the PlayStation, mm-hmm. so you know you'd have to be silly not to want to see what they had to offer next. But at the same time, it was an it was a tragedy the amount of people that passed up the Dreamcast to wait out for the PS2. I mean, yeah, I worked behind and, the counter and yes. I, it ha- it was all the time. Yeah. People were just like, nah, the PS2 is coming, I'm just waiting for that. And you're, you're saying like, there's so many good games right now on the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast isn't expensive. You know, you could, be, you could be playing these games right now while you're waiting for the PS2, but people are like, nah, I'm just going to wait. And more like i loved the dreamcast you know i said 
it rem it took me back to like my my love from the from the Genesis era, but I think I even loved Dreamcast more at that point. And I was getting mad. I'm like, I can't believe people are just waiting for a PS2, you know, instead of getting a Dreamcast. And then the PS2 hits, and I'm like, these games are well, crap. Like this first selection of games from the system, you know, like, this is garbage. well. The first I, real I issue Sony had to overcome was because uh, here's the deal. Some of their games you could tell were had some power behind them, like Tekken. Uh, Tekken Tag Tournament looked really good, but what hindered some of the early titles were anti-aliasing issues. Yes, and I mean, yeah, because you, if you sat down and you compared like Dead or Alive two on the, the Dreamcast versus the PS two, Dreamcast version looked way better. It ran better. That, yeah, that one I owned on Dreamcast. I never got to witness that one on PS two. I only read about that one. Yeah, and and. And I mean, I got to a point where I refused to buy a PS2 for oh, a while. Oh wow, you didn't get one so at launch. Pissed off. No, you ready for no, this? Would you believe no. I got mine within a when it came out in Japan? Yeah, wow, well, I right? got it within the first month. I, wow. I'll, you know what? Let me say this to listeners: uh, if if they haven't um, thrown themselves out the window, if they've hung in there for this Le Mans 24 <laughs> Hours version of GVGP. If they'd like us to do a, a retrospective or memories on Sony PlayStation or Sony, uh, maybe that's something we can do and I can share more Sony stories. But the PlayStation 2 always has a funny memory for me because I imported it and I was waiting for it on like special two-day air and I was working nearby from where I was living at the time and there was a UPS truck I saw outside my my job and I had a feeling a good chance it had to be for that my system was probably in there because it was within that route of where I lived and I remember going over mm -hmm. to the truck and like actually getting in the truck and and, and asking the <laughs> driver and he was luckily he was cool about it and then they, they I wound up getting my PS2 that way but there was another story hell I don't even know what version of King of Fighters and I I, <laughs> I missed the UPS truck and I think I got in my car and was trying to trying to chase down. <laughs> well, you know, since you remind me of it real quick, um, my, my PS2 launch story is not me. Okay. It's my friend. And this, was, this was at a point when, so when the PS2 first came out in America, um, it was really hard to find. Like, yeah, I think you talking PS2? Like, it was just yeah, so I think it was yeah. in October of 2000. It was yeah. just impossible to find one at this point. So my friend, he goes to Blockbuster, and he rents a PS2, and then he calls them, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I broke your console. Wow. And so, so he had to just pay them outright for the system, and he paid, like, standard price. So that's how wow. he got his PS2, is he went, and he rented it from Blockbuster, and then he just basically paid how for it. How crazy is that? And so I, so I, remember, I remember standing in his kitchen, and we were, like, trying to – there was this gigantic Blockbuster sticker on the side of it. And so we were like trying to find all these different ways. Was to, like, it like to get a it tough adhesive or something like that? Wow. Yeah, yeah. So we had to use like vegetable oil and no stuff. No kidding. To off. Yeah, but so I said I was I was I was really mad for a long time at, at Sony and the PS2 um, for what I, for how, what I saw as being their their killing, you know, of the Dreamcast. Um, and just oh, I just have just such fond. Like I'm singing back, and I had the, the I had the adapter to put use my Saturn controllers on it, and oh, there was you know Typing of the Dead, which was a crazy game, and and you know oh we 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 
we built our own DDR controller. Um, we actually took like a an old power pad and then made our own DDR controller so we could play that on the Dreamcast. And just all these all these little things like it was I it was Sega's last hurrah. But the the thing is is okay the 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 32x was a mistake and this the sega cd was was probably a mistake looking back and the saturn was i mean fond memories of it look it it was it was it was pretty terrible hardware wise i think i mean i think you would admit that like 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 it was in terms of making a system hardware wasn't i would say the hardware wasn't bad it wasn't right for the time in terms of making in, in in terms of making a system for developers, yeah, to it wasn't the right for what that era had. Yeah, it, was it wasn't the right choice at that time. Right. Yes. So, I understand all the things that led up to the failure of the Dreamcast and why it happened, but the Dreamcast really was a top-notch effort from Sega. It, in terms of the hardware, in terms of the risks they took, in terms of what they did with the system in terms of the game library that came out, there are so many things that made the Dreamcast a fantastic console. And that system did not deserve to die the way it did. And it, it, it is a real shame that, like I said, I think Sega's failures to that point led to them doing what they did with the Dreamcast. But... You know, you go back and forth because okay, if they hadn't have failed as bad, would the Dreamcast have been as good? But if they hadn't have failed as bad, the Dreamcast had would have had a chance. You know, would they still have had the the funds to support it and keep going? I don't know. I, I you know, especially when the Xbox came out too. You know, uh, I think Sega's time as a console developer was numbered, but. I just, I, to this day, I can't get over. I can't, I can't get over the Dreamcast dying. Like I, I loved that system. I think it died way too soon, and you know, I'm not alone because Dreamcast games still came out for it, years and years and years and years later. Well, well, thanks to uh, I don't even like calling them. They're not really even homebrew because they're such high quality. But yeah, Neo Geo Dev Team still does uh, ports and whatnot to the Dreamcast hardware, and within the last year, they've had a release. Um, and they're not the only ones. Yeah, what, what in, in 2000... In two, yeah. they, okay, so here's the, here's the thing. There are still games on schedule for next year. For next year for the Dreamcast. Okay? Do you understand that? Next year, there are still games scheduled for the system. It's unbelievable. You know? Yeah, it's... it's I'm... It, and as I said, part of that, of course, was the fact that, like, because the way they made the system, it was very easy to basically make unofficial discs for it. And and to be fair, it was an easy system to pirate for as well, you know. But that, too, like, like the Dreamcast, for me, was one of the first real times that I got into, like, the homebrew stuff. So it was like, oh, I'm playing NES games on my system, you know. Oh, I'm doing this. And then... I mean, we can't forget Bleem, Oh, wow. Right? Bleem, what was it? Bleemcast. Wow. Yes. I, I still to this day have my Metal Gear wow. Solid Bleemcast disc. So what this was, for people who don't know, is this was a PlayStation 1 What a crazy emulator. era. Yeah, keep going. 
I know. Like I, I saw this at yeah. E3. Like what, what the hell? How is this? Gaming. How is this possible? So the I, the original idea was that this this team called Bleem was going to make this PS1 emulator, release it for the Dreamcast, and you had this disc, and you put the disc in, and then you put your PS1 disc in, and you just played your PS1 games. Um, but their initial idea was to have a disc that would play like all PS1 games, I believe, but it came became too hard. So what they did, they did was they released discs for specific titles. So um, looking at this list here, three came out. And that was Gran Turismo 2, Metal Gear Solid, and Tekken 3. So I do still have my Metal Gear Solid disc. So basically what you can do is I put, you put the disc in, and then you put the Metal Gear Solid disc in, and you basically are playing Metal Gear Solid on your Dreamcast. I mean, how insane is it to, I know. to take I, that, that trip down memory lane? and it, like, yes. That's like science fiction talk. I mean, <laughs> I guess yeah, what would be closest, it would be like maybe running 360 on PS4 or... Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, it would be something. Well, I mean, I think, I think to be fair, I mean, it did happen way in the past when, what was it? Uh, was it the ColecoVision that had the adapter to play Atari games? Yeah, I forgot. Or was yeah, it in television? Yeah. yeah. It was one of the two. But, uh, but still. Yeah, I don't know. You know, say, but, you know, in short, you know, Sega, a lot of fond memories, still a Sega fan at heart. Um, and, and you know we, we've we've really gone over a lot of the reasons as to what led to you know to where the the events that happened, what led to their third party, you know the mistakes that they've made. You know we can't look at it completely with rose tinted glasses, but at the same time, uh, no matter what, I still wish to this day in the console wars that Sega was still a contender, no doubt. Of course, the problem is though is i mean obviously i think things would be different but like i think right now and i ask myself would i want 2014 sega to have a console out and the answer is no way <laughs> you know there's no way i want the sega we have right now making their own console no i mean yeah i mean no i mean how could i say yes but you know there would have to be some sort of we would have to know a lot more about the inner workings of the current Sega but to give a full yes or no. Like, you know, is there stuff we're unaware of or how much control does – because what is it? It's like – it's technically – what is it? Like Sega, Sammy Holdings, and now they've acquired Atlas. Like, yeah. it's very confusing. So, you know, as an outsider, the short answer is no, probably wouldn't. But at the same time, you know, maybe if we knew a little more or how they were structured or if the, a couple more of the right people got involved, you, you know. I just feel like I just feel like all those people that made the Dreamcast what it was, you know, um, I'm totally spacing off on on team names, but you had like you know you had the old Sonic team, you had Smile Bit, you had like those other other teams, you know, like I, I just think they're they're just gone. I, I don't I don't think that that creativity really exists within Sega at this point. It's it's going to be interesting to see where they are in a couple of years. Like I, I think it's going to be interesting to see when like. Persona Five hits or some other titles like I, I don't know like I don't know I, I understand I guess they're just going to keep the Atlas branding on it or whatever but no I, mean, I, I Atlas is but I don't know but like I don't know outside of that like that I keep bringing that up because that's a positive to me but like but Sonic I mean, I mean, Boom could, is not tickling think, my fancy no and I mean do you think Sega today okay could Sega today make like a Jet Set Radio. 
Could they make a Space Channel 5? Like, do I think they, they have they the talent in the a... studio, or do I think they would they, they get the clearance? I mean, do you think they would even try oh, no, like, a, like that I think anymore. there may be some talent in the studio. I think, let me make that clear. Like, I don't think, I think there may be some good people there that could do the job. But do I think they would get the clearance or would want to, like, get the bug to, to do something like that again? I, I have to say no. Because they haven't shown they haven't yeah. shown anything like that in so long, and every time there's a new announcement, it's it's Sonic. I mean, and I think Sonic is an awesome mascot. I mean, he's a character that's as recognized pretty much as Mickey Mouse. I mean, that is that is. It's easy to say the words out loud, but it's hard to really put that into perspective and understand that. But it's like, God, they have they have pimped Sonic out for the last ten years, and. Well, you should go. You know, if you ever want to laugh, go to the go to the Sega fa- the official Sega Facebook page, and when you look at their Sonic announcements, <laughs> just go to the comments and look at what people say in the comments. And it's not all just like hate at the character, like they don't like. It's not that they don't like Sonic. It's that people will say things like, you know, hey Sega, do you remember you have like fifty other, you know, like there's so many other franchises and so many other series that you can continue, and you keep going back to Sonic, like. The last time I read the Sega comment section, which was maybe a year ago on Facebook, it was one of the most depressing things I'd ever read. That me? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I, I think the closest that they they get to that that old um, Sega is is kind of like with with Yakuza. Yeah, because know? it's I mean, like kind. Yeah, and now. That's a little bit kind of to where they were at with right. Shenmue, but and now and now they're and now they're milking that. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's problem. Like I just I just feel like the Sega that took all these chances, you know, and and just I mean, because like I said, you go back to Dreamcast and think about how many different games Sega put out, and part of it was okay they had to because they had to support a console, right? But just like. They just did so many different projects and tried so many different ideas, um, and you still saw part of that, you know, when they moved to, to Xbox, original Xbox and stuff. But I just, I feel like, yeah, I mean, I feel like Sega's one of those companies that that. But okay, could we argue the same thing happened to SNK? Did it happen, you know, to SNK as well when they stopped having to support their own console? Uh, you know, like like did did, did that kind of. Because we, we, we've never seen a league bowling from them anymore. We've never seen a Nam seventy five. I would you know, say the like... Sega situation was may, arguably sadder because. Oh, well, no, no, I think I, I'm what, trying to figure out how to word this because with SNK, they never like they did the hyper near geotechnically, but like they never really. Like you always knew SNK was was so specific, like so laser sighted to their right. audience and of course i wish they were what they were i wish they could come back you know that's not what but but sega was kind of more heartbreaking because they had so many more oh, yeah. divisions and so many more properties and so many more successes and were so mainstream and they and then and they still let all of it like crumble like snk was a different animal but you're right. You're talking in terms of innovation, and yeah, I mean, you can. Yeah, I, I just wonder. I wonder if just like it's just that's just the nature of the beast, where 
as soon as you're like like Nintendo, right? If Nintendo didn't have to support their own hardware anymore, would they be releasing the same kind of games with the same kind of output? You know, or would Nintendo become a company that does like just these? you know, few series that they milk over and over again because that's all they have to do. Like, I, I wonder if that's just what happens when a company stops having dedicated hardware they have to... Well, I, I have to tell you, this is, this is, you know, uh, take it how you may, but I look at the industry today and I still love playing games and I still love the hobby and it's always going to be a part of me. I think... I think no matter how good or how bad games get, I mean, games could just go straight into the toilet and become terrible. And I really think I'm going to be one of those people that sticks with it till the end, even if I complain the whole way. But it's scary, like being a developer today or looking at like how to crack the market or what's going to be a success with the masses. Like, it's really tough to, I think, take a chance on innovation or want to, like, even though it's so necessary right now, and I think we need it more than ever right now, especially with the, the capabilities of the systems at the same time, it's like with the cost and, and I I don't know, it's scary. Like, I don't know. It's, it's so different now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is. It's like, I think it's, I think it's, um, I mean, I've said this over and over again, but I, I feel I feel like, and I know people will say, well, there's right. indie games and you can have indie games, but I feel like the the ability to take, take chances by companies, I mean, because look, to be fair, I, I I love Atlas. I think Atlas still takes chances, but even, the, even they're even milking their games, right? You know, like Persona 3 and 4 really Look hits, at how many so, ways oh, they've look, spun that all off. Of these. Yes, yes. And I I just don't think that opportunity because I think it's just it's such a risk now and one one failure of a game can just destroy a company. You know I mean look at um, uh, oh what was the company that the uh, Zipper right they oh did, yeah like, that was weird games. yeah when they folded and it was weird because they yeah and those yeah. were like really really popular but then they did like that Mag game and that didn't go anywhere. And then they did a Vita game that wasn't really popular, and so they're just gone now. And, like, all these companies, like, can – or uh, the people who did Metropolis – Wasn't it Street Bizarre? Racer, they broke up, right? Bizarre yeah. Creations. They, yeah. they went on to do PGR, didn't they, on uh, Xbox? Project Gotham? Yeah, and they did all those, and then, like, the, then like, like Blur kind right. of flopped, and then they're just gone. So I think, I think it's just so rough. It's so tough now for companies to really take chances and, and really do different things. And I I hate that. Like, when we were talking about G- G- Genesis, right? When we were talking about all those games we loved on Genesis, I don't see those games ever <laughs> existing again, you know? And think about, like, go back, right? Like, read the list of, like, companies that, that did things for Genesis. And you've got, like, like Traco and Renovation and, and you know, all these other, Technosoft. like... Technosoft. Like, Technosoft or... Um, I mean, like, you look you look back at like NES ads or Genesis ads, and there's like all these companies you've never ever heard of, because there could be all these littler companies just releasing games like that. Because it took teams of maybe like ten or twelve people of all it took, you know, and they could make a, a, a something to release. But that doesn't exist anymore, and and so it's 
like those kind of like really weird, bizarre chances, I think are mostly gone. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why I love the the DS as much as I did, because I, I feel like that's one of like the last bastions of where those really, really weird games could exist because just the, the market was so gigantic. And I, I think you, you do every once in a while, like if a system does is large enough, you can get some of that. Like the PS2 had it as well. But I think just going forward generation, you know, are you going to see, especially from Japan, are you going to see those really weird experimental games outside? Well, we'll get this. Here, here comes this uh, Debbie Downer uh, note. Bayonetta 2 came out today. And this is a game that's mm-hmm. been cleaning house in terms of scores online with the the media and critics. It's uh, and the, me? the the greatest review that I've seen so far for Bayonetta Two can be read at egmnow.com, uh, scoring a near flawless score. So check that out. But uh, so here's the thing: the game is getting universal praise. And Nintendo, you know, did dedicate a Nintendo Direct to it. They have been advertising it. I've seen a commercial, you know, so, like, you know, they, they've been trying. You get the original Bayonetta with it. So today was the American yeah. launch day. And now, mind you, I'm just speaking from my perspective in one store. This does not represent the masses or stores across the nation. Now, I went to a rather busy store today. And I went around the end of the workday. So this wasn't like when they first opened. And there was there was actually a good amount of people in the store when I was in there. And I want to say that I was, at least up until the 5 o'clock hour, I was the only person that picked that game up today at that store. Mm. That's tough. And which made me think, now look, did I go and pout and cry in the parking lot? And I mean, look, I mean... We're not stupid. We knew the game was going to have a, this game was going to have an uphill battle on the system it was on. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even yeah, going to yeah, get in. I'm not even getting to that can of worms. So here's what I. There's some so this, many. This is what I was asking myself though. Be that as it may, you still have. We and I heard you say this in the past with the wonderful 101. Like you, you always go to that lowest common denominator and you look. So even if nobody bought a Wii U today, nobody on the planet, and you just stopped, mm-hmm. and you they got to have at least five six million, which is obviously. You know, slow compared to PS4 and Xboxes. They had the year jump or whatever. But you still have millions on paper users. And those millions are hungry. And you've got a game that's getting universal praise. And they still can't sell it. And the question comes up, what what do I have one answer for that, actually. (laughs) There is one game that I have seen. And I was in line. I, there is one game I've seen for that system that there was. I saw a line for it. There's one game I've seen for that system. I saw people trading other products for it. And there's one game that still sells for that system to this day. Mario Kart. But yep. that aside, like, but you're still right. Like, they, like, I don't, I don't know what to like. But the Bayonetta thing to me is an even bigger picture. It's not just the console. It's not just because here's the thing: the original one did get praise, and it did okay. It did okay. We'll use that word, you know. You know, it did okay. But like, I have a feeling that specific type of over-the-top action game, which I love, which is one of my favorite, if you want to call it a genre. I'm just going to speak from the heart. I think with the masses, it's dying. 
if not if not dead. I, I it's it's tough because um, there have been a couple like the the, the relaunch Devil May Cry, the Bayonetta series. Yeah. Um. Like I felt like I felt like in the early two thousands. Like in the early two thousands, this type of game would be a like a bit like I don't want to like say like a big system seller, but like people would be really a buzz about it, or like people around town or friends would be like, "Hey, did you check out Devil May Cry?" Or you know, "Hey, this you know, like did you play the new Ninja Gaiden?" Like I feel like I'm the only person left that's still pushing that title, like those games. Mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not saying the third person genre is yeah. dead or adventure. But that specific, that, like, John Woo, Hong Kong action cinema over-the-top craziness, I feel like it's, like, Bayonetta 2 is, like, the, like, if this thing doesn't move, even with the user base it's got, I mean, who the hell's going to want to take a chance on, uh, not only take a chance on that type of game, this game has universally, like, achieved perfection. Everything now is like open world cinematic yeah. experiences. If you're not, if you're not that, but now, 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 you, you talking about this, like made me really think, and let me see if you agree with this or not. I feel like Platinum is still making Dreamcast games. <laughs> like I feel, I feel like Bayonetta is such a Dreamcast game, and from what I know of it, to be fair, I have a copy. I've not played it yet. I feel like Vanquish is such a Dreamcast game. Yeah, there's yeah, and Anarchy Reigns, Anarchy Reigns was definitely a Dreamcast game. Yeah. Like, there's something right. about those, something about their games that just make me feel like I could absolutely have seen these being on right. the Dreamcast, and they just would have fit in so well there. So I, I think. I was going to give credit to Sega, which I don't know if I should give credit to Sega or not. I was going to say, well, Sega does still take chances, but it's really Platinum taking the chances instead right. of publishing their stuff. But God, I feel like Platinum is still like thinking Dreamcast exists. Yeah, well, they're like forward. that. Yeah, I agree. They're like that. Uh, I don't want to use the word relic, but they're still. Um, I would agree with that statement. They're still stuck in that era, and they're still putting out quality. Yeah, there's just a feel. I mean, like, like if 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 you if you play. Like I mean, look. I know people hated it, but I I really like the new, the new DLC. Yeah, I, do, I I agree. I um, do too. For for what it is, you know. But if you play that and you play Bayonetta, they just everything about them is so different. And there's just this this there's just this feel to Platinum's games that I feel like are very it's very Dreamcast like. Hmm. So I I think I think if if. if Dreamcast had lasted, and if we had Dreamcast 2 or whatever, I totally would have seen those games be on that system. Mm. Well, you know, a lot, you know, to end on this, you know, a lot of those those workers are, were either influenced by Sega Classics, and it is all former Capcom, which, you know, did a very similar arcade-style action as old-school Sega, you know? But I feel like Platinum's the, yeah. last, the last type of developer like that, dedicated to that type, that specific aspect of the craft. And you know, since you brought them up, like, like, why is it? You know, we talk about like we talk about the the, the Saturn D pad, right? Where Sega got it correct, and then nobody else past that can seem to understand how to do it right. Like, what is it about Platinum that they can make a game like Bayonetta and have everything work so well, and other companies still to this date just don't understand how to make? 
action. I, I don't know. You know, I've never been there. I've you know never worked in the industry. But for as an outsider, I would say. I really think it just comes down to the fundamentals and not forgetting, like, not forgetting the root of what a game is. Or um, Miyamoto may be the best example for maintaining the traditions of a video game. I'll give him that credit, but like, Platinum still maintains the roots of precise control for action, uh, like fast pace. Um, I'm assuming there's got to be a lot of trial and error on those level layouts, the level designs. Like they still they can capture the same feelings you get from old school beat 'em ups and shooters of yesterday, which were two D, but they know how to incorporate it into three D. But they, they can still yeah. give you that same feeling, like that. You know what I mean? And I don't, yeah, I just think it's I just think it's. I mean, I was just reminded that we recently playing Bayonetta too. I'm just like, how is it that these controls are so perfect? How is it that that the action flows so smooth. How is it that Bayonetta, all of her movements, like, I, you, you play so many games and you're like, did, did the people making this game actually play it ever? You know? Like, the jump doesn't feel right, or the running doesn't <laughs> right, feel yeah. right, right. or the, anim- the animations are broken, or just, like, the comboing is boring. And it just, I said, you, you play Bayonetta too, and you're like, wow, I remember the fact that these, these guys know what they're doing, and I don't understand why the companies don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Right. But. Well, it has been uh, <clears throat> it has been quite the generic video game podcast where it's been anything but generic. Epi- and this was just what four four consoles. I mean, we had a few right. outliers with 3DX and the Sega CD, but really four consoles and one of those the Master System doesn't really count. <laughs> I think uh, you know we have. We have welcomed everyone to the next level. <laughs> I was gonna make some we something we do, but something else doesn't. But I don't know who to say they don't do it. Genesis yes. does what Nintendo. That was just a perfect <laughs> line. That was just so perfect. Well, how about this? You want me to end on a couple, a uh, little bit of Twitter plugs, and then the email? <laughs> yep. Let me just say before you do that. Um, <clears throat> you know, obviously we had to take a little bit of a break because I had uh, way too many trips and way too many work things to do. So we had to take a little bit of time off. So it's like our summer, summer break. But we we want to get back to doing a regular schedule. And not only do we want to do that, we would like – our idea is we want to kind of have where every month, let's say the exact same week, but like, like for example the first week of the month or whatever – um, you would know you'll get a new episode. So we're going to try to work that out. Don't take this as a promise that the next episode will be the same time. But we're, we're hopefully going to do that. That way you get, you know you get, you get at least one show a month and you know when you're going to get it so that there's at least a little bit of consistency there. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited for that. Most likely, as we uh, alluded to earlier, the next time you hear us may be a spinoff show uh, with special guest Terry Wolfinger. Uh, and then we'll be getting back on track. There's a, there's another uh, set of special guests potentially lined up, which would also be huge, but that's not confirmed. So uh, I'll leave that at that. And then as we close out, want to once again thank you uh, to the GVGP fans. Thank you for their kind words, their comments. Uh, they've left some comments on the site at radio.morningproject.com. Uh, want to thank them for their emails. Next time, uh, I dare say we'll probably dabble into some of 
Shidoshi's recent travels, maybe a little bit more, a little bit more in TGS. Uh, we will be in full swing on the gaming holiday season. And then uh, as a final reminder, send your your questions, suggestions, tell us how great we are. Uh, you can email us at generic at morningproject.com. Don't forget to check uh, myself, Anthony, out at 24BitAJE. That's with the number two and the number four. Find Shidoshi on Twitter. That's at Picoeri, P-I-K-O-E-R-I. And once again, check out the whole family of Morning Project podcasts at radio.morningproject.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. And for every hundred dollars you donate to this show we will add an additional <laughs> 10 minutes in show length uh with no maximum so if we get enough money this might be an eight hour show we'll, we'll never get that money but i'll make you that we're, promise we're the only now. duo that would be able to pull off something that crazy <laughs> so oh but you know it's it scares me but i i i think it could actually be possible <laughs> But of course, we'd be like, our, like we would be like this in terms of our voices at the end, and and you know, we're just like making like random grunts and and knocking sounds or whatever, just to get our point. Well, out. I'll just let fans know this, you know, as this weekend comes up, they must be going. God, this guy's a motor mouth. He can go. He can talk for fifteen hours. Uh, but you know what? By the time the weekend hits, after after this recording's done, I'll probably say a grand total of nine words the rest of the weekend. See, my problem is like, like I do like all these long podcasts, but people don't realize like I don't talk very much right. in general life. So after every show, my voice <laughs> is completely shot. Well, I say more on podcasts <laughs> than I say an entire year to, to other human beings. So, mm. um, and that just for some reason I get all these, I'm all, all these shows that are mm. just super long. So. Mm.